I need a new computer. I need new clothes, new mice. Can't stand my mice anymore. I live with these mice. They take me for granted. They've, they've grown lazy, plump, almost Falstaffian. They can barely fit through the holes in the wall because they know I'm going to leave a dirty dish out overnight. So, you know, they, they just become too easy to catch, which means now I have to deal with dead... Okay, I'm not going to go into specifics here, but uh, this offends some of my listeners. So let's just say uh, I won't talk about disposing of the mice. Let's just say I uh, prefer the younger, leaner mice of my youth who were impossible to catch. That way you never had to dispose of them. They'd wait until nobody was around and then they'd sneak into the kitchen for a quick meal and leave. But the, the mice living with me now, I don't know. They're, they're spoiled. They, they've had everything handed to them. They know I don't clean up after myself. So they've never had to work for it. And now I'm dealing with generation after generation of gluttonous mouse gourmands who are eating themselves to death. I don't use mouse traps. I just wake up every morning. I wake up to one or two mice who've died overnight from congestive heart failure it's disgusting. It's disgusting. Well, if you listen to this show, you know that this is J.R. Majewski country. J.R. Majewski is running against Democrat Marcy Kaptor in Ohio. We had Marcy on the show. I like her, but she's no J.R. Majewski because J.R. Majewski, he's my kind of guy. We're both followers of QAnon. We love Trump. We were both at the Capitol on January 6th. And most importantly, we may or may not have seen action in Afghanistan. But when it's convenient, we say we do. More importantly, even more importantly than that, we both know how to turn a phrase. Here is J.R. Majewski at a Trump rally two weeks ago. I'll be the working member of Congress that's going to be the tip of the spear. And I'm going to turn that Green New Deal brown like the turd it is. <laughs> what a guy. He, you know, he reminds me of Senator Eugene McCarthy, who, like J.R. Majewski, had the soul of a poet. A lot of people forget that about Eugene McCarthy. And if you listen to Friday's show, you would know they're coming after J.R., the Associated Press says J.R. is lying when he says he saw military action in Afghanistan. The Associated Press claims they did a thorough review of J.R. Majewski's military record. And all they can find is J.R. Majewski spent six months in Qatar loading and unloading planes, right? That's what the Associated Press says. But I reported this and on Friday, I revealed that I'm so much smarter than the Associated Press because I follow QAnon and the Associated Press. They're idiots. They say Biden won the election in 2020. So why should I believe the Associated Press when they say J.R. Majewski lied about his military service? Here is what I said on Friday's show. I'll be the working member of Congress. That's, That's gonna be not the what I said on Friday's show, although I played it. Here is what I said. I, I disputed these reports, that this hatchet job on J.R. Majewski's war record. Here's what I said on Friday's show. You know, he's CIA. 
You know he was in Afghanistan, but he can't talk about it. He's CIA. He, he, you know, he can't talk. I mean, come on. The guy was at the Capitol on January 6th, big follower of QAnon. Uh, he says 2020 was rigged. So why all of a sudden would he lie about his military record? It just doesn't make any sense that a guy who would be at the Capitol on January 6th, a follower of QAnon, somebody who thinks Joe Biden isn't a legitimate president, why would he lie about his military record? It makes absolutely no sense. That is me, September 22nd, 2022. Time stamped. Can you believe the shirt I was wearing? What can I tell you? I'm a slave to fashion, and that's what the kids were wearing back then. But the point is, I knew back on September 22nd, 2022, immediately that J.R. Majewski couldn't talk about his military record because it was classified. I do that all the time when I may or may not be pretending to be a combat veteran. It's classified. And sure enough, the very next day, the great J.R. Majewski held a press conference. David Feldman says it and J.R. Majewski does it. Majewski says his deployments to Afghanistan were classified. It's almost impossible for me to tell you where I was on what day. That's why my orders are, are listed as a classified location. And he says the release of this information was a politically motivated attack. Marcy Kaptur and the Associated Press, you are a disgrace to veterans who serve this country. I demand a public apology. I serve my country proudly like thousands of other servicemen. And I demand an apology, too, because like J.R. Majewski, I claim to have served this country proudly, too. How can you not love J.R. Majewski? How can you not love this guy or this guy? Right? Rudy Giuliani, an inspiration to us all. I'd give anything to be like Rudy Giuliani. For example, last night, just as I'm drifting off, I bolt out of bed. Oh, my God, I accidentally put the glass bottles in the newspaper recycling bin. And I run down to the basement of my building. I found the glass bottles, put them in with the newspapers, ran back upstairs, my balls flopping like two coconuts clinging for dear life to the stem in a Category 5 hurricane because I sleep in the nude and forgot to put my robe on. But that's not the point. The point I'm making is we all need to be like Rudy Giuliani. Rudy, how does he keep it together? He's being sued for $1.3 billion by Dominion Voting Systems. He faces legal challenges from the D.C. bar. Merrick Garland won't leave him alone. He's closing in on Rudy for Rudy's illegal lobbying activity and his role on January 6th. Federal agents raided Rudy's home last year, seized his computer to see if he asked Ukraine to find dirt on Hunter Biden. It goes on and on and on. But he keeps going. None of this bothers him because he's got super powers. He's still shining on television, attacking Hillary and Joe. And despite all, all this, he is able to, to continue. You know, uh, I couldn't hold up. I, could, I was hyperventilating last night because I put the, the bottles in with the newspapers in the recycling bin. Uh, this guy has all these pending legal challenges, and yet he still has time to screw over his ex-wife, Judith Nathan. God bless this guy. 
Where does he have the time? Where does he have the focus? A Manhattan judge just told Rudy he will throw him in jail unless he sends his ex-wife, Judith Nathan, the $225,000 in back alimony. Rudy admits to owing her. During a court hearing on Friday in which Rudy failed to appear, Supreme Court Justice Michael Katz warned the deadline is fast approaching and Rudy will go to jail. But Rudy told reporters the next day, I didn't know about this court date. I've never missed a court date. I am a pretty busy guy, one of the busiest in the United States, and I have never missed a court date. Right? So he missed the court date. He says he didn't know about it. What was Rudy doing that he couldn't show up for Friday's hearing? It's classified. It's classified. He's working with J.R. Majewski on secret agent stuff. Can't talk about it. I like Rudy, and I love this guy, Barack Obama, who is the king of multitasking. This guy can remain focused no matter what is going on in his life. I remember back in 2011, the night he killed Osama bin Laden. This is true. He ordered the attack on bin Laden's compound, then excused himself from the Situation Room to go attend the White House Correspondents' Dinner, where, not knowing if the raid on bin Laden's compound would be a success or failure, he didn't have any clue as to how the soldiers would fare, if they would live or die, and he knew in the back of his mind that if it failed, it would doom his presidency. He'd be a one-term president like Jimmy Carter. All that going on, he was able to go to the White House Correspondents' Dinner that night. He kills comes back to the White House to discover that he also killed bin Laden. That's more than compartmentalization. That is a superhuman level of extrasensory focus. So it should come as no surprise that over the weekend, President Obama was spotted parking in a handicapped space outside a swanky L.A. sushi restaurant. How does he do it? He's got the stamina of a man half his age. What is he, like 60, 61? The guy can order sushi, focus on the meal, keep the conversation with his daughters going, while at the same time, while all that is going on, in the back of his mind, he's got to keep checking his Secret Service detail to make sure nobody's ticketing his SUV for parking in a handicapped space. All these things swirling around in Obama's head, and he can maintain. He can maintain it. Obama was eating at Hamasuka, where an eight-piece sushi roll costs $50. An eight-piece sushi roll, $50. By the way, in Los Angeles, a ticket for parking in a handicapped space runs about five sushi rolls. Amazing. South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol was caught on video using the F-word right after a U.N. meeting with President Biden on Wednesday. The South Korean president also faces criticism for showing up uh, late to the queen's funeral and, and, and not attending a private viewing of her majesty lying in state. All this coming on the heels of his failure last month to attend a meeting with Speaker Nancy Pelosi when her corpse was visiting South Korea. The South Korean president on Monday said he's only held office since May of this year. He's learning, and he added if he offended the royal family, Joe Biden or Nancy Pelosi, they should all, quote, lick my greasy taint. 
Adam Levine is lead singer to Maroon 5, as well as a regular on The Voice. He sells out stadiums all over the world. And with that, I think we can all agree comes a certain degree of responsibility that he owes his fans like me. I expect my pop stars to be exemplars of moral rectitude. I could never enjoy Mick Jagger, David Bowie, John Lennon, or Jimi Hendrix if there was even so much of a whiff of scandal surrounding their personal lives, because I cannot separate the music from the man. And once I found this out, I this is Adam Levine has let me down. I love his music, but no longer. As you all know, the music world has been rocked the past couple of days by a scandal that is up there with Michael Jackson molesting children. It pains me to say this, but Adam Levine from Maroon 5 has been caught sending flirty texts to at least five women while he was, you know, I don't want to be indelicate here, uh, while he was... He was sending flirty texts to at least five women while he was still married. I suspect we're about to discover there are even more flirty texts with even more women. I cannot listen to Adam Levine's music anymore. This is very upsetting. You know, I, up until now, I would listen to She Will Be Loved every day. Like, like five times in the morning, five times in the afternoon, five times before I went to bed. And now, but now when I hear the lyrics tap on my window, knock on my door, I want to make you feel beautiful. When I hear that, now I can't help but wonder if those are the same words Adam Levine used in one of his flirty texts. <sighs> This is worse than anything Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby could have ever imagined. Flirty texts with at least five women while he was married. How was this allowed to go on for so long without anyone in Hollywood speaking speaking up? Yes, Adam Levine is to blame for these flirty texts. But I think the entire industry has to do some serious soul-searching about all of our willingness to turn the other way when rich and powerful men betray their marital vows and engage in non-consensual flirty texting. Adam Levine is busy sending flirty texts, but all anyone cares about is Brett Favre. I guess he did something. The greatest NFL quarterback of all time, right? This is who people are obsessing on, Brett Favre. The man... 20 seasons with the Green Bay Packers, Minnesota Vikings, and the New York Jets. Won the MVP three times. It goes on and on and on. The joy Brett Favre would have given me if I gave a rat's ass about football is immeasurable. It's immeasurable the joy he would have given me if I gave a shit about football. You know, my father is no longer with us, but a day doesn't go by that I don't think of those Sundays where the two of us would have bonded over Brett Favre lighting up a field, you know, if the two of us didn't have more important things to do other than watch men give other men permanent neurodegenerative disease. And now to think that all this joy Brett Favre didn't give to me 
is all going to be washed away just because he stole money from the poor. Can we get some perspective here? All Brett Favre did was steal millions of dollars from Mississippi's welfare program, so it would go into building a volleyball arena at Southern Miss, where his daughter plays volleyball. You're going to blame a father for wanting the best for his daughter? All of a sudden, that's a crime? It's a crime to love your daughter? What bizarre world are we living in? Yes, Mississippi is the poorest state in the union. <clears throat> and yes, there are hundreds of thousands of poverty-stricken citizens who could have taken that volleyball arena cash and used it for what it was earmarked for. You know, food, clothing, housing. Yes, but we're talking about a man's daughter. And sure, Brett Favre is worth hundreds of millions of dollars and could have built the volleyball arena with his own money, but that's not really his money. He can't spend. It's impossible to spend all that money. Nobody can spend $300 million. And besides, that money has been earmarked for his daughter. What's he going to leave his daughter if he builds volleyball stadiums for Ole Miss? You know, that money, that $300 million that he's got, that's earmarked for his daughter the same way that soccer arena cash was earmarked for people who need food, clothing, and housing. Brett Favre's $300 million is earmarked for his daughter's food, clothing, and housing. And let me assure you, the $300 million he's donating to his daughter is a lot more than the money he stole from all those welfare recipients. So you could, in a way, say he's entitled to that volleyball arena cash that he stole. Give the guy a break, okay? It's not like he sent a flirty text to his yoga instructor, okay? Forget Brett Favre, all right? Adam Levine is the enemy. That's who you should hate. And yet you turn on Sirius XM, can't get enough of Adam Levine and Maroon 5, even though he sent at least five non-consensual flirty texts to five separate women while married Sirius XM, you can hear Maroon 5 all day, and uh, they have no problem playing this Dibbix, this Dibbix satanic incantations. That's what Adam Levine is. He's the Dibbix. He gets a free pass from Sirius XM, but Brett Favre makes the mistake of loving his daughter, wanting her to play volleyball in a safe space, and they suspend his weekly NFL show on Sirius XM. Do you realize how scary this is? I was this close to subscribing to Sirius XM. Just last week, I was thinking, you know, now I got my mom's car. I should get Sirius XM. And I came within days of ordering Sirius XM, only to discover that Brett Favre has been suspended over nothing. All I can say is I'm lucky to have dodged that bullet. Thank the dear Lord. I have no idea who Brett Favre was until this story broke. And I'm just glad my dad isn't alive to hear about this. Having to explain to him who Brett Favre is and how he stole millions from Mississippi's welfare recipients to build a volleyball arena for his daughter's school, it would have broken my dad's heart if he gave a shit about football. 
it would have broken his heart. Not as much as, wouldn't have broken his heart as much as discovering that he's come back to life and his oldest son is playing out the twilight years of his career hosting a podcast that nobody gives a shit about. Well, Roger Waters is going to be 80 next year, full head of hair, looks like he's 30. You might know him as the founder of Pink Floyd. I know him as someone who got everything in life, everything, great hair, ripped muscles, and he wrote comfortably numb. F him. F Roger Waters. He can kiss the dark side of my ass. Last year, Roger Waters said, quote, don't tell the Israeli lobby, uh, don't let the Israeli lobby rewrite our dictionaries with this McCarthyite racist claptrap. We know what anti-Semitism is and being anti-Israeli apartheid ain't any part of it. Lucky bastard. He said that last year. I only got to say that last week. He gets everything in his life, Roger Waters. He gets everything in his life except this. He's not allowed to play Poland. Nah, 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 nah. You are a loser. You can't play Poland. Not because of his comments about the state of Israel. In Poland, as long as it even hints of anti-Semitism, they're fine with it. No, he can't play Poland because of what he said about Ukraine. He offended the far right-wing Polish government. See, earlier this month, Roger Waters had the audacity to write an open letter to the wife of Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, calling it insane to suggest, as she did on the BBC, that more weapons for Ukraine would bring about a speedy end to the fighting. In his letter, Waters said it was America's objective to extend the war and said Zelensky should be asking Putin for peace instead of asking Biden for more weapons. How dare he speak the truth? How dare he say what should be said? A rock star from the 60s opposing war in all its manifestations. Oh, how he's changed. That's not the Roger Waters I remember from the, the late 60s. Now he's opposing war in all its manifestations. Plus, it was an open letter to Vladimir Zelensky's wife. That is worse than a flirty text. It's an open letter to a married woman. How dare he? Pfizer CEO Albert Bular has tested positive for COVID for the second time in less than two months, despite being fully vaccinated. Cue anti-vax imbecile Jimmy Dore to say this proves vaccines don't work. Right? Jimmy's going to be saying the guy who makes the vaccine has been vaccinated and he keeps getting it. No, you moron. He tested positive. They never said the vaccine would prevent you from catching COVID. They said it would lessen its severity when you caught it instead of killing you. The fact that the CEO of Pfizer lived long enough to test positive twice means the vaccine does exactly what they promised it would do from the very beginning. I can't believe I have to defend the piece of shit 
CEO of Pfizer. Police in Fort Lupton, that's a beautiful name, Fort Lupton, Fort Lupton, Colorado released, the police in Fort Lupton, Colorado released dash cam video over the weekend of their police officers. This is a sweet story. You know, we, we beat up on the cops here, but this is a good story. This, you know, some of the cops, it's, whenever I criticize the cops, it's just a few rotten apples in, uh, in the barrel. So there's still some good cops like the ones from Fort Lupton, Colorado. Uh, they left a woman accused of road rage handcuffed inside the back of their police car. And then it was hit by an oncoming freight train, leaving the woman unconscious the woman was stopped, accused of felony menacing and handcuffed. She was left inside the vehicle while the officers searched the area for a gun uh, that they think she had a gun and she threw it out of the car. So they were looking around uh, for the gun. And according to the video, the officers uh, see the freight train coming. They hear it coming around the bend and uh, they notice that the woman is handcuffed uh, in the back of their car. One officer is heard right before the freight train hits. Uh, hey, was she in there? Was she, was she in there? And the other imbecile says, oh my God, yes, she was. And then a third officer is shouting, stay back, stay back. Don't, don't go, don't do your job and save somebody's life. Don't pull the woman out of the car and save her for an from an oncoming freight train, because that's not why we have police officers. Well, the woman thankfully lived. She sustained a broken arm that required surgery, nine broken ribs, a fractured sternum, and a wound to her back and the back of her head, leaving her unconscious. Unconscious. That would be your tax dollars hard at work. What are we looking at there? A $300 million settlement? Easily, right? Uh, no, maybe 10 million, 10 million. You know, maybe we wouldn't have to defund the police. Maybe there would be enough money for police and social workers if police departments in places like Fort Lupton, Colorado or New York City didn't keep hiring cops with one functioning brain cell. $206.7 million in 2021. $206.7 million last year. According to the Comptroller's Office here in New York City, that's the guy who pays our bills, New York City paid out $206.7 million last year in police brutality settlements. That's $206.7 million that could be spent on new squad cars, maybe better and cleaner jails that didn't spread COVID. You know who's defunding the police? The police. When you hire bloodthirsty racist thugs with one brain cell to patrol the streets, it costs you a fortune. 200 and I pay my taxes. So these guys, these cops can go on joyrides and, and crack skulls. Took Alabama prison officials three hours to give Alan Miller a lethal injection. And then when they couldn't find a vein, they called it a night. This was Alabama's second botched lethal injection in three months. 
Back in July, Alabama prison officials struggled for three and a half hours trying to find a vein to kill Joe Nathan James, but they called it quits after three and a half hours and then waited a few weeks to execute him in secret. Last week's botched lethal injection of Alan Miller in Alabama will be rescheduled. There's a rain date. Maybe it'll be a doubleheader. Alan Miller will be executed uh, soon. He said, I'm not making this up. He says he's afraid of needles, not making this up. And four years ago, he requested, as is his right in Alabama, to be killed by breathing in nitrogen hypoxia. But a judge in Alabama ruled that the lethal injection with the needle could go ahead because Miller had not filled out the proper paperwork requesting a needle-free execution. This is... My country, America, lawyers arguing for a man's right to be killed with nitrogen hypoxia because he's afraid of needles. And the judge ruling that, yes, under Alabama law, he is free to choose how we how we kill him. But he didn't fill out the proper paperwork in a timely manner. All that red tape, right? It's not incompetence. It's the red tape. Uh And then it took them three hours and they couldn't find the vein. That's got to be a good job, right? That's something you, that's a good job. How how was work, honey? I don't want to talk about it. No, what's the matter? Uh, Couldn't find the vein? I couldn't find the vein. That's okay. You'll get it next time. You want some pie? I I made your favorite pecan. No, I'm going to go into the basement and finish that sofa made from the skin of teenage runaways. Okay, honey, but don't stay down there too long. We're having dinner with the Seavers tomorrow night. Gonna wonder who would take a job like that or be married to somebody who would take a job like that. Well, as if he doesn't have enough on his plate, Alec Baldwin and his wife have welcomed into their world their 700th child. Alec Baldwin, uh, 700 kids or seven. What's that? Oh, seven. He said seven kids had their seventh kid. I don't know, Alec, have you tried adopting a new wife? Have you tried adopting a new wife? Because there are plenty of abandoned wives out there who would give anything to be taken in by a kind and loving man like yourself. You don't need to stay married to Octomom 5.0. I mean, you know, listen, your kids are fantastic, all 9,000 of them. But have you tried a vasectomy? I've had one. Trust me, sex is exactly the same, and you're firing blanks. And when they tell you you're firing a blank, it's really a blank, I promise you. Nobody can sneak in a live round uh, just because you're too cheap to pay a union crew what you promised them. Now, I like Alec Baldwin. I, I see a lot of myself in Alec Baldwin, you know, except for the success, the money, the talent, the full head of hair. Mostly I relate to his self-destructive streak. I I can relate to his self-destructive streak. He can't keep his big mouth shut either, but he's harmless. He is harmless. And as much as I detest the producers of Rust for hiring non-union scabs and running a money laundering operation for tax cheats, that's all Rust was. It was a money laundering operation for tax cheats. I still believe... 
Alec Baldwin has suffered enough. And I'm being serious. This isn't sarcasm. I believe the man has suffered enough uh, for what happened, and he should be left alone. He is clearly not a murderer. And there are now reports that the district attorney's office in New Mexico, where the shooting took place, they've now budgeted $317,000 to prosecute four people involved in the shooting of that cinematographer, Helena Hutchins, last October. It is said today that one of those people to be prosecuted is Alec Baldwin, who also served as one of the producers. So the district attorney in New Mexico is setting aside $317,000 to prosecute Alec Baldwin. What is that, like an hour for his lawyers? That's what his lawyers charge per hour. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, the, the, uh, Alec Baldwin, unfortunately, is reportedly, uh, putting his 10 acre estate in the Hamptons up for sale with a listing price of $20 million. The estate is on Amagansett. It's a two story cedar shingle with a private wood panel library, swimming pool, eight, eight bedrooms, eight master bedrooms, and only one half bath. The entire house only has half a bathroom. Hard to believe. You know, they, uh, they got, uh, they built that beautiful building and there's only one bathroom. Well, he will get uh, $29 million for that house, and I'm sure his lawyers will enjoy every penny of it. Does anyone really think he, he did that on purpose? He did what he was told. He, he didn't tell the gun caddy, hey, put a live one in the chamber, then spin it. I feel lucky today. Well, uh, he's effed because it happened in New Mexico, and the DAs, you know, they, this is their, this is the biggest thing to happen since, this is the biggest thing to happen in New Mexico since James Arness from Gunsmoked uh, filled up his tank at a Phillips 76 in Albuquerque. I think that was 1972. So they're very excited about this. Chris Wallace used to be on Fox News, but he wanted to do something more with his career so he joined CNN, where he's now free to do the hard-hitting interviews, like on his new show for HBO Max, which is owned by the same people who own CNN. So he's got his own special show, and he's doing the hard-hitting interviews, right? So much going on in the news, and who does Chris Wallace decide to interview? Tyler Perry, right? How could you not want to... Talk to Tyler Perry. Medea. Now, look, I have nothing against Tyler Perry because I never worked for Tyler Perry. But just like the producers of Rust, Tyler Perry is notorious for screwing his unions. This is a story from 2008 when Tyler Perry unlawfully fired four writers who try to unionize the, the staff of House of Pain. Two years ago, 
he told Grio that he had been screwed over by union and non-union writers, so he doesn't need a writing room or writers. He said he tried hiring union writers, but every time they handed in a script, he would give them notes and the writers would make changes after they got his notes and they wanted to be paid for the rewrites. He said the writers were purposely handing in bad scripts just so they could get paid for the rewrites. Yes, that's not how it works with unions, Medea. It's not how it works. And so now he says he's done with writing rooms. I'm going to write it all by myself. But what he really means is I'm done with giving writers credit. There are reports that Tyler Perry brings in writers and just doesn't give them credit. He's also been on the Do Not Work list by SAG-AFTRA and Actors Equity Association. That's Tyler Perry. It's no coincidence that Tyler Perry Studios is located in Georgia, a right-to-work state where unions have absolutely no power. That's why Tyler Perry's studio is in Georgia and not Hollywood. So obviously, I couldn't wait to watch him step into the octagon with hard-hitting journalist Chris Wallace face-to-face -face with Tyler Perry. I couldn't wait to see a hard-hitting journalist like Chris Wallace ask the tough questions like, do you hate unions? Do you exploit your workers? What do you have against working people? Here is Tyler Perry being asked those tough questions on Chris Wallace's new show. When Medea first started, first came out, uh, Spike Lee called it coonery buffoonery. And, and over the years, there have been a number of people who say that you're playing with negative stereotypes of black men and black women. How do you Masculating black men. I've heard, I've heard it all, yeah. How do you respond to that? There is a certain part of, of our society, especially black people in, in, the, in the culture, that they look down on certain things within the culture. Uh, for me... Nothing about unions, nothing about right-to-work states, the four writers you fired, being on the do-not-work list by SAG-AFTRA and Actors' Equity Association. No, Chris Wallace... Stick with race, right? That's the big edgy question. Ask Tyler about something that can't be quantified, something that's subjective. But a math problem like, are you union? Do you support unions? A question like that with a, an answer that can be quantified? Why be rude? He's a guest on your hard-hitting newscast. We don't want to embarrass anyone, which is why... I don't have big name guests on my show. They don't do my show. They wouldn't answer my questions. And quite frankly, I don't want them. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, David Feldman Show. DavidFeldmanShow.com. Welcome uh, to the mop-up. Uh, I'm David Feldman. 
coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 70 degrees and sunny. The stock market closed down today. Let me just check. I'm a little disorganized today. What did the, the market close at? I hear it's not doing well. I hear people are uh, suffering. Let's see. Um, the market, NASDAQ down 0.5%, S&P down 1%, and the Dow Jones Industrial down about 1%. Not good. We're in a bear market, and uh, we have a good show coming up uh, on September 26. On today's show, our special guest is Professor Juan Cole. He's the editor-in-chief of Informed Comment. Professor Adnan Hussain will be chatting with him. And Peter B. Collins is back from his three-week Italian vacation. All it took was three weeks in Italy for Peter B. Collins to rekindle that country's romance with fascism. And later today, we'll be talking uh, with Peter B. Collins, who's back in America. He could be naked. They lost all his uh, luggage. That's true. For three weeks, he had no luggage. But he's coming to us probably naked from NASA's Planetary Defense Center, where today our government is attempting to divert an asteroid. I'm not making this up. Remember Adam McKay's movie, Don't Look Up? NASA's Planetary Defense Center has sent DART, which stands for Double Asteroid Defense Test. They're sending DART today to crash into the asteroid Dimorphos to see if it can divert its trajectory. This is exciting stuff. The idea being that in the future, should an asteroid head towards the planet, NASA would be able to send a spacecraft up there to change its direction. So, you know, I'm assuming it doesn't hit America. Instead, crashes into a third world country that once again pays the price for America's malignant narcissism. Uh, no, obviously they would send the asteroid away from the Earth, uh, which would leave us free to destroy the place all by ourselves. We don't need an asteroid. Well, Peter B. Collins will be coming to us live from NASA's Planetary Defense Center. Thank you, Space Force. Hit it. Space. There's no limit to our sky. Sending God both night and day. We will space force from on high. Semper Sutra. Semper Sutra, ladies and gentlemen. Semper Sutra. That's uh, that really is the song for Space Force. That's not like something from the Steve Carell series on Netflix. That is the the actual, uh, their actual theme song. And also coming up, Grace Jackson joins us from Great Britain to talk with Professor Sam Weatherall about the monarchy. How powerful could King Charles possibly get? Are there constitutional safeguards to prevent him from becoming more than just a gin-soaked hood ornament? Who talks to his plants? We'll find out when Grace chats with Professor Sam Weatherall. 
For those of you in our virtual studio audience, remember to keep submitting questions in our Q&A, and I promise to read them on the show. If you'd like to join our virtual studio audience, go to my website and sign up. And while you're over there, sign up for my newsletter. It comes out every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern. It's a great way to end the week, and it includes your link for office hours, which starts two hours later at 8 p.m. Remember, if you want to come to office hours Friday night at 8, the link is always on my website. You just need Zoom or a, a phone. You can phone in from what I understand. We are recording today's show live on Zoom and YouTube. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you're not driving, uh, most people listen to us in the car or on a walk or doing housework or cleaning up after a Double Amazon. Uh, but if you're in front of your computer, watch us live on YouTube. And I want to thank the mods. We have two chat rooms going simultaneously, one in our virtual studio audience on Zoom and then the other on YouTube. And keeping our two chat rooms safe from trolls are the mods. They are today. Our mods are Autumn Leaves, Midi Doctors, Bob Carmody, M. Toussaint, Choking on Ashes, Lexi444, S. Scott, S. Scout is taken, Dent F., Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, and the Invisible Ninja. Thank you all for doing that. Well, um, where am I? I am totally confused. Okay trying to get through this in an hour, trying to plow through 90 minutes of stories in an hour. Benito Mussolini was the OG fascist. He was elected prime minister of Italy back in 1922. And, uh, you know, realize Hitler rose to power uh, something like 11 years after Mussolini became uh the prime minister, uh, he was a nationalist. Uh, he was thrown out of the Socialist Party, so he became a nationalist. I'm talking about Mussolini. He believed in rule of the elite, rejecting democracy and maintaining a class system that caters to the military. Well, on Sunday, Italians elected the most right-wing government since Benito Mussolini was elected uh, back in 1922, 100 years ago, on Sunday, Georgia Maloney was elected prime minister, marking the hardest turn to the country's right in 100 years. Maloney's party won 26% of the vote and formed a coalition with other right-wing parties, including former prime minister Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia party. Georgia Maloney is leader of Brothers of Italy, whose motto is God, country, family, which many say is reminiscent of the fascist party of yore. Maloney is anti-immigrant. She's a proponent of the great replacement theory. She insists there's a deep, dark conspiracy to import people of color into Italy. The Brothers of Italy, that's her party, uh, they trace their roots all the way back to Benito Mussolini, which is why it should come as no surprise that Republican whip Steve Scalise celebrated her victory on Fox News yesterday. 
your thoughts on what's going on in Italy. You also have center-right winning in uh, Britain as well with Prime Minister Truss. You saw it with Truss in Britain. Now Maloney, hopefully, in Italy, where, where the voters, the people in these communities are getting crushed, low-income families because of the high costs are rising up against their far-left socialist governments. And I think you're going to see that in America as well. But it's interesting to see that, that Europe is leading the way by throwing out socialists with conservatives and great, bold conservative women like both Maloney and Truss. I think it's exciting to see it in Europe. We need to bring yeah. that kind of conservatism back to the United States to stand up against what the big government socialists have done to ruin our economy and raise costs for middle-class families. I think yeah, that's going to happen and, November 8th. And Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden called it extreme. Yeah, a little, little extreme to have the most uh, far-right party since Mussolini. This is what the Republicans, this is what Steve Scalise is saying we need to bring to America, right? Fascism. This is a party this is Maria Bartiroma on Fox News. This is Steve Scalise. They're no longer hiding their fascist intent. When Steve Scalise, the Republican whip in the House, is rooting on a fascist party in Italy, shamelessly, in Italy where fascism started 100 years ago, make no mistake about this. The party, the Republicans, are now in the hands of diehard fascists who are fascists by definition. They are nationalists. Steve Scalise and the Republican Party, they're nationalists, they're militaristic, they're anti-immigrant, they believe in catering to the ruling class, and most importantly, they're anti-democratic. At some point, at some point uh, this year, uh, somebody is going to call Charlie Kirk or Tucker Carlson a fascist and instead of saying what they usually do, which is, no, you're the fascist, this time they're going to say, oh, yes, thank you for calling me. I'm a fascist. Yes, I am. We're, we're about three months away from people no longer being ashamed of uh, being what our fathers or grandfathers fought to destroy in World War II. Tucker Carlson, by the way, over the weekend, attended the funeral of Sonny Barger, who led the Hells Angels. This is all part of the fascist playbook, celebrating the bikers, the thugs, the extrajudicial law enforcement. Well, uh, as we know, part of the fascist playbook is oppression of the LGBTQ community, as well as women. In Nazi Germany, abortions for Aryan women were criminalized in 1933, right after Hitler took power. Abortions for Aryan women were criminalized under paragraph 218 of the German Criminal Code. And here in America, it continues. Here in America this week, it became impossible to get an abortion in Arizona, a judge ruled that the state of Arizona cannot enforce its near total abortion ban. It's a law that dates back to 1901, making no exception for rape and incest. Unbelievable. We're going back now farther than 100 years. Fascism is 100 years old in 2022. We're going back to a 1901 anti total abortion ban. 
Uh, two weeks ago, Indiana's near-total abortion ban went into effect, closing clinics around that state. Uh, but they have reopened after a judge ruled the abortion ban violates the state's constitution. So I guess women are getting abortions once again in Indiana. Well, make no mistake about it. Abortion is on the ballot in November because fascism is on the ballot and you cannot separate the government controlling women's bodies from pure, unadulterated fascism. And the midterms are only 42 days away, 42 days away. And also on the ballot is Donald Trump, who faces multiple investigations. So many, it's impossible to keep track of all his lawsuits. Trump faces multiple federal, state and local investigations the Justice Department under Merrick Garland is unlikely to indict Donald Trump with the midterm only 42 days away. But as you know, federal agents searched Mar-a-Lago and uncovered classified documents that Trump seems to have kept for himself. Because of that, he may be facing charges of violating the Espionage Act. He also faces charges of obstructing a criminal investigation. These are federal charges. Uh, the Justice Department is also looking into Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election and what role he played in the January 6th attack on the Capitol. That's some of the investigations going on right now in the federal, in the Justice Department. In New York State last week, Letitia James, the state attorney general, announced she is filing a civil suit against Trump and his three adult children for fraud. Letitia James says Trump fraudulently inflated the value of his properties in order to get more loans to pay off older loans and buy new properties. That's going on in New York State. In Georgia, Fulton County District Attorney uh, Fannie T. Willis has convened a grand jury looking into criminal charges that Trump tried to overturn the election results there. I was going to play the tape where he's on with Raffsenberger saying, we just need 11,201 more votes. I don't have time to play that. He's guilty. In uh, Manhattan, Alvin Bragg, the newly elected DA here in Manhattan, Alvin Bragg has signaled that after five years of investigating Donald Trump, he doesn't think he can bring a strong enough case against the Trump crime family. And... January 6th, the January 6th committee, Congressman Benny Thompson chairs the January 6th committee, which is scheduled to issue its final report sometime before the midterms. It has to wrap up uh, before the new Congress. It has to, it, it, it was set up to dissolve before the new Congress in 2023. There are reports that the January 6th committee will make a unanimous criminal referral to the Justice Department saying that Donald Trump was personally responsible for the attack on the Capitol. And I don't know if you saw 60 Minutes last night, former Republican Congressman Denver Riggleman from Virginia said former President Donald Trump's White House's links to the insurrection need to be explored more 
Riggleman worked as an advisor to the January 6th committee up until recently. He was on 60 Minutes last night, and he told Bill Whitaker in an interview there was a quote-unquote aha moment when he saw that the White House switchboard had connected to a rioter's phone. Uh, He said to Bill Whitaker, I only know one end of that call. I don't know the White House end which I believe is more important, the American people need to know that there are link connections that need to be explored more to be continued. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. When we come back, Professor Ann Lee joins us. She writes over at Daily Co's under the name Annie Lee, and we're going to get an update on how things are going in Ukraine. <laughs> Traveling light, got everything I need. Got a little bottle of Woolite and a little bag of weed. Got to saw Bellum novel, cause I really like to read. I'm traveling light. I'm a creature of the road, got no regrets. Gave up my postal code and cigarettes. I'm doing much better with a touch of Tourette's. I'm traveling light. Just need a clean room in a Motel 6. Not too close to downtown, but not out in the sticks. I need my pen and teller magic kit so I can do my tricks. Got my favorite pillow, which I call Mr. Fluffy. Four kinds of allergy pills in case I get stuffy. A pound of Epsom salts, cause my ankles get puffy. I'm traveling light. I got two pairs of socks and shorts in my little valise. A couple of passports and my sex doll Denise. I'm staying real quiet so they don't call the police. I'm traveling light. sedatives and my antipsychotics a high speed parallax motor cause I'm into robotics and my little red speedo I like to do aquatics I'm traveling late got my CPAP machine and my George Foreman grill a copy of Lolita and my little blue pills a Navajo blanket I get a chill, I'm traveling light. Got my margarita mix and my rusty old blender. A 50 tequila in case I go on a bender. My attorney's number in case I want to change my gender. I'm traveling light. So 
visitors in case I have some visitors. For breeze if my room is stinky, a Polaroid in case I get kinky. My Jesus bobblehead and my Star Wars bedspread, I'm traveling light. I got my rabbi costume and my portable dark room, my hair plug lotion and my expensive wrinkle cream, my Emmy statue for my self-esteem. I'm traveling light. I got my podcast mixer and a fancy microphone, my exercise bike so I have a place to hang my pants, my very valuable Hummel collection, a menorah made of fish heads, a Christmas tree, I like to keep my options open, don't you know, a shoeshine kit, a skill saw, a crossword book, a large supply of mechanical pencils, a year's worth of New York magazines I've been trying to get around to read, some scripts that I've been tweaking for those people in LA, and my enemies list. Welcome back. Thank you, Professor Mike Steinel. I need a new computer. I don't know what is going on with the, the uh, latency. We're trying to do a live stream, and it just looks like it's 1952, and this is the Dumont Network. <laughs> Sorry about that, folks. I don't know. I have to get a new computer joining us is the brilliant professor Anne Lee. She writes over at the Daily Kos. Her handle is Annie Lee. Everybody should read her over there. You have been doing a nightly update on the war in Ukraine every midnight, right? Every midnight? Yeah, it uh, releases about five minutes after midnight Eastern time. How are... By the way, just so we're clear here, I I am rooting for Ukraine. I am rooting for America. <laughs> I wish there were peace talks, but I'm I support my country. Uh, I'm not rooting again. I'm not rooting for Vladimir Putin. He's the bad guy in all this. I just think the that Joe Biden could have prevented this from happening. So. Are we any closer? Where are we tonight? Uh, probably no closer, and probably the the prospects are much longer. But uh, it's it, it remains interesting. Uh, today and the last couple of days have essentially been a lot of disinformation. Most of my interest in these things is to wade through the the massive disinformation on, from both sides. Um, or all sides. There's really no both sides here. But we're at a, an, an interesting point because there's uh, a lot of domestic turmoil over the partial, our partial mobilization in Russia. And uh, it, it is more disinformation than anything else. It's a lot of propaganda claiming that he's going to get 300,000 new troops and uh, most people say he's, he's going to be lucky if he can get forty to 50,000. Um, and the the more accurate estimation is more more like he's only going to get about twenty thousand viable troops. So, really? Yeah, yeah. It uh, it's very troubling, and there is resistance. Uh, a uh, a uh, a recruiter or a, somebody who is uh, working for the conscription office in a in a town in Siberia was shot uh, just yesterday, or maybe today, I guess, relative to the time lag. Um, there's a variety of other civil unrest as well, 
And uh, about a quarter million Russians have left the country, have fled the country, uh, males uh, uh, mainly. Uh, and uh, some countries have responded. Georgia has shut its borders uh, because there was a lot of people just getting there either by car or by foot. And uh, it's, it's caused a lot of road backups. There's a still traffic jams from Russia into Finland, for example. Um, and uh, all the flights have been tied up, uh, you know, over the weekend, essentially. Uh, so it, it's an interesting time. Uh, and there was a mass shooting, I believe. They had a... Yes. Uh, it, 12 it, kids were killed? It's about 600 miles east of Moscow. Um, I think 20 some odd people were wounded and many children, 11 to 15 uh, people shot and killed. It uh, was a person who had, is about 34 years old, had a, uh, a psychiatric record of some kind. And, uh, you know, it's an interesting issue. Uh, one might call it a kind of a stochastic crime in the sense that uh, he uh, was influenced somehow by the media by reports of mass shootings of children um, in the United States, with all respect. Uh, so it's an interesting. Well, what was the word you event. used? What was the word you used? Excuse oh, stochastic terrorism was actually invented by someone over at Daily Coast. Uh, uh, the idea that uh, uh, we can't. It, it's difficult to pinpoint the exact perpetrator, but uh, there are some media indicators of that that uh, that create these kinds of crimes. In other words, they're not they're not uh, uh, perfectly random, uh, or that they are. It implies that they're random, but they're really not perfectly random. Uh, so that's uh, an interest. Well, that's the simple way of explaining it. Right. He doesn't get the 300,000 troops that he wants, you're saying he's going to get about 40,000 if he's lucky. Yes. And, and it is about training and the current disinformation is they're grabbing people off the streets and throwing them right into battle. Uh, I don't think that that's truly the case, but there is a, a forcing of more eligible people because actually the, the, the technical numbers that there's 2 million people available to be conscripted. It's just that getting people who are actually really qualified combat close to combat ready is uh, more down into the 50,000 range. Um, and, and the rest have to be sort of, as they say, trained up. There's a, a report by the, the British uh, intelligence that, uh, some of these people who are going to be conscripted are going to be thrown in, not into battle, but to um, provide uh, replacements or reserves for the Rosgardia, which is the National Guard. And they're going to uh, try and in incorporate more National Guard units. So Rosgardia, which is used to, uh, it's like the territorial defense people in Ukraine, to uh, uh, enforce public order. They're like mm -hmm. the cops, but they've also been used to uh, do these sham elections. So it's it's uh, it's very odd. Uh, on the other hand, there you know the disinformation can be amusing. Um, uh, uh, Ed Snowden has come back into the news because he's a uh, a Russian citizen and he's technically uh, eligible to be conscripted. 
Um, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> I wouldn't want Edward will... Snowden uh, handling any of my classified documents. <laughs> Remind so, us who Edward Snowden is. And oh well, the, and, uh, Edward Snowden was involved in uh, uh, things related to uh, classified documents while he was a c contractor for the CIA and right. uh, making a good good amount of coin actually, two hundred thousand a year. Booze. He was working for Booze something, right? Uh, Booz Allen. Booz Allen, uh, I think, was his boss. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's an exciting story in the sense that he took stuff, he took some stuff with him and they tried to, They, I don't think the, the U.S. did that big a job, good a job uh, stopping him. But anyway, he winds up in Russia where there's no extradition and he's had his second kid and, uh, or, or today at least they revealed that he, that he has had uh, a second kid with his wife, and uh, it, it's interesting. I, right. uh, but a, as I say, I think this is another disinforming piece of uh, sort of peripheral information. Uh, uh, aside from, and and in fact, I hope uh, some of this kind of these stories about the war will be a little bit more clarified. I assume when uh, Juan Cole comes on, it, yeah. it will be very exciting. We should mention Juan Cole, Professor Juan Cole from Informed Comment, will be joining us in about two hours with Professor Adnan Hussein. This is very exciting. 40,000 good troops can't do the job in Ukraine. Is that a fair assumption? Yes, it is. They're going to need um, a lot more. Actually, the 300,000 figure is a big figure. Uh, 300,000 is what the Ukrainians will probably need to drive the uh, the Russians out of uh Ukraine, or at least to drive them back to the 2014 borders. The other stories are, you know, uh, there's a lot of technical stories, some of which are disinforming the use of Iranian drones by the Russians. Um, but equally so, the Ukrainians are able to shoot them down. There are some new uh, NAMARS, I think it's called the uh, um, uh, Russian, uh, I mean, uh, rockets uh, that the Ukrainians have. There are a couple of units that have been delivered. So more precision rocket artillery has been delivered, uh, which is going to be bad news for uh, for the Russians because it, it has been actually quite devastating. And uh, the, the story of the conscription in some ways is to rationalize how they failed to hold the border uh, in uh, Kharkiv and moving back and retreating to Luhansk. So there, if there is a military story today, it is that there is a slow but continuing advance by Ukrainians in the east of Ukraine into Luhansk, which is one of the uh, key objectives of the Russian original Russian invasion uh, to take a significant portion. I, I think the real goal was to get everything up to the Dnieper River, but that's obviously totally gone. Um, they would have had that or some way to get towards that if had they been able to seize uh, Kiev, but that's right. not happening. Um, and so it's it's sort of interesting. And and on the Ukrainian side, uh, Zelensky has has suggested that you know we're still you know we're still moving forward and we're going to take the entire country back, um, whatever that means. And then for those who have some interest in the overthrow of uh, Putin, uh, Alexei Naval Navalny, uh, who's uh, the uh, Navalny, who's the uh, kind of principal anti. Putin sort of uh, uh, political figure who's been, I think he's still under arrest, 
he constantly gets himself under arrest, which is, you know, a, a lock him up. That's a very standard kind of strategy for autocrats. Uh, it, he's actually, very, you know, the, the thing that we forget about him is that he's very nativist. So he says even if he gets to be president or when he gets to be president, he's not going to take Crimea back either. So uh, there's going to be issues. Right. <laughs> even if you expected Putin get overthrown and to be quasi-democratically replaced, even if that occurs, which is, un, you know, probably unlikely, um, you know, Crimea probably will still wind up in Russian hands. Somebody in the chat room, Stephen, uh, said he's Navalny's a horrible racist. Putin has the Wagner Group, which is named after Adolf Hitler's favorite composer. Where, Where is the Wagner Group in all this? Are they fighting Oh, yes, they are. They're fighting on the Eastern Front. It's about five to 6,000 fighters. Of, uh, at least that's the current estimate. There's a lot of disinformation about these matters. But it's an interesting group in the sense that uh, uh, they were meant to cover the kind of uh, sort of understaffed uh, area to, uh, on that where the uh, Ukrainians burst through. And uh, uh uh, an example of how this uh, conscription is sort of going is that a, uh, a major gangster, and I can't remember his name, is Lusk, I think. Uh, it's a very serious gangster, a, a multiple murderer. Uh, it's in there for, well, a long time. He volunteered to uh, join the military and he was killed uh, uh, last week or week or two weeks ago hmm. after joining the Wagner group. So, uh, and, and the Wagner group is, uh, on the one hand, efficient, but on the other hand, quite brutal. And some of the atrocities have been uh, laid at the feet of the Wagner group, although I think it's much more widely generalized. There's also other major issues uh, uh, and some bizarre stuff, of course. There's a, a piece of video showing a drunk Russian grabbing a Russian flag and uh, uh deciding he's just going to charge the the Ukrainian lines uh he manages to get shot but not killed but it's a it's a very strange piece of video you know he's sort of right. ranting and and, and then what, he gets hit it's what is very the, bizarre but before you go and thank you for doing this what is the disinformation on the Wagner group are they Nazi sympathizers because we always hear Putin saying we got to go into Ukraine to denazify Oh, <laughs> Ukraine. But isn't the Wagner group, aren't they notorious for having Nazi well, tattoos? Yes, they do. Uh, its leader has uh, <laughs> Nazi tattoos, if you want to get down to it. But the the wider interest is that there is a neo, uh, there are neo-Nazi groups within Russia, a significant number, and they don't get uh, talked about as much. Uh, well, obviously, they, they can't be talked about from the Russian side because... Uh, the Russians are supposedly denazifying uh, Ukraine. Ukraine does have some neo-Nazis that are in various groups. This is a, an interesting problem related to the Azov Battalion, who, whose leaders have been uh, uh, traded in a prisoner swap. And this would be Ukraine's sorted. Azov Battalion that's been Yes, absorbed. Ukraine's, yeah. yes. And there are uh, right-wing forces in, in Ukraine as well. But they are a small percentage, uh, just like on the Russian side, there is a small percentage, but they are actual Nazis. I mean, actual neo Nazis with tattoos and slogans and swastikas and everything. Um, and some of them have been operating within the context of, uh, uh, of the war. 
they're not a major force. And I think it's really important to remember that. It's just simply that on the Russian side, the the front end of the kind of flood of uh, the flood of disinformation and to keep uh, public solidarity is to claim in the in the model of the World War Two war, uh, you know, great patriotic war against the, the fascism and the Nazis is that the, the Ukraine is being not denazified. Uh, which, as I think we've seen pretty much from from even the most serious disinformation, is not happening. I mean, there's just not much uh, right-wing elements in uh, Ukraine, despite the fact that there are problems. There, are, But it is that Ukraine is under a full mobilization compared to the so-called partial mobilization of Russia. The partial mobilization in Russia allows them to get away with all kinds of things so they probably might might have gotten away with with a full mobilization but in russia a full mobilization would have would have made the military a lot more accountable and you'd see a lot more failures in the ukrainian context under full mobilization you can do all kinds of things and some things are that uh some trade unions are are disallowed in in certain cases and and even before the invasion uh, some political parties were banned, but they were very far right, far right parties. But these are kind of issues that get uh, bandied about as though they were major issues. And I think that they're less major and we'll see this sorted out, assuming we can get to a ceasefire. Fantastic. Professor Ann Lee writes over at the Daily Coes. Her handle is Annie Lee, A-N-N-I-E-L-I, correct? Yep. And every day at midnight. She does, besides all the other writing she does, she does a, a, a nightly update on the fighting in Ukraine. Thank you so much. We'll see you Thursday, I hope, for the professors and Marianne. Yes, you will. Thank you very much, David. Thank you so much. Th- really, thank you so much. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m., We'll be back with one of the stars of Office Hours after this. Joining us in Mass from Massachusetts, I hope is he is he there? It would be Professor Jonathan Bick. There you are. There I am. I'm in a bad mood. Your computer again, David? Yeah, I need a new computer. Uh, the audio yeah. is fine. We're just the, the we're trying to live stream on too many platforms, and it just looks like. Yeah. Um, are you still using the Commodore PET, or did you upgrade to the Commodore 64 this in Commodore 1987? I got the 1987 Commodore. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I don't know what the problem is. I can't imagine. Uh, they, they made a solid computer. They sure do. Yeah. Yeah. Got to get a new computer. Anyway, Professor Jonathan Bick joins us. Let's talk about... Healthcare in the United States. And there was a story in the New York Times that can't be true. <laughs> this story, I read the story. This cannot be. Tell everybody about the fake news because it is, it is impossible that this goes on in the wealthiest country 
in the history of civilization? Yes. Well, uh, unfortunately, it's not fake news. Um, and given our peculiar healthcare system, if you want to put that in quotes, uh, doesn't surprise me that much, actually. Uh, so it's a story that's entitled uh, How a Hospital Chain Used a Poor Neighborhood to Turn Huge Profits. And it's basically a, a story about a small community hospital in Virginia um, that became a part of a large, supposedly nonprofit organization that decided to take advantage of a well-intentioned federal program. Uh, but of course, after a few years, they, they figured out how to, uh, to make it work for them to make more profits instead of what it was intended to do, which is to serve the local community. So this, is, uh, this involves Richmond Community Hospital in Virginia, which is a struggling hospital in a predominantly black neighborhood. And it closed its ICU in 2017. Now, this is after it had been acquired by a large nonprofit healthcare chain. A large nonprofit healthcare chain. So they're not in the business of being in business. It's nonprofit, right? Uh, well, that's what they're supposed to be doing, but that's not what they're doing. Okay. So um, it, basically today, Richmond Community Hospital consists of little more than a, uh, an emergency room and a psychiatric ward. It does not have kidney or lung specialists or a maternity ward. It has a one MRI machine that uh, frequently breaks and uh, was out of service for seven weeks this summer. Um, but this hollowed out hospital that has such limited services, which is owned by Bon Secours Mercy Health, one of the largest nonprofit healthcare chains in the country has the highest profit margins of any hospital in Virginia, generating as much as $100 million a year, according to the hospital's financial data. That's a lot of profit for a nonprofit. <laughs> yeah, I guess they're just really bad at being a nonprofit. <laughs> we can't help it. Every, we have the Midas touch. No matter, we just keep making money. Yeah. I mean, how do they do it? You know, this is the question. Um, the secret to its success lies with a federal program that allows clinics in impoverished neighborhoods to buy prescription dr drugs at steep discounts and then charge insurers full price and pocket the difference. Hmm. So the vast majority of Richmond community's uh, hospital profits come from this program, uh, said two former executives who were familiar with so, the hospital. So how does this finance. work? So they, they, get, they get drugs. How does this work? Yeah. So uh, they buy, you know, hospitals obviously buy a lot of drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, the, um, the federal program allows them to buy prescription drugs at a steep discount. So, in effect, the federal government is paying part of the cost of these drugs. Okay. 
Uh, so, this, so the big farmer doesn't lose money. They, they oh, get, no, no. They get the market rate. No, no. Don't worry. You can sleep soundly. There. Good. The, uh, the shareholders are well compensated. Right. Yeah. Um, no. So, um, and then the the uh, large nonprofit uh, uh, organization that owns this hospital um, sells the drugs for full price, and they keep the difference of the costs that they had to pay. Uh, to what they were able to charge. Right. You would think they would give that money, being a nonprofit, they would give the money back to the government. Well, what they were supposed to do with the money was to invest it in the community. So invest it in the hospital. So, for example, you wouldn't close the ICU of the hospital, right? (laughs) Which, Which in turn... Uh, resulted in a lot of specialists leaving the hospital because you've got to have an ICU, you've got to have um, other uh, facilities in order for them to do, you know, complex procedures there. Um, So uh, the Bon Secours, which was founded by Roman Catholic nuns more than a century ago, has been slashing services at Richmond community while investing in the city's wealthier white neighborhoods, according to more than 20 former executives, doctors, and nurses. So they take the money that is the result of uh, this, this federal drug program that they're supposed to be investing in the impoverished neighborhoods. And instead of doing that, they take it and they invest it in more profitable uh, wealthier neighborhoods. So they're able to do uh, more services, more, uh, you know, high-end medicine in those wealthier areas, which does not serve uh, the neighborhood um, that Richmond Community Hospital is meant to serve. Uh, and there's a quote here uh, from Dr. Lucas English, who said, Bon Secours uh, was basically laundering money through this poor hospital to its wealthy outposts. It was all about profits. And when you say laundering money, so the the where do the profits go? It still is a he can't keep that money that comes into the hospital. So how does he get it out of the hospital and into his well, one place account? it goes is into the salaries of the executives that run Bon Secours. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, they, um, the CEO makes $6 million a year. For, a, a, for non- a non-profit. A non-profit. $6 million a year. Right. Uh, and then... Uh, $6 million a year to run a non-profit. Yeah, and and all the although Bon Secu has has taken a financial hit like many other hospital systems because of the pandemic, uh, the chain made nearly one billion dollars in profit last year at its fifty hospitals in the United States and Ireland, and was sitting on more than nine billion dollars in cash reserves. It avoided at least $440 million in federal, state, and local taxes every year uh, because it's called a non 
profit. Well, but again, the patients must fare very well. If it's nonprofit, I'm sure they get deep discounts. They're, certainly, they're not taking advantage of impoverished patients, are they? Uh, they are, in fact, because... No. They, what? <laughs> because of what they've done to this hospital, uh, people have died. Uh, and it's directly attributable to that. They can't even... They, the, uh, the organization, the nonprofit says, oh, uh, you know, if if they they need treatment that they can't get at um, uh, Richmond Community Hospital, uh, they can go to another Bonsuku hospital in the area. Well, whenever they try to do that, uh, it takes them many hours to find a bed or a facility in one of those things to get, to get transferred there. So. Uh, the article gives at least uh, two specific examples of people dying because their uh, treatment was delayed. Now, what mm. should happen, they should take all, you know, the $100 million in profit that they're taking out of this hospital and put it into the hospital. And then people wouldn't have to go anywhere. Right. Right? It would be there. But they're not charging. They're not charging poor people, are they? Oh, Yes. Really? Yes, they do. <laughs> um, yeah. So somewhere in the article, they said that they train the people who work in these hospitals to walk up to poor people and keep asking them, how do you plan to pay for this? Even though poor people are not obligated to pay for these services, but they've been told the employees at these hospitals have been told, your job, we pay you to collect money from these people. That's part of your job. Yes. Uh, they are supposed to provide free care for people who cannot afford to pay for treatment. Uh, but they don't share that information with the poor people that they're treating. They try to suck as much money out of them as they can. Wow. It's, uh, it's really stunning. It's almost um, as though that would be immoral. <laughs> it feels like, I, you know, is that wrong to do that? Uh, yes, it is. Dave. Oh, okay. I, I've been yeah. just, it's so hard to tell these days where, where the line is. Right, right. Oh, you know what? They're also, the, the Bon Secours is also using uh, this money that they, in addition to their $9 billion cash reserve, Seems a bit excessive for a nonprofit. In uh, what they're doing is they're building a luxury apartment and office complex. I don't know why a nonprofit is building a luxury apartments uh, when they're supposed to be a healthcare organization. They're job creators. Yeah, yeah. So you know, this is an example of perhaps well-intentioned uh, programs to help underserved communities, impoverished communities, uh, and the, the federal government giving money to so-called nonprofit organizations to serve a public purpose. But because these entities are acting like for-profit organizations, 
they have the resources and the incentive to um, get around the intentions of the original program and to use the money in a way that it was not meant to be used. And that's exactly what's happened here. Amazing. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's... We need more police. (laughs) No, I'm being serious. We need, uh, just not on the street, we need more police in the the corporate suites. There, There has to be a way to lock up a CEO of a nonprofit hospital who's making six million a year. There's, there's no way that he's not breaking laws. There have to be some proverbial busted taillights where you can pull this guy over and harass him until you put well, him in they, prison. They would, uh, an organization that has $9 billion in cash reserves can certainly afford to hire the best law firms out there, the best accountants, the best tax attorneys, to make sure that they are just this side of the line of illegality. So I, I don't think this is the way to structure a healthcare system. Right? So, I mean, we, we, there are a number of things we could do. One would be to uh, institute something like Britain has, which is uh, the National uh, Health Service, where the government would own the hospitals and the doctors would work for the government. With that, we have that in the VA, right? We could make right. it better. We can fund it uh, more heavily. Uh, that would be one way to deal with this kind of thing. Then it would none of this would exist. You know, you wouldn't have uh, heads of uh, healthcare organizations making six million dollars. Just wouldn't happen. He'd be a, a public servant, you know, making a couple of hundred thousand. So. Um, that's one thing you could do. Another thing you could do is, you know, have a, a single payer uh, system. And, you know, you you could, if the our politics weren't controlled by money, uh, you could do a lot of things. Yeah. Instead of killing Americans, which is what this healthcare system is doing. Professor Jonathan Bick, great job. We'll see you Friday night where you teach The Twilight Zone and Star Trek. Thank you so much for doing this. Sure. I appreciate it. Well, we're now joined by Royal Watcher Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling. Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling comes to us, I believe, from Norfolk. Uh, Is it pronounced Norfolk Uh, next door to Sandringham? Many by Americans, yes. I'm sorry? Only by Americans, yes. You you yes, you live no. in Ribbington Hall. You're yes, uh, yes, that's correct. Yes, yes. And and where is Ribbington Hall precisely? Uh, basically on the ass of the United Kingdom. The ass of the the ass of the United Kingdom. I see. East Anglia. Yes, East Anglia. We yes. were just talking about healthcare in the United States. I believe was it Clement Attlee right after World War II who made healthcare essentially free to all Britons? Bloody communists, yes. I'm sorry, you, you don't you don't you didn't like Clement Attlee. Oh no, bloody leftism. People should pay 
very little money that they have uh, for any health care. Yes. Yeah, well, uh, people used to muddle by in the dark ages. Yes. Rely on, rely on local inheritance uh, with a, a basic knowledge of uh, the powers of vegetables and uh, curses. We can go back to that. It worked fine back then. Thin herd, someone, you know, the people dying at the age of 25 is fine by me, uh, as long as it's not uh, someone uh, in the higher echelons of society. Well, you're just like out in the open uh, where you stand on these uh, social issues. You, America, you think? Out in the open, yes. Uh, I, I've got a bit of a claustrophobia problem, yes. And too many in the middle of fields, completely alone. Yes. So you think we're doing it right here in the United States? I don't think you're going far enough. I think uh, all people of a certain disposition, i.e., people. I can I can I use the word black? Uh, yeah, you better not. All people of a certain disposition should be grateful for even having left their homeland and the right, 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 right. So now, did you serve? Did you? What kind of service did you provide? Did you? Did you fight in in any wars? You're, you're Charles's age, was, King Charles. I was responsible. One of the most uh, precious jobs in Her Majesty's armed forces. What was, was the ring of messenger pigeons? You 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 did what with the messenger pigeons? I reared them, so to speak, to coin a phrase. Or oh, you what raised you messenger pigeons for the for the British Army. Yes, yes, correct. There's there's always the possibility of technology cocking up on one. So we go back to nature. And I was the uh, sole. Uh, only person in the whole of the armed forces with the requisite skills to uh, train birds uh, in the 1970s. We were still doing it, yes. yes. And did you have a favorite bird? There was one called Norman. He had a sort of uh, a coy, a coy wink over the over the shoulder as he leapt every time to his... Uh, to his journey, and uh, he was he was very good. There was a well. Let me ask you uh, about his name was Norman. What was this? Uh, repeat that, David. I what, didn't what, what was it, what was this pigeon's name? Norman. Yes, Norman. And how do you prepare Norman? And what kind of sauce would you have prepared him? Oh no, 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 no. Uh, the the only suitable uh, pigeon for eating is the uh, is the wood pigeon. Racing pigeons far too grisly. I see. Yes. So you use the these pigeons, the racing pigeons, the messenger pigeons, just for messaging. Yes, that's exactly why they're red, so to speak, to coin a phrase, and not to be too vulgar. So this was before Twitter, right? This was how you would send. Did you ever use? We called it cool. Uh, ah. And was there any did you, any sexting back then? Did you ever put like sexy messages on a? The 
the baggage attached to the leg of uh, this small pigeon uh, can only take on a certain amount of weight. Uh, so uh, depending on the length of the appendage and the ability uh, of the artist to draw said appendage, mm-hmm. uh, uh, really constrained how, how, how large a um, member could be flown uh, in the leg of a, of a pigeon. You're saying an actual uh, member or a, a picture of a member? A picture of a member drawn by a member, yes. Right. And did you ever engage in flirty p- messaging between you and a... And a I think you find the word. Badinage? Using pigeons? Carriers? Yes. yes. And why are they called carrier pigeons? Uh, they basically we kept them in uh, carrier bags. Uh, oh, I see. They're really easy to transport uh, to and from the release point and little brown carrier bags poke a couple of holes in mm-hmm. and uh, they're off for the week. Yeah. And what if, they, what if they don't come back? What do you... Do you you go off, form a search party? What do you do if you send a, a carrier pigeon off and it refuses to return home? We send off another carrier pigeon to look for that carrier pigeon, yes. Ah. And he brings him home. Occasionally, like a wingman mm-hmm. uh, with a shot-up tail, so to speak, to coin a phrase, not to be too vulgar. Right. Which carrier pigeon that you trained ended up do you you have any audie murphy types anybody who became a real hero uh there was the one incident in 1968 Mm -hmm. where the only pigeon to survive being ingested into the jet engine of a hawker hunter fighter (laughs) came out the other end merely coughing and spluttering and uh we he was slightly charred, so uh, we in, instead of making a trophy for him, we just made it out of him. So <laughs> took a rod up his ass and stuck him on a plinth. <laughs> so he was like a kamikaze. He was a tough little bird, yeah. Tough little bird. How are and things... Thankfully, the Hawker Hunter crashed and the, both the pilot and uh, instructor were killed. Hmm. So we're Hello. entering thir- the third week of King Charles's reign... How's he doing? Yeah. You grew up with him. You dated his sister, Princess Anne, I, I believe. Yeah. You shared I saw him, I saw clips of him on TV uh, in some farm or other, looking at cows. And I was I was minded of uh, around about around about this time in 1997 when uh, he and the rest of the royals invited me over uh, for a meal of. Uh, Steak Diane. Steak and Diane. That, 1997, around yeah. this time. I'm trying to remember. That was around the time they had her killed, right? Uh, well, I don't... I don't well, it was, seemed to be odd. The, 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 the meal was... Yes. Like, well, let's just put it like this. Entering the room, uh, everybody was rather quiet. Not really uh, much communication going on. And then, as soon as I started tucking into my steak, Diane, uh, there was lots of stifled laughter, mm-hmm. and squinty-eyed looks and glances. 
And I they, think something fishy was going on, and I'm not talking about the steak. And they didn't like steak, Diane. Uh, they liked watching me eat it, her, it, them. Yes. Mm-hmm. But they... Yes, they like that, yes. But Charles wouldn't touch steak, Diane? No, he's... Uh, uh, no, it was rather non nonplussed at the whole event. Hmm. But, uh, the queen was uh, licking her lips and rubbing her hands with glee. <laughs> Do you miss the queen? I once hit her. Uh, <laughs> uh, quite hard to miss. She wears very snazzy shirts. But do, do, do you do you miss your queen? Do you miss her? It's been I only not even I three weeks, right? I think miss is a strong word, to be fair. You what? She's rather inclusive. I, I, I miss Philip more, to be honest. Uh, she was rather aloof, being uh, the queen and all. And, uh, oh, hold on, hold on, yeah, hold on. Hello, is it? No. No, not this week. No. Thank you. Who, who Who is calling you? I haven't a clue, but uh, it comes down every week saying uh, my barn is on fire. I don't think he's uh, telling the truth. There's his, no smell. His, his van is on fire. Are, are you still having the problem with hunters coming onto your property and hunting for corgis? Uh, yes. Uh, the, the, every now and again, one permits it because... Like I say, a little drop of rain and it, it gets totally out of hand. So every now and again, we uh, we permit the peasants to come onto the land and just devour the corgis. With a, we do a sort of a uh, little festival, a lot of Morris dancing and uh, um, whacking of batons. And uh, yes, and it's, it gets all a bit seedy. Then we deflower a virgin. Hmm. Uh, burn a wooden well, what is what is that? That. That sounds like black shuck. It sounds like what? Black shuck. But what is that? Black shuck is a, a East Anglian mythical mythological dog. Ah. Yes. And he runs around your estate? Uh, he does. And I'm, I'm sorry if I sound a bit off, but uh, that noise usually har harbingers the death in the family. Hmm. Uh, I don't have any family. Yeah, that's not mine. Maybe it's the other lot. I'm sorry? Maybe it's the other lot. Maybe they've got a family death on the way. They've just had one. Well, we've. Are you there? Yes. Oh, okay. But well, what was what was that sound? That was Ned, my uh, batsman, trying to start the tractor up again. <laughs> oh, okay. Yes, been doing it all night. We have been talking with Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling from his estate on Ribbington Manor. Ribbington Hall. I'm sorry, Ribbing Ribbington Hall. Is that correct? Rim Rimmington. 
rimming. All right, problem, as in uh, the anal practice of uh, pleasure. I I don't think I, uh, I I don't think I understand. Well, we the local village. And what what is is named after its favorite pastime? You see, which is a uh, uh, collective rimming. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you rimming, so much. Thank you for joining us, Sir Arthur Grebe Streebling. We'll see you. I, I hope you've uh, gleaned a lot more information on the history of this country in this talk. Uh, yes. I try my best, you know, David. It's, uh, well, now, do we have the quiz master? Yes, sir. Uh, would uh, Sir Arthur be interested in trying to avenge his loss from last week? Oh, that thing, yes. Well, yes, if one must. Okay, it, it's time for the Quizmaster. Please welcome Quizmaster Dan Frankenberger. On September 26, 1969, one of their best albums was released. The record was Al Abbey Road. Oh, I think I know who this quiz. is. Hang on. I think I know who this band is. Don't tell me. So don't, don't give me the name. Hang on. Okay. So give me the setup again. On September 26, 1969, one of their best albums was released. The record was blank. You said Abbey Road. Yes. No, okay. you said it. That's the answer. But I need to oh, know, yeah. you, you want to know who the band is. Yeah, who the band is. Hmm. That's right. The record is Abbey Road. Hmm. Who could that be? Abbey Road. <laughs> hmm. Are you trying to get for bonus points? Is that how you win every week? I don't know. But uh, what's the quiz about? Uh, the quiz is on the Beatles. The Be Sir Arthur Grebe Streebling, are you familiar with the Beatles? I'm more than familiar with the Beatles. In uh, 1968, uh, they came here and... Uh, I, they used one of my bands as a rehearsal space and got me completely off my tits on ketamine. Ketamine? All the way back then? That must have been yes. John who did it, right? Yes, it was a great deal of fun. What was Yoko like? Uh, pleasant enough, but at the time I was so high she resembled a 12-foot ostrich. So. <laughs> Okay, Let, let's put some money, shall we, in the kitty? All right. I'm All ready. right. We have uh, six questions and eight minutes before Howie Klein. Okay. So we'll do uh, question number one. Sir Arthur, you are going to be first. The discography of the Beatles has many song titles containing the word love. Which of these is a correct Beatles title? <laughs> Go ahead. We, we, the power of love. Can't buy me love. Painted love. Or the fanny on that bird. I'm in love in it. <laughs> I think it's me. What was, what was the... Give me the question again. The discography of the Beatles has many song titles containing the word love. Mm -hmm. Which of these is the correct Beatles title? The Power of Love, Can't Buy Me Love, Painted Love, or The Fanny on That Bird, I'm in Love in It? Well, I, I, 
I'm going to go with B, even though they're wrong. I think Sir Arthur Grieb Striebling would agree with me that you can, in fact, buy love. But I'm going to say B. The correct answer is can't buy me love. You are both correct. Mm. Have you noticed the sound effects are better tonight? Better, wonderful. Okay. Question number two, David, you're first. Which song? Why do you like with? this music in the background? This little. Yeah, it's great. I just didn't know if I should wait for it or not. No, no, it's just um, like. I'm sorry. What? The fax machine. Printing. <laughs> okay. Which song starts with, I think I'm going to be sad. I think it's today. Yeah. The girl that's driving me mad is going away. Is it three cool cats? Ticket to ride? Imagine. Or yes, turd day. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go. I'm going to guess on this. And what? I'm going to guess just a while. Ticket to ride. <laughs> Sir Striebling. The, the final guess is B. B, 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 B. You are both correct. Look at the rest. This is getting to be very professional. <laughs> so we started with some easy ones. So here's question number three. Sir Arthur, you are first. The Beatles gave their last live concert performance on August 29th, 1966. What city did this monumental event occur? Was it Atlanta, Georgia? San Francisco, California? Little Rock, Arkansas? Or Sayonara, Japan? San Fran! What are the choices? What are the choices again? Atlanta, Georgia. San Francisco, California. Little Rock, Arkansas, or Sayonara, Japan. Their last concert. San Their last live concert, yep. Would be at Candlestick Park, I believe, San Francisco. <laughs> correct answer is B. You are both correct again. <laughs> our, our judge. Our judge. Sorry. Our, don't make our judge laugh. He, go ahead. <laughs> David, you are first. Question okay. number four. There was a, a medley of two songs on the UK release of Beatles for Sale. The song medley, Kansas City, Hey, 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 was the last song on side one of the album. The Kansas City portion of the medley was written by songwriting team of Lieber and Stoller. Which prolific artist was responsible for the Hey, 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 Hey part of the song? Fat Albert, Bill Cosby. Hey, was it hey, little, hey, Was it Little Richard? Elvis Presley? Jerry Lee Lewis? Or Fat Albert? Motherfucker. <laughs> it was, I'm going to say Little Richard. Sir Arthur? Um, yeah. You're saying A? Yes. Little Richard is correct. <laughs> I didn't think about that for 10 minutes. You got it in a half a second. What? Fat Albert. Hey, hey, hey. 
Question number five. Sir Arthur Grebe Streebling, you are first. We're Which tied, song? I believe. I think we're tied. That is correct. Which song from Abbey Road did not appear on the original album jacket as the band had no intention of releasing the tune? Was it Her Majesty? Golden Slumbers? Mean Mr. Mustard? Or Missed the Cut? Golden Slumbers, mate. You say Golden Slumbers? Why well, yeah, I'm on. Okay, David? I'm going to say Golden Slumbers. The correct answer is Her Majesty. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Question number six, David. We're Last question. We're tied here. The UK release of Help had the song Yesterday included as the sixth song on side two of the album. One of the most perfect songs ever written. The working title of the song was somewhat less than perfect. Oh, I, I, I oh, okay. What yeah. was this culinary title? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't just, I, 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 I have to give you, give them Okay. Two. Was it Sausage Links? No. Scrambled Eggs? Maybe. Bacon Strips? Nope. Or beans, shrooms, and tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, scrambled eggs. Sir Arthur. I concur. The correct answer is scrambled eggs. That was the final question, David. Tally up the points. We're tied. We're tied, sir. This is... Why is there other crying so much, then? You'll you'll have to come back uh, on Thursday to play once again. It's not a good sound effect, that one, dude. What? That's an awful sound effect. It's not a sound... It's not a sound effect. (laughs) (laughs) What is it? We could barely hear you through the tissues. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Sir Arthur Grebe Streebling. And thank you. Uh, thank you to. Hey, David. Thank Goodbye. you to. Uh, the quiz master. The quiz master. It's going to work today. It's going to work. I feel it. Mm-hmm. There, it's working. Howie Klein joins us from Los Angeles. Hello, Howie. Hey, David. It's working. My my phone is working today, so we can talk like regular human beings. Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack, which raises money for progressive candidates all around this great country of ours. And he also writes down with tyranny. We talked yesterday about candidates. Uh, who should we be? We've got like, what, is it 40 days away, 42 days away before the midterms? Who should? Something like that. Yeah. It's, um, you know, first week in November and we're almost at the first week in October now. And and who should my can't my my audience, who should they be donating to? Well, that depends on on what they're trying to accomplish. If they're trying to get more progressives uh, in office, 
Uh, that's one thing. If they're trying to get, uh, you know, just make everything, you know, more democratic, more blue, regardless of who the candidate is, that's another thing. In terms of Blue America, where we're most interested in uh, the, the Democratic Party being more progressive. And, um, you know, but on the other hand, uh, some of our um, goals are the same as the goals of the people who just want to defeat Republicans. Right. Uh, so there's, in other words, there'll be a Democrat like, you know, that we support, like, say, uh, uh, Angelica Duenas here in L.A., She's in the general election, but she she and she's a Democrat, but it's a Democrat versus Democrat situation. And her opponent, uh, Tony Cardenas, is is also a Democrat, but he's very corrupt. He um, there's an there's a great movie coming out uh, at any time, which shows I mean, this is a known thing what I'm going to tell you now, but it hasn't been presented uh, effectively, and now it's about to be presented effectively, uh, he raped a 16-year-old girl. So Democrats love talking about, you know, uh, uh, Matt Gates uh, being a, a pervert uh, for doing something like that with a, uh, a 17-year-old girl. Well, this guy did it with, with a 16-year-old girl, and the story is much worse than Gates's story, and Pelosi made sure he'd get away with it. Uh, so anyway, uh, and, and he's just a corrupt... Uh, status quo careerist democrat so angelica duenas is running against him and she's someone who i feel really good about on the other hand another california race uh, so these are two a, just so people understand these are two democrats yes they are there are but Jungle. there are also districts there are also districts where it's a democrat versus a republican and in fact there's one in mostly in san bernardino county where uh, Jay Obernolte, a Trump kind of Republican who's, uh, you know, just a complete puppet puppet to uh, Kevin McCarthy, he's running for re-election, and there's a uh, a really good progressive um, Democrat running uh, running against him. So he, so in other words, the two of them came in um, uh, first and second in the in the primary. And now they uh, now they'll um, face each other. In, in the general election in November. I see. So that, so that's, uh, so that, so in other words, this, that's a, that, that's a case of, um, that's a case of, um, if you just want to, if you just want to see Congress uh, go blue, you can vote for him. And by accident, you're also supporting a progressive. Uh, and he, he's someone, in fact, who I was thinking would be really good to bring on the show. Whoever you He's want. With, yeah, so that his name is Derek Marshall. I don't think we've had him before, right? No. Yeah, so Derek is great. He's he's a really uh, interesting and very, very smart uh, candidate. And and I'll ask him if he wants to come on next week. I, I, I mean, I don't know if he'll have time or not, but I can ask him. Okay. You know who else I'd, I'd love to get to come on? And I don't, I don't know if it's going to be possible, but uh, Adam Schiff would be really, really interesting uh, person to get on too. Adam is running around the country now campaigning for Democrats, uh, trying to get uh, get more Democrats elected. He's Other than Pelosi, he's raised more money than any other Democrat in, in the House. And, and he's, using, and he's, he's using that money to try to help uh, Democrats get elected. Yes, he's my congressperson. Uh, and we didn't always get along. I mean, when he was a state senator, uh, we were kind of friendly. I didn't really 
realized that he was a little bit more conservative than I like. And then once he got into Congress, um, I wasn't I wasn't thrilled with, with with how he got started. But he's gradually gotten more and more progressive. He he had joined the Blue Dogs when he when he entered Congress. He quit the Blue Dogs, and he's now he thinks of himself as as a progressive now, and uh, and and votes votes for all of the uh, the big progressive projects. He's in favor of things like Medicare for all, for example. Right. But uh, you know he's you know the rumors are that he's running for speaker, and because of that, I might be able to get him to come on the show. Good. And, you know, everyone knows who Adam, Adam Schiff is, of course, because of uh, his role in the first impeachment and, uh, you know, and because he's the head of the, um, the the intelligence committee. Right. So he's very, very well known. Dev, he's got Devin. Anyway, Nunes, he's got Devin Nunes his old job. That's right. Devin, he when once the Democrats ousted the Republicans. Uh, Adam, who had been the ranking Democrat on the committee, took took over as the chairman, and Nunez eventually wound up quitting Congress and going to work for Trump's uh, fake Twitter. Truth Social. Let me give you some matchups that I've been told are the key races to watch, and you tell me if they're important or not. This is what I've been told. Are are, they, are we talking about the House or the Senate now? Both. Uh, Elaine, okay. Elaine Luria, Congresswoman Democrat from Virginia, is going up. Yeah, again. so that that's a that that's a very important race, but it's a problem because the Republicans uh, in the state legislature targeted that one to to be a Republican district. So it, it's going to be it's almost impossible for Elaine Luria to win that seat. Really, she's not a very good. Well, she, yes, really, she's not a very good member of Congress to begin with. She's a she's a conservative New Dem. The Democratic Party is rallying around her, but she's really not very good. Is she better than the Republican she's running against? Sure, she is. But she, she. I mean, for example, if you're interested in the Green New Deal, if you're interested in Medicare for all, uh, those kind of issues, you you don't want her. She isn't any good. Okay. In some ways, you 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 know. But but on the other hand, it's a very important race, and the Democratic Party is making a point of trying to. Uh, you know, get people to donate to her race. I think it's a waste of time. I don't think she has really much of a chance to win just because of the way that the, risk, the district has been drawn and the partisan advantage is so strongly uh, in the favor of Republicans. Yeah. Uh, Josh Shapiro running against Mastriano for governor of Pennsylvania. Is jo- yeah, that, that, that's, not, uh, that's not a very important uh, race for us to think about either, just because Mastriano has basically no chance to win. I mean, none. Good. Uh, Josh, who's a moderate Democrat, he's not, he's not as bad as Luria, but he, he's, not, he's not great. But he's, he's okay. Uh, he's, you know, he, I think, I don't know, I don't remember the exact figures, but something like he has like $13 million to spend between now and November. And uh, uh, Mastriano has like, you know, $135 to spend. I mean, right. the, the difference between the two are, are just, I mean, he, he, a group that tried to help Mastriano, a, a kind of a fascist group, ran, uh, I think it was like, I, I wrote about this today. I think they ran 800 ads for Mastriano, and that's the only Mastriano TV stuff that's been on at all. And uh, Josh Shapiro ran 23,000 ads. I mean, just think of the difference between twenty three thousand and eight hundred. Yeah. So, 
and all of the polling shows that uh, Shapiro is ahead of him by double digits. Good. That's so. Good. Again, you know, you, you do you really want to throw money into something that doesn't really need it? I mean, Shapiro has so much money, and Mastriano was such a mess. I mean, he's he he was a state senator, people, so he's got a record. He's a fascist. He was part of the insurrection. He was in Washington that day. He has said that he will ban uh, abortion with and have no uh, no exceptions under any circumstance. It's just going to be illegal. And, he, and, you know, he'll make it much – he has said he'll make it much harder for people to vote. He's really bad, really, really bad. The worst. But – I think I think we're okay in, in that in that race. There are there are other races that really need the help. Well, let me let me let, let me let, let me go, let me go through the uh, sure. Mandela Barnes in Minnesota versus Republican Ron Wisconsin. Johnson. Did I say Minnesota? Wisconsin. I meant Wisconsin. Sorry. Yeah. So uh, so Ron Johnson is as bad as they come. Uh, he married into a rich family, and you know claims he worked his way up from nothing i guess you know marrying that girl he considers work but uh <laughs> you know he's got it he's got her family's business and he's very rich he's, he's also uh you know bef even before it became fashionable to call these extreme right-wing republicans fascists he was already a fascist right so he's he's real bad yeah, some say he's the worst senator uh, he certainly is is one of the worst. If he's whether he's the worst or Tuberville from Alabama is the worst or Ted Cruz is the worst, you know it, it, it's it's he's in the top three worst. Right. And uh, and Mandela Barnes is the lieutenant governor of the state, and he's okay. Um, you know he, he's not exactly a profiling courage. I, I wouldn't I won't expect much from him, but he's not going to be bad. Uh, and and he knows the difference between right and wrong, and hopefully he'll. He'll go for that. He, he How's it looking a, for not, him? He's not a courageous. It's very, very much a 50-50 race. Okay. Uh, Polling has been good, good for him lately, but uh, it doesn't matter because in each of uh, Johnson's two previous uh, elections, polling was very bad for him as well, and he won both of them. So I wouldn't bet against Johnson. Uh, and Mandela, Mandela Barnes is, is an African-American and they've got a whole whispering campaign going against him. And, you know, you know, he likes white women, that kind of thing. Right. So you never know, you know, in a state like that, it's, it's going to really come down to turnout. If the Democrats uh, turn out because they're afraid of, uh, of what the Republicans will do against a democracy and against abortion, then Mandela will win. But it's going to be real tough. Right. Real tough. Val Demings versus Marco Rubio. I don't think you're a fan of Congresswoman Democrat Val Demings, correct? Well, I'm also not a fan even more of Marco Rubio. Right. So, you know, I mean, they're both, they're, neither of them is very good. She's, you know, she's really nothing uh, at all. She's just nothing. She's just there. And uh, and Rubio is worse than nothing. So, you know, I feel sorry for Flor Floridians that they're stuck with this uh, really bad choice, but that just, that's, some people say they deserve it for being um, lazy. She doesn't have a chance, though, against Rubio. This is, I, and I've... She does. She does. It's a very slight chance, but it's a chance. Uh, it, you know, everything, you know, all the conventional wisdom is, is that he's got it, but she's raised an immense amount of money. She's all over the, um, all over TV with her ads. And, you know, Florida has been trending red in the last eight years. And uh, uh, they have a very, very popular governor, Rhonda uh, Santos. 
and who will probably bring out a lot of voters. So, you know, if, if you want to bet, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bet on her unless you want to lose your money, but you can't say she has no chance. She has some chance. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a close state. I mean, there are a lot of Democrats in that state too. But who's going to bring out the vote? It seems to me that Ron DeSantis is going to bring out Republicans. There's really nobody on the democratic side who's going to bring out the Democrats, Charlie, Chris, are people no 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 for governor, he's Charlie for, Chris, yeah. yeah Charlie Chris doesn't expect to win uh, he told a friend of mine that he uh, would like to run for the Senate two years from now against Rick Scott and that's why he's making you know making all this fuss now he doesn't expect to win the governorship and yeah, fe- the, you know I, I don't know I mean what would bring out Democrats in Florida now would be you know we're the lesser evil and uh, the uh, Republicans are going to hurt abortion and the Republicans are going to hurt democracy. And and that's all the Democrats have. They, you know, Chris doesn't have anything to offer. Demings doesn't have anything to offer. They're both, frankly, really bad candidates, really bad. But they're running against worse candidates. The Republicans are worse. Right. Right. Let's turn to. Yes, let's keep doing this. Yeah. This is uh, fun. Fetterman versus Oz. <laughs> John Fetterman. Ah. Yes, uh, he's the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania, and Dr. Oz is, you know, a TV character, and uh, Fetterman is way ahead, um, and I think he's going to win. He 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 may not win by the large margin that he's leading in the polls by, but he but he but I think he's got this thing. Uh, Fetterman is not a is is a is okay. He's 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 better than. Uh, let me think. Is he be- he's better than I think anyone else we've talked about so far. Right. But, you know, I don't know that he's my my ideal candidate, but he's good. You know, he, he certainly is. is what, help what are with your global warming? Yeah. Help with, uh, he's going to help with uh, Medicaid for all Medicare for all. He, he's you know, he's good. He's definitely worth voting for. And you can uh, also worth donating to. He, he's 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 pretty good. And how will he hold up in the debate? I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen him speaking since he had his stroke. So so you don't know. And uh, Oz, although he doesn't know much, he's a very slick talker. So I would expect that Oz knows how to knows how to do a good debate. And as far as Fetterman goes, like I said, he, he just he just had a very serious stroke and he's he's recovering from it. But uh, I, I don't know. I, I can't say what he's going to be, what it would be like in the vote. I don't think the debate. The, I he, don't I, I think people uh aren't worried about his brain. They're worried about his heart. A United States senator has to vote properly. Uh, if he's mm-hmm. got a little slurred speech for a while, who cares? His heart is in there. Yeah, well, I, I agree. Okay. Another debate that I'm going to hate watch is Herschel Walker versus Senator <laughs> Raphael Warnock. Right. So uh, Warnock is a, is, a, is a pretty good senator. He's Play, I mean, I know that he's more progressive than his voting record would indicate, but he's playing it careful. He's not he hasn't done anything really bad, but he's playing it careful because he's afraid, you know, in Georgia he could lose. Uh, he's only been in there for for two years. And so because it was a special election and this is going to be his first six year term if he wins it. But the other guy is <laughs> just a joke. I mean, I literally think that Trump. Uh, put him in as a candidate to play a joke on the on the voters of Georgia. I think Trump thinks he's he's a riot. I mean, he he can't speak. 
he, the debate is going to be hilarious. He's already like trying to lower expectations by saying that he's ignorant. <laughs> I mean, right. he's literally talking about himself as ignorant. Right. And, right. Uh, you know, it should, it should be funny. Right. When is it? Uh, it's in, Oct I think, like the first or second week of October. I'm you got to watch that, too. Yeah, I think that's going to be uh, fun to watch. But, uh, you know, I remember watching Sarah Palin debating Joe Biden. And I remember thinking, this is a train wreck, but nobody realizes it's a train wreck. You know, like, right. like I know this is a train wreck, but most, you know, people who are voting for John McCain think she's doing just fine. So, uh, but on the, on the other hand, that's not the same thing with, uh, Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker, you know, doesn't have a good grasp of the English language. He tries to blame it on football injuries uh, to his brain, but he, you know, he, he can't string a sentence together. He can't, he can't. He's going to be really funny to watch. <laughs> yeah, let's. Yeah, I hate well, to say it, but yeah, I mean, it's not. It's not like Sarah Palin. It's. It's. It, you know, like you said, people who like uh, Republicans thought she did fine. No one's going to think he does. Fine. Now, now, is she? She's running. She lost the special election, but she's running in November. What are her chances in November? Well, uh, the polling that I've seen so far, the, uh, um, there was a really good poll that came out of an Anchorage firm, showed that she, her excuse for losing is going away. She uses the excuse that it was um, ranked choice voting and no one understood it, and that's why she lost. And the new polling shows she's gonna, there's not going to be any ranked choice voting because she's going to lose right out, outright. And uh, Mary Peltola, who is now the, the congresswoman, is going to win uh, a full term. OK, so, you know, I mean, I but that's what that's what I saw in, in this poll that just came out. You know, you have to look at like an average of polls over a period of time to really get a better idea. But but I would uh, say that uh, whether Peltola uh, wins on the first round or it's going to take the ranked choice voting, I, I feel that she's going to win. I, I think Alaskans are through with uh, Sarah Palin and the embarrassment. They just wanted to go away and let her go back to Arizona or wherever. Yeah. Uh, Paul Laxalt's son is running against Senator Matzo. Senator Mat Mat Matzo is the Democrat. Laxalt is the Republican. These are right. These are all the race for Senate is always close. Even Harry Reid, who mm -hmm. he was, it was a squeaker for him usually. Yeah, uh, that, that's the, that's the way uh, Nevada is. It's it's a it's a close state. And it's, uh, you know, there are two places where Democrats live. One is Reno and the other is Las Vegas. And, the, you know, and then the suburb, suburbs of Las Vegas are problematic. And and then there's a lot of desert and small towns. So, yeah, it's always close. You know, the, the uh, voter registration is, is pretty close. And neither Democrats nor Republicans can win on their own. It's all up to independents and who they break for. Uh, so, you know, it, it, so I'm saying it's going to be very close, but I think that Masto is going to win it. Uh, she's, she's running, she isn't very good, but she's running a good campaign. Uh, she's not terrible, but she's not, she's not good on any level, but, uh, you know, she's kind of a garden variety Democrat, uh, you know, a little on the lower end of that than the higher end. He's absolutely awful, but she, she, she must have 
someone who's brilliant in her her office because she keeps putting out these really incredibly good ads, uh, um, just tearing him apart, and very very effective cam- a campaign. I I, I think uh, you know the polling I've seen all shows her her ahead, but it's always by one or two points. Great. So again, it's going to come down to who is going to get their voters out. Blake Masters. Is Before the, we go, uh, yep. go on to Arizona, let me just say one other thing about um, about Nevada, which is the the Nevada Democratic Party is now a Bernie party. They actually took over the party. So, you know, I can't imagine that they like her. And it's going to be interesting to see how hard they work to get the vote out for her. My guess is that they're going to work very hard. Yeah, I agree that. with you. And show, I, and, yeah. Uh, they want. They're going to want to show that they that they that they're willing to do it, even for a crappy Democrat. I, that's my guess. We'll we'll see. That would be honoring Bernie's wishes. Yes. Right. When did they become? When were they taken over by the Bernie people? Uh, a couple of years ago. You know, they had a vote and and they wound up winning. the The establishment, you know, stole all the money in the uh, treasury and tried to do everything they could to. Uh, Chairs uh, to, were th- weren't chairs thrown? No, the chairs the chairs being thrown that was during the Hillary uh, the Hil- the Hillary Bernie contest that was that was way before that. Okay, so Blake Masters, the worst candidate running. In, in, I, I don't know if he's if he's he's one of the worst. I don't I don't know. I mean, you're talking about in the Senate only, right? Yeah, Kelly in Arizona, the Democrat incumbent. Uh, Astronaut Kelly, the astronaut uh, Mark Kelly, right. So he he's not very good. He's you know he's a conservative Democrat, and uh, and Masters is is you know he's a full blown fascist, and uh, so you know what are you going to do? I mean he's, you're not talking about a mainstream Republican. So what difference does it make? This is he's much worse than that. He's really 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 insane. But can you say he's the worst? Well, he's one of the worst because, right. you know, you got New Hampshire where you've got this guy, Don Baldock, who's also a full-blown fascist. Right. Uh, so who knows? You know, that you know, they're, they're both trying to cover up for their uh, previous statements that, you know, where they've said, you know, pretty crazy things. Uh, but they're both terrible. And I think they're both going to lose. They're both, they're both way behind in the polling. The Republican Party as a whole has given up on masters. They, uh, um McConnell's super PAC had scheduled uh, $9.6 million uh, worth of ads and they pulled them. So he's, you know, there, he, this, I don't know if this is true or not. And I, I literally don't know it's true, but there is a rumor that when he was much younger, he and uh, Peter Thiel or Thiel, I don't know how you pronounce his name, were lovers. Hmm. So Thiel's a billionaire. It's a billionaire. And he bought him the nomination he spent $10 million on the race, and no one knows how much he gave Trump, but he did give Trump a, a significant amount of money for Trump to endorse Blake Masters. There were some uh, mainstream candidates, mainstream Republican candidates running as well, who would be who would be doing much better. But because of Trump and Teal, uh, the Republicans are stuck with, uh, with Blake Masters now, who's, who's never run for anything and doesn't know what he's doing and and hasn't raised any money. I mean, very insignificant amount of money. It's all up to up to Teal. So now they're saying that if Teal really wants this to happen, wants his old boyfriend in, in the Senate, he's going to have to pony up another $60 million wow. over the next month. $60 million. Catch wow. up with uh, Mark. 
Okay, that's rough. Uh, Murkowski versus Shubaka. Shubaka. <laughs> yeah, that's that's an inter- interesting race. I mean, one of the reasons why Alaska uh, implemented ranked choice voting was because Murkowski's machine saw this coming, and they realized that she was going to be unable to win a Republican, uh, you know, a straight up Republican primary. And they they they're the ones that really got ranked choice voting passed there. It was a, really a, an effort by her machine, and it, it looks like Chewbacca uh, is 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 running behind. When, when you know when you count in the ranked choice part, uh, it looks like you know, Chewbacca will lose. And is and it Christ pronounced? Will win. Is it pronounced Chewbacca? I, I think so. I don't know. <laughs> no, probably not. That'd that be, should be, that'd be too good to be true. That's, that should be Chris Christie's last name. So, <laughs> but uh, the th- the thing is, is that the Democrats are are, are not uh, they're not running a candidate against her. I mean, there's there's no serious effort uh, for a Democrat to uh, to become the senator, and they're just hoping that Murkowski wins again. You know, Murkowski should give up on the Republicans already. I guess she she feels she can't, but if. Um, uh, Mary uh, Peltola wins again and Murkowski wins again, I think that Murkowski is going to become a little bit more of an independent. And she's already more independent than, than almost any other Republican, but I think she'll become even more independent than that next time. I would never vote for her myself, but uh, she's certainly better than uh, Chewbacca, who's just, you know, a, a Trump sociopath. Right. Uh, two more to go. Whitmer versus. How Dick. come we're, we're, we're not going to any house races? I, I have my big to... question coming up after this. Gretchen oh, okay. Whitmer versus Tudor Dixon. Well, that, that, that's just a joke. That that's not a real. That's not real. Tudor Tudor uh, is going to be lucky if she winds up with forty percent of the vote. Right. I mean, it, it, this is this is a joke race. Okay. Uh, yeah. Another one. You know what happened there was that the, there were three establishment candidates running, or any of whom could have given Whitmer a run for her money. And they all turned in uh, bad, prime, bad uh, nominating petitions that were filled with like fake uh, uh, signatures. So they all got thrown off the ballot. And then Tudor wound up on the ballot. And, you know, she, and she's crazy. She's literally talking nuts. All right. My favorite candidate, he's running against... Democrat Marcy Captor, J.R. Majewski. Uh, yes. J.R. So he's, he, he, J.R. is fantastic. <laughs> he's, uh, he, he, you know, can it, you raise so, money? Can the, does the Blue America have a special fund just for shits and giggles? No. Oh, okay. Uh, we don't. Uh, I write about shits and giggles, <laughs> but we, we don't raise money for shits and giggles. So uh, what happened was, uh, the the Republican legislature decided to get rid of Marcy Kaptur. So they took a D plus 16 partisan lean district. So that you can imagine how blue that is. Like you, you can't even make a, a case in a district like that. So they went from D plus 16 to R plus 14. Think about that. R plus 14. So a Democrat can't really make a case in a state like in a, in a district like that. It's almost impossible. So what happened was a state senator and a state rep immediately jumped into the race because they knew that you know they would if they won the primary they would they would become a congressman for life basically 
And uh, what happened is Majewski jumped in the race, too, as a complete. I mean, he was he was a DJ who played Trump songs at house parties. We're talking about a crazy person. Yes. Who who based his whole campaign on the fact that he had been fighting, uh, you know, bloody wars in Afghanistan, a place that he had never set foot in. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Insane person. Just crazy. I mean, saying the craziest things. I mean, I'm sure that's why he's your favorite. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he did a big Trump uh, sign on his front lawn and just just did everything to make himself into a clown. And what happened was, is the two mainstream Republicans, both very conservative, but the two mainstream Republicans split the vote and he got in with 35 (laughs) percent. He won the primary with 35 percent. Now the Republicans are stuck with this guy. He lied to the Republican Party. So they've been advertising him as a uh, you know a veteran of Afghanistan, then it comes out that the Air Force says, no, he's never been in <laughs> Afghanistan. And they, they expose him as a liar. Then the Republican Party is freaked out, and they had scheduled a million dollars worth of ads for, for the next month for him, and they just pulled all the ads. And uh, you know they seem to be willing to give away a sure thing district, uh, I, presumably because they figure, well, let Capta win another term, and then we'll get take her out uh, in 2024. I'm it, sure that's what they think. Isn't J.R. Majewski <laughs> the logical extension of what's left of the Republican Party? That this is what you're going to end up with, <laughs> right? Well, they don't like to th- they don't like to think of it that way. But yes, I agree. There's no he's, place. He's as, he's as bad as it comes. There's no place else to go. You, the, 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 you have to run more J.R. Majewski's because <laughs> nobody in their right mind would run as a Republican. Which, well, I, I think what the Republican establishment is hoping is that um, there'll be, you know, a lot of these uh, crackpots will lose. And then, uh, you know, they'll they'll have a clean a cleaning of the house and. They'll be, you know, they'll take take back the party. I don't believe that's going to happen. I, I think they're wrong. Right. I think that you're right. And there'll be lots and lots of J.R. Majewski's in our future. David Cobb is about to join us. But remember, this is, this is a very, very uh, red district. You, you don't really need uh, moderate Republicans and conservative Democrats and swing voters. You don't need that. You can win with Republicans alone in this district. So it is possible that Majewski is going to win this thing. It's, I don't, I don't, at this point, I wouldn't bet on it, but it is possible. Hey, David Cobb. See, imagine him in Congress. That would be hilarious. David Cobb is chomping at the bit to ask you a question. I do. And Howie, I, 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 I jumped on a hearing the very last of it. And I want to put, like, I completely agree with your assessment about this particular race. But what I'm noticing and fills me with terror is how the normalization of what we used to think was just absolutely crazy ends up happening in these kinds of races. And I really worry about that because, you know, I'm old enough to have, uh, I would have thought that somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene or or Getz would have been impossible. And here they are now standard bearers and leaders of the Republican Party. Yep. Let let, Let me play you a clip. And then we'll I'll get Howie's reaction. He wrote over Down With Tyranny about the new prime minister of Italy who got 24 percent of the vote. He, he wrote over Down With Tyranny that it's very reminiscent 
of what happened in France, where if the liberals, the left could get their shit together, uh, Maloney wouldn't have done so well. But nevertheless, she got 24 percent of the vote. She is a fascist. The Brothers of Italy can trace their roots all the way back to Mussolini, who became prime minister a hundred years ago this year. And this is Steve Scalise with Maria Bartiroma yesterday talking about Mo uh, Roma. Yeah, here. Your thoughts on what's going on in Italy. You also have center-right winning in uh, Britain as well with Prime Minister Truss. You saw it with Truss in Britain. Now Maloney, hopefully, in Italy, where, where the voters, the people in these communities are getting crushed. Low-income families, because of the high costs, are rising up against their far-left socialist governments. And I think you're going to see that in America as well. But it's interesting to see that, that Europe is leading the way by throwing out socialists with conservatives and great, bold conservative women like both Maloney and Truss. I think it's exciting to see it in Europe. We need to bring <laughs> that kind of conservatism back to the United States to stand up against what the big government socialists have done to ruin our economy and raise costs for middle-class families. I think yeah, that's going to happen and, November 8th. And Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden called it extreme. Yeah. How are so, you? So first, first of all, yes. First of all, uh, Italy didn't have a socialist government. It had a center-right government, and Maloney's party was part of that government, or, or, or at least her... her um, wow. Her, her, her coalition wow. was part of that government. I didn't know that. That's and, great. And, and then the other thing to know is that a poll came out today in England, which shows the Labour Party is stronger now than it's been in two decades. It's like it, the, if the election would be held today, the, um, the, the the Labour Party would win in a landslide, a landslide. So and I don't I don't know that Scalise is a, is a terribly, uh, you know, brilliant person to turn to when it comes to European politics. I don't know that he knows that much about it. And I, I definitely don't think he, he has a, a real grasp on uh, on what Maloney is all about. And even and, and even what trust is all about. But remember, trust came in not displacing a socialist, but displacing Boris Johnson. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you know, what is Scalise talking about? doesn't matter because it's on Fox. Right. So you don't think that was Scalise embracing fascism? Yes. It w well, yes, I do think it was. I mean, if he uh, if he yeah, and he said he called he called Maloney great uh, and said that we, we need women like that in the Republican Party. And they do have women like that <laughs> in, the in the Republican Party. They, they have uh, Marjorie Trader Greene. They have Lauren Boebert. I mean, they have um, uh, Mary Miller. I mean, they, they are like that. Those, those, those congresswomen are very much like Maloney. Right, right. Fantastic. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name. I'm pronouncing her name the way you did. I don't know if that's the right pronunciation. We don't pronounce properly on this show. Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America Pack. Everybody go to the Blue America Pack and discover the candidates that Howie and his crew have endorsed and give them money. Uh, Two-thirds of Americans say this is the most important midterms of their lifetime. It's, Can you name a midterm that wasn't, that they didn't say that about? Uh, yeah, but, we, yeah, that's true. No, Howie, listen, they say pundits and, and party operatives say that every year. Voters are saying yep. it this year. They're saying something. Yeah, well, that means that the media has done its job well. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
Howie Clark, read Howie every day at Down With Journey. And that was great about Italy's government, but what you said. I really appreciate that. That, that was. Oh, wait, before you go, are, are y'all signal boosting Angelica Duenas in Los Angeles? Yeah, we talked about her uh, earlier in the show. Great. So we're you very should, much. Uh, we're, Beldo, we're you should, money you should her. have her on. Her. Uh, like she's the real yes, deal. Yes, we, we, yes, we will. Good, good idea. Let's have. We'll have, next week we have someone else, and then the week after we'll have Angelica. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Howie Klein. Howie, make sure that you let Hen- Angelica uh, know that that I actually promoted her on the Feldman Show too. Okay. We love you, Howie. Thank you. <laughs> Thank. You. Talk to you next week. Okay. Oh, whoa, whoa, Howie, Howie, Howie. Oh, shoot. I had one more question. I didn't get to ask him. You know what? I'm going to call him back. I, it's important. This will be. It's, ask, do it. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you call, you I, and I'm going to say, howdy, folks. This is David Cobb. Uh, Feldo always introduces me as the Green Party nominee oh, for hey, 2004, hey. which is true enough. Uh, but I'm also the... Uh, is he, is he? Howie? Hello. I yes. do, I, I'm sorry, David. Cop. Did you bring up Graceland last night at dinner? I did. And he didn't. Um, he, he was there, but he didn't produce it in any way, shape or form. And I asked him if he'd like to come on the show and talk about it. And he said no. Oh, and but he didn't make the documentary. No, he didn't. He was there when it was being filmed, but he didn't have anything to do with making it. Oh, OK. Thank you. All right. OK. Bye bye. Uh, there, there, I thought we were going to have great news, but <laughs> didn't how we had one of those dinners last night. And I thought, oh, this it's time for me to be pushy again. But it, 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 <laughs> it didn't happen. David Cop. So I introduce you. Sorry for that. I always introduce you as a. Uh, a Green Party presidential yeah. uh, candidate, which which I, I was. Uh but I also am the advancement manager for the Weot Tribes Dishkama Community Land Trust, uh, helping to facilitate land back and building affordable housing in perpetuity and doing truly regenerative economic development projects. And I'm the co-coordinator of the U.S. Solidarity Economy Network. So I, I, like, I'm a Green Party member, uh, but I also work with progressive Democrats all the time. So I really want to sort of navigate that. And Feldo, you should know that there are plenty of Greens who hate me because I work with progressive Democrats all the time. There are plenty of Democrats who hate me because I refuse to join the Democratic Party. So like you, Feldo, I have been I have been able to piss off a large swath of people. Right. Uh, so I sort of stake that out. I think that's an important. Well, point you piss them off for the right reasons. Well, thank you for that. And hey, before we go any further, I want to say Happy New Year. Thank you. Thank you. So hang on. I have my hang on. uh, Here we go. (laughs) 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 It's Happy New Year. This isn't the big this is somewhat serious, but next week is where it gets really uh, we do the soul searching. But uh, thank right. you for but, that. But, but, but I, I do have it right, do I not? That today oh, yeah. Is the, yeah. The, the, yeah. yeah. Uh, but so, it's, it's you know, not the big, uh, Yom Kippur it, right. is the big one. That's where you, you know, apologize for everything. <laughs> so 
Last time we were talking about fascism on the rise. What is your biggest fear going into the midterms right now? Listen, my biggest fear is that uh, absolute fascists uh, are taking control of the federal government uh, and that the neoliberal Democratic Party leadership uh, have either no understanding about what that really means and or no idea about what to do in response to it. Uh, that's my biggest fear, Feldo, uh, that, uh, that fascism, actual fascism, is on the rise globally, right? Uh, and, uh, uh, and that what we're seeing is the neoliberals uh, not knowing either understanding what's happening or having any any plan to do it. And uh, I, I uh, yeah, so that's my biggest fear. Uh, hey, Dr. Fraud, you, you came on. Dr. Harriet Fraud joint. Let me unmute you. Let me unmute you. Uh, I, I, Dr. Harriet Fraud joins us. She is the host of Capitalism Hits Home, and it's not just in your head. We'll talk about who she hosts that show with later on. Go, go ahead, Dr. Harriet Fraud. Well, I just wanted to say that fascism is not new to the United States. I'm reading Adam Hochschild's new book about the enormous fascist resurgence around World War I. And, you know, there was the same thing around World War II, where Father Coughlin led the fascists and, you know, people like the Bushes sent a lot of um, pharmaceuticals to the fascists and the Hearst newspaper people supported fascism in Germany and by extension here. And there was a fascist movement here. So it wouldn't be unprecedented. And it is something to watch out for. What we played a clip, you might have missed it. There's, I did. there's an interview, Steve Scalise, the House Republican whip, Republican whip, celebrating Maloney's win in Italy. And it's like, well, the mask is off. They're just outright celebrating fascism in the Republican Party. Are we at a point now where, like, are we three months away from calling somebody a fascist is no longer an insult? Well, in some quarters, I'm sure that's already the case. Go to 4chan or 8chan uh, and you'll see that that is, in fact, already the case. Uh, and But also remember that uh, Fox News and the right wing love to say that we are the fascists, right? So the, it, it, it is a confused uh uh, uh, moment. But Dr. Fraud's point is really important. Remember, the American Bund uh, literally sold out Madison Square Gardens, right? Mm -hmm. And what you had was a huge banner from the very top of the rafters uh, all the way down to the floor of George Washington framed by Nazi swastikas, right? Like, so, so, uh, the, the, to Which me. Which is unfair because Hitler never owned slaves. So. Well, they did. All those Jews were but slaves. They, but no, they didn't belong to Hitler. They couldn't be sold. No, they weren't. They, they were, were property of the German state. Right. Give Feldo. Feldo couldn't resist uh, uh, a, uh, a a a quip, Doctor Fraud. That's what. That's what it was. You weren't looking at your camera. You should have seen the smirk whenever he <laughs> delivered his line. Uh, I happen to be looking right at it. But look, the thing is, I think it's important for us to have clarity 
rather than fighting that kind of, you know, you're a fascist. No, you're a fascist. We have to have an understanding that fascism is a social, political, economic ideology. It's how to organize society. Like they will literally conflate fascism and socialism, which is kind of insane because they're absolutely diametrically opposed. I am a socialist. I am proud to be a socialist. I will advocate uh, as a socialist what that means, right? But fascism is something different. It is a hyper-nationalistic ethno-state that describes how to organize the political economy. A socialist economy is an ideological way to how to organize the state. Now, I'm a different type of socialist because I actually believe in worker control of the means of production as opposed to the nation state, uh, central planning. So and we can debate about different types of of socialism. But I'll tell you this, Faldo, with clarity, the neoliberals, they are not equal to fascists, but the neoliberals are facilitating fascism. Make no mistake about it. They are literally helping to create the conditions for how fascism is rising. And the only way to actually defeat fascism, in my view, is not to just go out there and brawl with them in the streets. The only way you can actually defeat fascism is to create a society in a world where the hateful seeds of fascism cannot sprout and grow. And that's the reason it's so important that we unflinchingly advocate for healthcare as a human right, for the development of worker-owned cooperatives where people's work will be valued and meaningful, uh, that we advocate uh, for public banking, that we advocate for the kind of society that makes people's lives better. And I'm going to add for like like state-funded art and education. Remember, one of the biggest, most successful parts of the whole New Deal was the funding of art and culture. Right? Like this is. Say it again. WPA. The WPA was. If anybody ever uh, gets to San Francisco, I got to tell you, my like there are two things I always recommend. One, the Camera Obscura, which is a delightful, uh, uh, it's a small hole in the wall. And the second one is Coit Tower. Right. You must have done it, right? Have you? Absolutely. Like, but look, there is a book that. Um, discusses all the murals. One year we went and visited all of them. The Coit Tower is amazing and well-preserved, but they're all over. The WPA uh, murals are all over San Francisco. Is that Diego Rivera and Coit Tower? Yes. Uh, Yes. uh, And in fact, if you know and looking up, you'll actually see Diego Rivera represented there. You'll see Karl Marx and Antonio Gramsci uh, uh, represented there. You also see... American workers, black, brown, and white, working the fields, working the factories, working the farms and the ranches. Like it's, it is a beautiful expression. And your point is well made, Dr. Fraud. Like there are, they're, they're all, they're, those WPA murals are all over. They used to be all over every city. San Francisco retained them. Mm. And that's what makes it special. Yes. But the point is look, when capitalism falls apart, as the American empire and America is falling apart. There are different choices. One of them is fascism to hold it together where the army and other forces of repression subdue the population. One of the first things that Hitler did was outlaw unions. 
and worker power. Or right. socialism. But our capitalism is falling apart. The American dream no longer applies. People are quiet quitting or just quitting. We're having strikes like we haven't had for 50, 60 years. It's falling apart. And we've got to have an alternative. And the fascists have one alternative, and we have a different one. And the neoliberals, this is the point, Faldo, the neoliberal leadership of the Democratic Party does not have an alternative to offer, right? No. Like they, they really, they don't either. They don't understand what is happening, or they are quietly going to side with a kinder, gentler fascism. Yes, and that's scary to me. What Pelosi said, she believes in what they call Tina. There is no alternative. Capitalism has no alternative. The fact that it's crumbling around her, the fact that the inequalities are so grotesque. The fact that the average person doesn't really believe the government's on their side, that there's chaos and, and criminality all over the place. So what? <laughs> she doesn't see any alternative. And for her, there is none. And so we have to provide the alternative that's positive. And the neoliberals will refuse to see. That's their adjustment. They'll refuse to see an alternative. And that's the reason, Feldo, where you'll constantly hear me, the refrain, and you even quoted me back to myself last week, right? I engage in elections, but I'm not an electoral fetishist. Most of my time is spent uh, helping to create community land trusts so that we can have communal community ownership of land and food production, affordable housing and social housing. Uh, most of my time is spent on public banking or participatory budgeting. What... Uh, uh, I forget the uh, the philosopher who coined the term, but they're called non-reformist reforms. Like, what are the things that we can achieve right now? Right there within Overton's window, and I can like I can I can show you hook, line, and sinker examples of all the things that are happening now. Right, so they're reforms; they're achievable now. They're non-reformist because. They're designed to undermine the logic of capitalism. Right. They're designed to under, and remember, part of the logic of capitalism is the private ownership of the means of production, that wages or labor itself is just one more commodity that's bought and paid for on the market. And then lastly, profit maximization, profit uber alice, right? Like mm -hmm. profit is the only reason you do anything. Again, capitalism has a you can actually understand capitalism very easily. The, the, the characteristics and definitions are very easy uh, to understand. And what I'm saying is, let's put our shoulders to the wheel together to create from the bottom up a political economy that meets people's needs. And I can absolutely do the political education with folks about you know what it is. But I don't actually harangue people, right? If mm -hmm. if they want to have this political conversation, I'm down with it. If they want to say, can we just please work on this worker-owned cooperative together? Sure. Yes, we absolutely can do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a question right now that capitalism is crumbling. And those in denial, like the uh, neoliberals, will keep denying it until fascism takes over. And the other people, like us, will provide an alternative and show people an alternative, which has been repressed in the United States. Oh, my God. It's, it's like, it, it, to it, repress it more. 
And, and you know, it's funny, uh, Dr. Fraud, I often say, you know, it, it depends on what side of the bed I wake up on. Because some mornings I wake up and go, oh, my God, it's a billion dollars a year, this corporate media feeding the kind of toxic, uh, hyper-capitalist, uh, consumerist, mater- um, you know, materialism, not not dialectical materialism, but like material driven, like this is like, we'll never win. We can't win. And then the next day I get up and I say, oh my God, Mm -hmm. we can't lose. It takes them a billion dollars a year to prop up this corrupt system, right? And even with all of the money that they're spending, all of the things that they're doing, the, the our movements, the labor movement is getting more and more militant. The Absolutely. women's movement is getting more and more clear. The solidarity economy movement, like like cracks in the sidewalk, it's happening. To me, the exciting thing is not like look, capitalism as we have experienced it uh, over the it's just coming to an end, whether you yeah. like it or not. The question is, what replaces it? Exactly. Uh, and I believe, and Dr. Fraud believes, that socialism uh, is the, the right way to replace it. Others believe fascism is the way to replace it. But capitalism, as it has been experienced, is coming to an end. It's over. That party is over. It's just a question of how we replace it. And right now, I think a lot of people... Are, have been depoliticized, and I'll talk about that maybe a little later, but they've just, they don't have the power. The money has the power, and for a long time they gave up. And now they are politicizing themselves by unionizing or by quiet quitting, where they do only what's on their job description and no more. You get your money's worth. You're not going to pay me. You're not going to get work. Or they quit altogether and find some gig some way to make a living and there is a sense well the dream is gone that if you work hard you'll do well and everybody you know, dr fraud you you uh you you mentioned this last week we didn't get a chance to go uh deeply into it i want to resurrect the the a point that you made and that is there was a time in this country where it was accepted and expected as a birthright that your children were going to do better than you, right? right. And that the children expected that they were going to do better than their parents. That's right. And everybody absolutely just, that was a, a, as sure as gravity, right? Like it was, a, it Except was. for black people. Ex- fair enough. Fair enough. That's an important distinction, right? Yes. Uh, otherization was a thing. But what I'm saying is that was the American dream as it was. Yes, uh, lay it out. And it was true until. I guess the early 80s, it started being untrue, and now it's completely untrue. You will do right. less well than your parents. And and the point is, not just millennials, but but millennials and younger. Like, there is no, there is a, 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 a there is an understanding and an awareness that the, that, 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 that the, the game has changed, over. right? Yeah. You know, the dice are loaded. The fix is in, you know, uh, as Leonard uh, you know, Cohen says, everybody knows the dice. Everybody knows. Everybody uh, except knows this is the thing. So, yeah, we should play uh, Leonard Cohen uh, next time Dr. Yeah. Fraud and I are on together. I mean, that gives me chills. But here's the thing, y'all. Like, the reality is that we're still fighting for the hearts and minds because fascism requires a social base, right? This is the important thing. It doesn't require a majority. Uh, mm-hmm. But if, if you have... 
35 to 40 percent of the people in lockstep with you for fascism, you can have a fascist government. Like there's just no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. And that I would I would argue based on what we're seeing with, you know, Trump and DeSantis and, and the polling numbers here, that base exists in this country. It's uh, you know, it, it's absolutely here. And we have got to at the from the bottom up do the kind of organizing and educating in common sense terms, in pool halls, in bowling alleys, uh, you know, stops, yeah. everywhere, right? We ha- And I'll say it again, we have to show, not tell, right? In other words, help people. Show and tell. tell. Yes, show and tell. I like that. Uh, so like, but, but by that, I mean, Help them to create worker-owned cooperative businesses. You know, I'm doing that right now uh, with Kali Akuno and Kamal Franklin yeah. and Michelle Edelman McCormick. We're like, we're 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 doing the work of saying this is what it looks like. This is how you create a community right. land trust to be able to hold land communally and collectively, right, and get it out of the the, the commodified yeah. uh, market, right, like. We've been taught that capitalism is the only way uh, that things can be organized, and it's a lie. It's a complete lie, and people can see that it's failed, but they haven't got really an alternative that's organized for them to believe in. They see a set of causes, whether it's climate, whether it's labor, whether it's race, but they don't see, or whether it's feminism, but they don't see the interconnected power that we could have where we could win like they did in Chile and in Colombia and recently in France. You know, France is gone one way, Italy another. France is gone socialist, Italy fascist. It's really quite different. But I am very impressed by people's ability to have enough and rebel. Look what's happening in Iran. They're killing hundreds of people and women are still burning their hijabs and uh, burning their veils and coming out in the street, even though they're being shot and killed. It's amazing. In a highly repressive society, people have had it. And when people have had enough, They'll have had enough. And there's a lot of anger. Trump builds on that anger. He's very angry that as this kind of a crude article who's gross and whose father was, he's not accepted into the elites. So he, in, he curses the elites and he picks up the rage of the usual people against the elites. And he does that quite well. And we have to pick up people's need for something better. And it's out there. It's really out there. And when people are ready, they'll grab it. But we have to put it out there for them to grab. I'm impressed, though. I really am impressed. I walk around New York City, albeit it's a progressive place. But I walk around with my husband, Rick Wolf. We're constantly recognized by people who like his work and recognize him. And that's I, by the way, capitalist. But by, by the way, I had the most uh, humiliating experience of I had accidentally invited your husband to the show tonight, and hey, he totally. <laughs> and he 
and he said he would come on, and I freaked out. I was totally unprepared, and uh, and I want to reschedule, but I, I thought, I can't believe he wants to come on. And I'm, yeah, and I I'm, praise the show to the skies. And I'm saying, not yet, not yet. I can't. Uh, and I thought, what's wrong? Well, it was uh, cute and funny. It's no okay. problem. I, I, I would give anything to have him come on, but I, I, I it was a, uh, anyway. Uh, anyway, I mean, people are changing, yeah. and it's all over the place that they're changing. Look at the labor movement. My God, it was dormant for so long. And now not only are people fighting for higher wages, they're also fighting to be treated decently. And they're also fighting for at least the teachers and the nurses. The nurses in Minneapolis, the 15,000 who struck, struck for better conditions for their patients as well as better treatment for themselves. And the, same and, the and the Chicago uh, Teachers Union was striking for the kids. I mean, like, again, like when so like this is the thing, like so, you know, right wing rage brings you fascist, uh, you know, thugs. Left wing rage brings you the 40 hour work week and health care for all and, right. and, union, and weekends. Right. Like, I just right. think it's kind of important to remember we as socialists are outraged but what we're doing is fighting for a particular world. Yes, a non-commodified world is what we're... Because, you know, people, capitalists present the market as some kind of omnipotent force. All it is is getting the most you can for goods and giving the goods to the people who have the most. Pretty easy, pretty straightforward. But it's not explained. And we can explain it. We could show where it leads. You know, Carl... And Marx, remember... That that look, the I like the idea of just like exchanging things like if like we we like if if you mean market by that then we can have all sorts of conversations about of okay all right, well yeah. you know market this market that but but Dr. Frog is making an important point the capitalist market exists only to facilitate profit maximization right and secondly really important. Labor itself is just one more commodity that's bought and paid for on that market, right? So don't confuse. Like I, I talk to people all the time uh, who are petty bourgeoisie or uh, who are ranchers and farmers, and they think that they're a capitalist or will advocate as if they're a capitalist. And the answer is you're not. Like you might defend capitalism, but you're actually not a capitalist because that has a definition, right? Uh, and if you are if you are required to work and sell your labor, by definition, you're not a capitalist. By right. definition, that's right. And people want to identify with a capitalist often because those are you know rich people are lauded. It's a recommendation. People are put on boards and so on because they're rich. The Sacklers got off the board of the Guggenheim only because people had to die in because they killed 600,000 Americans with their OxyContin. They got off, but they were invited to the board because they give a lot of money. They were on the board of the Museum of Natural History until people picketed the place. And why were they invited? One reason only. They gave money. They have money to give so people suck up. 
And that has to change. But rich people are so lauded that people want to identify with them and admire them and don't look at the bloody hands. You know, it's, that's something that they can see, though, increasingly. With all these strikes, whether it's Starbucks or the Apple Store workers who are unionizing or anybody, you know, the museum workers or it's everywhere the university workers, who's on the university boards, who's the president, somebody raising money. It's so infected and people see that and it's hit white people. It used to be that if you were white and male, you could do better than your parents and provide a life to your wife, children and yourself. No way is that possible. With two people working full time, you can't do as well as one did in the 50s. So the party's over for everybody, which gives us a chance to unite. I mean, again, uh, I keep coming back to, I think that we have to unite and fight that, like, for the world that we want to live in. And I, mm-hmm. I say all the time, I'm not fighting to save this dying system. No. I'm fighting to create a new system or to recreate the system that existed before the enclosure movement. Remember, like it's not just capitalism, right? Capitalism is absolutely the current incarnation of the power over dominator extractive worldview, right? But like, you know, I descend from uh, folks in Scotland and Ireland who were in right relation with one another uh, pre-industrialism, right? Like, uh, uh, and by the way, Feldo, you do too. Dr. Fraud does. You know how I know? Because every human being descends from people who were indigenous to some area that were caretaking the earth, that were living in a matriarchal, uh, a a different worldview, right? Right. Uh, And it was an earth-centered, it was one where we took care of each other. This is a, a, a... horrific regime that we have been born into. And it's not natural. It's not inevitable. It has been constructed. And anything that has been constructed by humans can be deconstructed and created differently. That's right. Class society was slavery, feudalism, and then capitalism. And our goal is not to have a class society where one group, by virtue of their control of the of food or livelihoods or land or money can control the others. That that, you know, that's a class society. And we can change that. that, um, And we better because Americans are now immiserated. And look at the British, they're immiserated even more while they support this pathetic group of people who have no merit except inheritance, you know, the, the monarchy. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I will say, like, I, I don't wish, you know, uh, ill on anyone. And I, you know, Queen Elizabeth deaths, like, okay, you know, an old person died, that's sad. But this kind of pomp and circumstance around it, I personally found disgusting. I, oh, I, you know, uh, I really did. Uh, so and also it's a sketchy bunch that emblem it's the emblem of hierarchy and lack of social accountability. They are emblemite, they just are emblematic of that. And they're a sketchy bunch. 
you know, Prince Andrew's a pervert. And, uh, and he was your favorite. With all his medals. And uh, Charles marries this young woman, Diana, as a breeder while he's still fucking around with his old girlfriend. And then Diana is suffering so much she talks about it, and then she suddenly gets killed. Ooh. And uh, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry leave, and in part they didn't want them around. They were afraid their kids would be too dark. Really, Ugh. this is a sketchy, rotten bunch right out of Shakespeare who had their number, a bunch of scheming, rotten, rich people. And I think that even in England, as they are so immiserated, the average family will lose a thousand pounds this year. We'll start to reevaluate this stuff and all the values that go with it. It's horrible. So uh, I'm going to have to jump. Thank you for that, Dr. Fraud. I do want to quote James Connolly. Uh, James Connolly was an Irish Republican. He was a militant socialist. He was a trade unionist, and he was a leader in the struggle for Irish independence from colonial rule. He was one of the leaders of the 1916 Easter Rising, uh, and the British government murdered him by firing squad as a result. When the King of England died uh, at that time and there was a new coronation, here's what James Connolly said in 1914. We will not blame him for the crimes of his ancestors if he relinquishes the royal rights of his ancestors. Yes. But as long as he claims those unearned rights by virtue of descent, then by virtue of descent, he must shoulder the responsibility for their crimes and answer them. That's how I think. Like, So it's not your fault, but it is your problem. Right. Exactly. You know, just for a little humor at the end, I was talking about the monarchy on some program and a guy called in and he said he's a West Indian. And he said, you know, they used to say the sun never sets on the British Empire. He said, we knew that what that meant. God never trusted those motherfuckers in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's great. That's an exit line if I ever heard one. Yes, very <laughs> cute. Good night, y'all. That is fantastic. Yeah, it was really a nice contribution. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much, David Cobb. He's gone. He jumped. He left. Okay. Yes. Uh, joining us is Dr. <laughs> Harriet Ford. Let's, let's change uh, for a second and talk about Ukraine, and you say we're getting nonstop propaganda from sure. whom? Who is feeding us this propaganda? All of our press, our government. Look, there is a saying which is very wise, which is that the first casualty of war is the truth. That is true. And whatever is going on, we know that there are two sides and we only get one. I always, you know, Russia has 1,500 miles of common border with Ukraine. Now, when Cuba, 90 miles away, wanted a base on its soil, the United States risked World War III under JFK to get them to stop that base. Russia's demand was that Ukraine remain neutral. 
they refused and wanted to join NATO. So there would be an armed presence against Russia on 1,500 miles of border. And all the agreements that were done in 2014 were broken. Now, I understand why the U.S. would want to do this. Our geopolitical position is not good. And we want to buttress it with NATO, America's imperialist arm. Okay. But of course, a whole country is being destroyed. Hillary Clinton and the U.S. government put Zelensky in. There are memos between Clinton and her assistant that says, put in the clown. Okay, because he's a comedian. You know, no offense intended. And um, he's willing to sacrifice his entire country, turn it into rubble. And he hasn't, our papers don't even show this. A friend of mine is French. She showed me in the French paper this big photograph, an article about Zelensky's beautiful mansion on the Italian Riviera, where he'll no doubt go once it's hopeless, like, like Ghani in Afghanistan took off in a plane loaded with dollars and left. Also, it was exposed that Zelensky has, under his wife's name, accounts in Panama, where people hide money. Ew. I'm not saying the Russians are good. I don't think they're good. Vladimir Putin is a disgusting uh, misogynist and dictator in many ways. But really, we ought to have... I ask myself, why do the Americans believe this? Why don't they ask questions? Why are billions being sent when one in four kids in the United States doesn't have enough to eat? What's going on? That there are, you know, a strutting turd like Adams wants to cut education budgets and housing guarantees. Why are they taking this? This deluge of propaganda, which just doesn't make sense. Of course, the Russians will take over, even though the Americans are now selling lots of arms. If you invested, I read this, if you, an intercept, if you in, invested 10 billion at the beginning of the war, you'd have 100 billion now because they're shipping arms like it's going out of style. They're not shipping American soldiers because Americans don't want to fight for that crap, you know, whatever. And yet we're a passive population. And I asked what happened. And this is what I came up with, whatever. I thought, well, starting in the late 70s, well, in the mid to late 70s, American corporations deserted the United States because unions, particularly in mechanical unions, machinists and so on, were had fought hard and died to get better working conditions and good salaries. So the solution in our country, because we don't have a socialist party or a communist party that forbids outsourcing the way they do in Germany, the most prosperous country in Europe, or France or Scandinavia, which are doing okay, right? We didn't we don't have a politicized labor movement. So they took the jobs overseas and brought their money back and bought the political system, because it's a pay-to-play system. And Americans felt like they didn't count because they didn't much, you know, you choose from for president, two people who raised more than four billion. I mean, whoa, who are you gonna get? 
And they gave up, watched television, got fat, and signed off. And I think it's only now that people are realizing, oh, my God, we're being immiserated. And we're losing everything. Pensions are lost. They used to be given all through the 50s and 60s and the late 40s when they were fought for. The eight-hour day was guaranteed. It's not. Minimum wage hasn't changed, even though the cost of living has risen meteorically. We're being immiserated. And people are catching on and unionizing. But I think they became depoliticized because they felt like there was no point. What does it matter if I vote or not? It's fixed. And that has to change, and we have to give people hope, not particularly electoral hopes, although that that can be helpful, like with AOC and so on, but hope that we can change, that this is our country, like Woody Guthrie said, and we can take it back. But I think that there's a passivity. I remember when Bush stole the election in Barron's Weekly, which is a stock, you know, wealthy stockholders. There was a guy, his name was Ehrenberg. There was a very good editor there. And he wrote, America is a country where you can steal an election in broad daylight. And nobody says a thing. Americans have made sheep look like rugged individualists. Mm-hmm. And that's in Barron's Weekly, a stock weekly, that people became so dispirited that they became passive. And it's only now beginning to change. And so this Ukraine, where people never see another point of view, they never learn about, wait a minute, what about all those fascists who killed thousands of people firing into the Donbass region? So the Donbass militias have been doing most of the fighting, raised in the Donbass region because they do want to ally with Russia. They speak that language. They don't want to be killed by the Azov battalions, which are fascist. Maybe they have a point. Maybe that should be heard also. That there is the saddest thing is that is the passivity around billions of needed dollars going to Ukraine, which people don't really care about. And that's what I think is the most important question, how we have become so passive, really. Well, I think they've, they've played a great trick on our mind. They tell us we're the most powerful nation in the history <laughs> of civilization, but don't, don't disrupt things. The whole thing could fall apart. If, if, if Gore challenges George W. Bush... Yeah, the whole system will fall apart. So it's better Absolutely. It's better for this country if we just surrender to, to Bush because it's, it, you know, it's the strongest country in the world and we're so afraid of the whole thing collapsing. Well, the strongest country in the world has lost the last four wars. That might occur to people. I mean, on the one hand, we do have the most armaments in the world. We're the biggest arms producers and the wealthiest arms producers. But we lost. In Korea, there was a draw. We didn't win. Vietnam, we lost. Pictures of people fleeing in helicopters, Americans fleeing. 
Iraq, same kind of pictures. We had to hightail it out of there. Afghanistan, same kind of pictures. So we're the most powerful, but we lose. We've lost. And they don't realize we may be the most powerful, but more and more people, you know, I saw this letter from these bankers. They said people should diversify into renminbi and yuan, that American dollars are shaking. Wow, our currency replaced British currency when their empire fell. Are the Chinese going to replace our currency? They have 12 high-speed trains speeding across Russia. We have none. The Europeans have high-speed trains. They're te- they are the technology giants of the world. Out of the five biggest technology producers, they have three. The other One of the others is Finland. What's the other one? Another one is, but then, you know, they have three. And putting that uh, Chinese woman who's from Alibaba in jail doesn't change that. In jail in Canada. That there is a, a geopolitical shifting. And I think the United States is trying to buttress itself with what it has, armaments. By disrupting the alliance between Russia, which is rich in natural resources and oil and gas and so on, and China, which has the most advanced technology now and the biggest population, by exhausting Russia in a war. And these people then are pawns and their country is reduced to rubble. Also, we don't get, or you get it in the German newspaper or the French newspaper, it reported that... Any man who votes in this election that Russia is having, or woman, can be arrested immediately. Men and women are not allowed to, no, men are not allowed, of fighting age are not allowed to leave. It's not that they're standing to defend the fatherland. If they try to leave, they're arrested. The newspaper, the opposition newspapers are closed down. Why don't we hear about that? We hear about that in Russia, which is, you know, terrible. We don't hear about it in Ukraine, which is also terrible. That there is, you know, that it's sad. It's sad that our press, which the American, you know, we don't have to have a dictator dictating. People want ads and who puts in ads? Corporations. We're not going to offend the corporations that feed our newspapers. Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. Murdoch owns the New York Post and Fox News. And, uh, whoa, private owners own the New York Times. That's it. And we're not going to offend them by denying, you know, our ad source, our revenue. Americans buy their corruption. They don't dictate it from the top. And so... It's amazing to me that we're bleeding money to a Ukraine, which is no doubt going to lose. And we're not, we don't even hear the other side of the story. And of course, there's another side. I'm not saying you have to come down on the side of Ukraine or Russia, but there's another side. You have to go on the internet to someone like Mercurius, a very smart Greek guy who presents both sides, but you really have to look for it. And that that has happened to us. 
And that's our real enemy, that, that passivity. Because if people really took an interest and had to find out, they realize they're getting screwed. Billions are being made by the arms manufacturers and they're being denied petty raises while the inflation will soak them up anyway. You know, it's gross. And that's the big question is how to get out of that passivity, how to feel empowered, how to do something about it like the Iranian women are, even though they're being mowed down with AK-47s. They're out there. Is there something to our the American character that it's not as rugged and uh, bold as we fancy ourselves? That basically, absolutely. I mean, the big choice we have is toothpaste. I mean, which brand? And the actual choices. Do you want socialism? Even in France, which I've gone to often, you know, everybody has the same amount of time on television. You can't buy television time. And they have all eight parties, you know, the, the monarchists, the fascists, the communists, the anarchists, the capitalists, whatever, who have a certain amount of time. And they have two weeks to run. They can put up posters. That's it. Right. So people actually have a choice. So that, the, the question I, I sometimes wonder about this country is I've been we all have been on the left banging our heads against the wall here. I've had jobs. Every job I've ever had has been, I want to make uh, uh, rice and beans. I want to serve vegan. Well, this restaurant serves hamburgers. I know, but I want to serve a vegan meal. We don't serve. This restaurant does not serve. We serve beef here. But it's killing everybody. That's what's on the menu. When my grandparents came to America, they were shown the menu mm -hmm. at Ellis Island. And uh, I'm not uh, ordering what's on the menu. Yeah, well, that, they came often. Look, there were 30 socialist newspapers in the United States at the turn of the century. People had their foreign language newspapers and they came from countries that had socialists or socialist struggles and brought them here. But is and this country serious repressions after World War II? There was a serious repression in the McCarthy era because Uncle Joe was our biggest ally. That's Joe Stalin. And without them, we never would have won the war. And so the, and there were a lot of communists that were. One out of every four family had an active communist. It was their slogan was communism is the new Americanism. Well, they were crushed. And after World War One and around World War One, they were crushed. And so we put the, we tried to repress it in Europe and didn't succeed. Now, partly it's because the resistance during World War Two was organized and participated in mainly by communists. So dismissing them was harder. But, you know, we don't have choices. Right. I mean, but this is it, 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 not to be negative, but it feels like if you study the history of this country, it's kind of like Mein Kampf. Hitler told you in Mein Kampf, 
who he was and what he was going to do. And this country has been consistent in many ways. And, and I'm just wondering if there's a, there actually is an American character that, not to accept it, but... Uh, I don't know. Saying, the American, char American character, according to de Tocqueville a long time ago, was people who do things, who join things. That was the American character. Yeah. Americans yeah. Are, are quite depressed. Right. And we weren't always, if you read Hochschild's two latest two books, Rebel Cinderella, about Rose Pastor Stokes, or um, his new book, which is around the repression of World War, around World War I, we've had big repressions, but so have other people. Right. I think that we were defeated because we had this idea that you can really make it if you try. Right. As long as you were white and in a family headed by a, a male, you had a future. And, and that dream is dead. Yes. And people are just adjusting. Dr. Harriet Fudd, thank you so much. Dr. Thank Harry, you. Thank you. We love you. Dr. Harriet Fudd is the host of It's Not Just In Your Head and uh, Capitalism Hits Home. Who are, who are your hosts? Well, in, it's not just in your head. It's me and Liam Tate and Ikoi Hiro. And Capitalism Hits Home is just me and my blog. And my radio show is Interpersonal Update, Wednesdays at 2.30, unless it's canceled or something, at BAI. Fantastic. Give your best to your husband. And yeah, I will. I, I, I couldn't believe I... <laughs> He wanted to do the show today. Well, and I you know, he does want to do the show because I tell him how wonderful it is. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I, I panicked. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much, okay. Dr. Harriet Fry. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, Professor Juan Cole is with us once again, and we are honored. He is the editor-in-chief of Informed Comment, and people should go there all the time. It is a fantastic website, uh, wancole.com. He tackles very complex subjects in, a, in written for people like me. And please uh, take it away, Professor Adnan Hussein. And thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein, host of Guerrilla History and the Mudgeless podcast for inviting Dr. Professor Juan Cole on. Well, it's my pleasure to welcome Professor Juan Cole back to your show, David. Um, of course, uh, everyone here is familiar with him because he's a returning guest and has been generous with his time to come and tell us about the Middle East and give us his insight and analysis. But I'll just briefly say that... May I, uh, may I interrupt for one second? Yeah, I, go ahead. To our virtual studio audience, if you have any questions for Professor Cole, please put them in the Q&A. And if we have time, uh, I will will try to read them. Thank you. Yeah, hopefully we can get to some of them. Yes. Uh, but of course, he's a well-known scholar, historian of the Middle East and uh, public intellectual. He's written numerous books, uh, most recently a translation of Omar Khayyam's uh, poetry from Persian and um, also Muhammad, uh, prophet of peace amid the clash of empires. Um, so... Uh, Professor Juan Cole, thanks for coming back uh, to the David Feldman Show. Well, thanks so much, Adnan and uh, David, for having me. 
Well, it's um, really important to have you on now. I think uh, there's been so many developments taking place in the Middle East. We haven't had a chance to catch up with you about what's been uh, taking place uh, recently. But um, listeners are, of course, uh, very aware uh, of the recent uh, Masa Gina Amini protests. We could say, like the George Floyd protests, they are... Uh, in response to police brutality. Uh, In this case, a 20-year-old Kurdish woman who died in police custody after a brutal beating, um, and which has sparked the largest uh, protest we've seen in Iran since 2019, with hundreds arrested, uh, over 700 in the north alone. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about those details and about what's happening. Uh, but I did want to start off with asking you a question um, because it occurred to me after watching Lindsey Graham and Tom Cotton and a whole host of other Republic, prominent Republican lawmakers who have been in favor of bombing Iran, suddenly expressing uh, great heartfelt concern for the human rights abuses taking place in Iran. And it made me wonder if secretly... Uh, these folks actually are jealous of the conservative uh, theocratic uh, government of Iran. And then I noticed that you published yesterday uh, an article that precisely addressed some of the symmetries uh, between the Christian nationalists and hard right Republican uh, uh, forces in our country who seem to have a theocratic approach and uh, the theocrats in Iran when it comes to women's rights and and uh, and uh, kind of policing women. So I wondered, are they secretly uh, just jealous uh, of Iran? I know there's a whole host of other reasons we'll talk about for their uh, interested political position right now, but uh, I wanted you to talk a little bit more about those symmetries and parallels. Well, I think that the American right uh, can't see the symmetry. Uh, there are certain things psychologists tell us that we hide from ourselves. And if we actually face them honestly, it might cause our personalities to collapse. There, there are some architectonic truths that we, we can't uh, face. So I, I suspect that uh, the dominionists uh, among the evangelicals and uh, who now have a big hold on uh, a, a strong proportion of the Republican Party don't see uh, the symmetry between their ideals uh, and and those of, of uh, Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran, but it's a symmetry that seems apparent to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, as as I said uh, in my article, the um, theocracy is uh, uh, antipathetic to democracy. Democracy believes in popular sovereignty. Democrats believe that the people's will should prevail uh, in the Republican form of democracy. So it's the representatives of the people whose vote should prevail. Uh, But the majority should rule. Uh, Theocracy doesn't accept majority rule. Uh, And Ayatollah Khomeini frankly said, you know, if if, uh, 37 million Iranians, that was the population back in the 70s, uh, voted for X and and God's will was Y, then wouldn't Y still be true, regardless of what the Iranian people voted for? Uh, and so uh, the same thing is, is true of theocrats in the United States. 
Uh, we had a long-standing uh, precedent in the form of uh, Roe v. Wade on the Supreme Court, which was voted for by the vast majority of the Supreme Court. It was not a close vote, uh, and which was settled law uh, for uh, for decades. Uh, but theocrats, including Samuel Alito, uh, did not accept it because it was contrary to God's will. Uh, and uh, they wanted to overturn it. And they, they hated that it was embedded, Roe v. Wade was embedded in a theory of the law that recognized an implicit right of privacy in the U.S. Constitution, uh, which is extrapolated, I think, quite easily and fairly from the Fourth Amendment. For instance, the government's not allowed to come into our house and just rummage through our effects. Uh, so why would it be allowed to rummage through our bodies? Uh, wouldn't that be even worse? Uh, so the, uh, I think it's fairly extrapolated from the Fourth Amendment and and, and other law, including the Fourteenth uh, uh, Amendment and, and the Sixteenth. Um, but uh, for Alito and the American theocrats, uh, the, the the government absolutely has a right to invade our bodies, uh, to put its hands on our bodies to make us wards of the state, uh, and particularly uh, with regard to women, uh, because both the state and the church ought to be dominating them, ought to be regulating their behavior and regulating their bodies. Uh, and so a theocrat would say uh, that Roe v. Wade had to be overturned because it interfered with this theocratic project of God's will being implemented on uh, the woman, of course, it's, it, God in this case turns out to have a to, to be a pastor uh, with a uh, a mega church and a and a, and a thousand dollar suit. But uh, uh, they they substitute their own ideas about God for for God, and the same impetuses are there in in contemporary Iran. Democracy in Iran is very carefully circumscribed. Uh, there's a, a kind of a a Janus face to the Iranian government where there's an elected parliament, there's an elected president. They're elected by majority, uh, a majority of the voters. They're vetted, so not just anybody can run. But once they're vetted, the, the elections have mostly been uh, on the up and up, with the exception perhaps of, of 2009. But everything that the president, his cabinet, and the parliament uh, pass uh, as regulation and law can be immediately overturned by the uh, the leader, the clerical leader, who is the, 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 the chief theocrat, just as Alito and his cohorts were able to overturn uh, uh, Roe v. Wade, uh, despite the majority of the American people uh, believing in it. Um, so, um, uh, there have been moments in Iran when there have been attempts at reform, but they have simply been batted down by the clerical forces who are in turn supported by, uh, militias like the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps and a much bigger force of volunteers called the Basij. Uh, and if you want to have an idea of what the Basij is, I think we saw the American version on January 6th. 
Right. Okay. That's a very interesting analogy. I did want you to perhaps describe a little bit more uh, what um, shaped the morality police as it's been uh, translated. Uh, you know, it's the word that the words that are the phrasing that's used most commonly, I think, in the media. This Sazimani uh, Basiji Musta Zafan, the organization for the mobilization of the oppressed. What kind of a group this is, how extensive it is, and maybe a little bit of a sense of how it operates um, um, as a as a force. And I noticed also that, of course, uh, this is represented very much as this populist, you know, uh, mobilizing of the oppressed against oppression. And yet, of course, it's main purposes, or at least the way it's being experienced commonly, is suppressing people's, um, you know, behavior in public and um, policing, uh, you know, how people dress and and, and so on. Uh, and that, you know, there are a lot of Basij, you know, Basiji Asnaf, uh, Basiji Karigaran, there's a whole host and groupings of the Basij. So perhaps you could tell people, um, what kind of an organization it is, this sort of populist paramilitary, and what functions it it, it um, has served in Iran's social, in, in Iranian society? You know, I think we can understand it best if we go back to the 1970s, when Iran was ruled by the Shah, by the king, uh, who has been called a capitalist dictator, uh, and whose ideal was Western Europe. Uh, so uh, he he had predicted that by the year 2000, Iran would be France, uh, who was uh, a severe critic of the um, more nativist and traditional parts of the Iranian economy, the artisans, the money lenders, the uh, the the carpet makers who were collected in the covered old uh, markets of, uh, of the uh, old cities uh, uh, that were called the bazaar. Mm -hmm. And many of these groups uh, were uh, uh, pious. They went to mosque. They helped to organize religious rituals. And they were, uh, frankly, disregarded by the, the, the Shah. And, and, and sometimes you could say they were oppressed. In fact, in one instance, in Mashhad, uh, a, a lot of these kinds of um, Institutions had grown up around the shrine uh, to Imam Reza, one of the saints of the Shiite uh, branch of Islam. And uh, the Shah simply had their shops and artisanal workshops torn down uh, because he, he thought they were eyesores. Uh, and uh, he, he would have liked a modern kind of American model. The Mall of the Americas would have right. been very happy. But, but these uh, uh, old covered bazaars he thought were bastions of what he called black reactionaries. And uh, and of of, of religiousness, uh, and so they were mosque goers. They gave money to the to the clerics and and so forth. And so those were the Mustafzafan. They they were the oppressed. Uh, they were not as well off as the people who lived in the swanky parts of uh, mm -hmm. Tehran and North Tehran, who were uh, following the latest Milan and Paris fashions, and uh, uh, who were um, uh, often made a lot of money because the king gave them licenses for their businesses so they were they had little state monopolies state state granted monopolies uh, and and even some of them were owners of big banking chains and so forth and they got to be that way because they were friends of the shot was good to be friends of the king 
Uh, so when the revolution happened in 1979, it was a revolution. It was a mass movement. There were at one point perhaps as many as a million people in the streets of Tehran protesting mm -hmm. the Shah's government in uh, late 1978. Uh, and that was a city of six million. So yeah. that was a large proportion of the population was just out in the streets. Then it paralyzed, of course, the government. It was a challenge that the government couldn't sustain and the government fell. And uh, Khomeini, uh, Rohullah Khomeini, the cleric who had been abroad and who theorized Islamic government, uh, was in Paris. Uh, he simply, his, his coterie uh, uh, chartered a, a plane for him at a time when there wasn't any regular air traffic and flew him back on February 1st of 1979 to Iran. And he was immediately acclaimed as the leader of Iran uh, by all, all of the major factions that made the revolution uh, and uh, was able then to demand that there be a, a rewriting of the Constitution in which medieval ideas about what Islamic law is would be enshrined in, in constitutional law, which was not how medieval Islamic law operated. No. It was jurist law, but, but they, they tried to codify it and make it the, 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 the instrument of a modern state. And one of the things they legislated was that women should be covered up in public. Uh, and again, that had not been a law. It, you could say it had been clerical advice uh, to the pious women, if, if they and and in 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 the original pre-Khomeini Shiite Islam, a lot hung on people's individual consciences. Uh, they were let the, the clerics would let them know what their considered opinion on the law was. It was up to individuals to follow it or not to follow it. So something like whether a woman should bail or not was an individual choice in, in pre-modern Shiite Islam. And uh, whereas now it was the law of the state, the state instrumentalized uh, Shiite conscience and uh, took it over. And so things that had been signs of piety now became imposed by the state. Uh, and um, though in 79, when the revolution, uh, in 78, 79, when the revolution got going, there were uh, neighborhood committees, and they, they borrowed the French word comité uh, as into Persian, so they were called comités, and they were revolutionary committees. Uh, so you could think of them kind of as like Soviets, but, mm -hmm. but Soviets that were centered in, in religion and God. Uh, and... Um, uh, those comités established paramilitaries. So they are the origins. The paramilitaries of the of the neighborhood committees that waged the revolution are the uh, the institutional uh, predecessors of the Revolutionary Guards, the Iranian Revolutionary Guards Corps, which became more formalized and more like a military organization. It, 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 I, I compare it to the American National Guard. It's not the regular army, uh, but it's uh, volunteers, reservists uh, who, who volunteer to spend their weekends, for instance, uh, uh, fighting fires or doing public service. And if there is a war, they get called up. They served in Iraq, for instance, the U.S. National Guard. So the Revolutionary Guard just seems to me as a little bit like like that, if, if mm -hmm. we wanted to make a vague analogy for an American audience. But then in addition to the Revolutionary Guards, uh, there were uh, large numbers of neighborhood paramilitaries uh, 
who, uh, as you say, were mobilization committees. And uh, they dedicated themselves to various parts of the Iranian social fabric in enforcing the will of the clerical leader, whoever that might be. Uh, and, um, you know, opinion polling is really tough to pull off on, in Iran, and it's really difficult to know for sure uh, whether polls have been accurate. But the, the polling seems to indicate uh, that only about 15% of the Iranian public supports the hardline government. Uh, and I think that's borne out uh, whenever the vetting process uh, falters and they let a relative centrist uh, uh, run like Mohammad Khatami in the late mm -hmm. 1990s for president, the, the populist swims behind them and elects them, whether, whether the leader likes it or not. Uh, and then the leader has to put up with this popular elected president. Uh, so I, I think um, where, where people have a choice, uh, they go left from where the government is. Uh, and, I, and I think that's another sign that 85% oh, of the people are not particularly happy with this, with this form of government. Uh, but they're stuck with it. The the Revolutionary Guards, the regular army, the Basij, who, who amount to about a million men under arms, mm -hmm. uh, are are instruments of the hardliners in, in disciplining the population. So it's that kind of an organization that arrested Mahsa Jina Amini, this Kurdish young woman. She actually goes by Jina, but or she went by Jina, but uh, her, her official Iranian name is Mahsa. And uh, she was visiting uh, Tehran uh, with, with her parents. Uh, a, she was a tourist. It was like somebody coming from Fayetteville, Arkansas, to visit uh, New York City. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the uh, in, in Tehran, the best the, 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 the morality police are very vigilant. And I've heard two stories. One was that uh, some hair was uh, showing under her uh, under her veil. Uh, and that's not allowed. That's called bad hijabi, bad hijab. Uh, I've, I've heard that uh, they thought her jeans were too tight. Uh, and um, uh, for whatever reason, her her appearance offended them. She was a beautiful young woman. And some people think that these procedures are kind of incels, some of them, and uh, they just uh, have a, a misogynistic dislike of beautiful yeah. young women. Uh, so they arrested her and they... Uh, it is alleged by her supporters that uh, that they beat her uh, with an inch of her life, and uh, they say that she was walking in the police station and she had a heart attack. But twenty-two-year-old women don't have heart attacks uh, unless it's not that common. It, it's it, it 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 would be a one in a a billion chance. Twenty-two-year-old uh, um, women are so are so healthy that the the, the the largest killer of them is accidents, uh, not even a disease. So uh, it, it's very unlikely that, that she had a heart attack. It's more, much more likely that she was beaten and uh, given a, a embolism of some sort in her brain and, and had a stroke and died. Uh, and uh, uh, certainly her death in custody is very suspicious. Yes. So the country... The country has erupted in, in mass protest of an anarchistic sort. It doesn't seem to be organized. There's no 
There's no party behind it. There are no leaders that you could identify. And it's happening everywhere. You know, I've been studying Iran, well, since the 1970s. And uh, I know Persian. I've been there. Uh, if you go down the Reuters reports of where these uh, uh, protests are being staged, I don't recognize a lot of the little towns that they're mentioning. I, I, I mean, I've, I've written Iranian history, but I, I just haven't right. come across those little places. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, so there, the, the protests are happening in places that are not very well known. And, and that's a challenge to the regime. You know, the 2009 Green Revolution, which failed, uh, was uh, mainly in the big cities. It was Tehran and Tabriz and Shiraz. It was college students. Yes, students. Yeah. Uh, it, it, had, it had clear leaders, some of whom had been in government, an ex-president, uh, for instance, and, uh, and, and some, some top clerics. But, but this is unlike that. This is, uh, I think the, the comparison to the George Floyd protests is, is actually fairly accurate because, again, those broke out in unexpected places. And, uh, uh, the, the, gov- the, the Trump government had no idea what to do about them. Right, right. Well, that makes me wonder um, whether you think uh, they will be successful. I mean, if the regime is very unpopular, we also have a very hardline conservative government uh, under, uh, uh, pr- you know, uh, President Raisi. Uh, and now there's, um, you know, a kind of social conflagration that's uh, um, emerged and widening without a lot of signs of dissipating. At least it's been going on for well over a week at this point. What do you think um, is the social basis, since we can't uh, judge the leadership, uh, since it doesn't seem to have a co- coherent leadership? Does this pose um um, a challenge to the government, uh, a challenge that's uh, stronger than, say, the 2009 Green Revolution. How much do you think the ethnic dimension um, of it being a Kurdish woman and uh, big flashpoints, at least starting in the north, um, matter or don't? Um, you know, what's your uh, sense of of um, the scale and um, intensity and social bases of uh, these protests? Well, I think that people engaged in these kinds of protests are making politics. Uh, and they're making a statement, both for the present and the future, and they have an effect. Uh, some of the race protests in the United States have resulted in substantial changes to the way things are done locally. Maybe not at the national level, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, people misunderstand the defund the police movement, which is really about giving the police uh, police duties, uh, violent crime and so forth, and stop using them uh, to deal with homeless people or the indigent, uh, at which they're no good, and uh, or domestic uh, domestic problems. Uh, no policeman wants to be carried, called to a domestic uh, uh, violence site. Uh, and, and 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 hiring social workers to do that other stuff who are much better suited for it. And, you know, police are given guns. They're used to being in dangerous situations. Sometimes uh, they overestimate the danger to themselves. Uh, but in, if you are a policeman and you have faced danger, underestimating the danger sometimes uh, could be the end of your life or that of your partner. 
Uh, so it's unfair to put the police in those situations. So all I'm saying is that uh, one of the things that came out of the George Floyd protests, I think it was Minneapolis went to this alternative model of policing, uh, which uh, has been adopted by some other cities uh, and, and quite successfully where it has been adopted. Uh, and uh, in the same way, it's not impossible that you'll see some changes to, to how things are done at the practical level, if not at the level of law. Uh, you know, uh, the Basige or the Revolutionary Guards uh, will certainly want to make sure that Iran, the Iranian state continues to dominate Iranian Kurdistan. Mm-hmm. The Kurds are ethnically uh, not the same as Iranians. They speak a different language, although it's the same language family. They have different customs, and, and most Kurds are Sunni. There are Shiite Kurds, but most Kurds are Sunni, whereas the regime is a Shiite regime, and the, the president has to be a Shiite in, in, in the law. So um, uh, they won't want to cede uh, overall state autonomy, but you could imagine them lightening up a little bit. In the street. Right, so some besiege reform. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe uh, at well, least I mean, of, a, of, a, of a pragmatic sort. Right, right. Well, I mean, you know, there were reports in 2009 that um, many Basijis were reluctant to, you know, and were inefficient at really suppressing um, some of these revolts or protests, um, you know, because they're part of the community, you know, they're neighbors and um, they have student Basijis and, you know, it, it was sometimes difficult to mobilize all of them to be involved with the intimidation and suppression of others. Um, So I just wonder if these protests really do spread, uh, especially in small places. You mentioned that these are some very small towns and villages. Um, Those are, of course, notoriously face-to-face where members of the community are responsible to one another. It's a little bit difficult uh, to impose these harsh practices upon people you know and work with and live with, um, unlike, say, in a big city where there's a little bit of anonymity and you don't have the same sense of social solidarity. So I'm wondering if that may, at least as you're pointing out, on a local practical level, um, some pulling back from the most aggressive form of this uh, kind of policing. Yes, of- well, I think that's possible. I don't think that they'll back off from the insistence that women cover up. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's central to their ideology. It's a patriarchal order. If you give that up, then you're something else. And I don't think that they're they're willing to do that. Uh, but again, the degree to which they harass people uh, may 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 be reduced. I've also heard in this recent round of protests that the regular army troops have been reluctant to intervene. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of them are conscripts. So it's like you say, they they knew these people last year in high school or something. And, right, uh, right. Uh, they, 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 they seem to be reluctant. But, you know, your initial question was uh, uh, how, how uh, significant the movement might be for the Iranian polity. And, uh, of course, we can't know at this moment uh, if we were... Speaking in early 1978, we could never have imagined that the Shah would be overthrown. Right. Uh, sometimes things cascade and spin out of control and things happen. But uh, where revolutionary movements have succeeded, 
Uh, it's been because the regime got paralyzed. Uh, it split. Uh, alternative centers of authority emerged. Uh, yes, David. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Professor Hussein and I were talking on the show last week. How struck we were struck. The last time you came on the show, you talked about uh, the revolution in Iran being both religious and pop, a populist uprising. And they do have free health care in Iran. And I'm just curious, is, the, is this theocratic regime uh, holding true to its populist vision? And how much of the protests come from dissatisfaction with the, the quality of their life, not not the uh, oppression, but how is their economy doing? And is there a social safety net? Well, there is a social safety net. Um, but, you know, uh, the Trump administration uh, abruptly withdrew from the 2015 Iran nuclear deal in 2018, even though Iran had upheld its side of the bargain faithfully. And Iran went on doing that until 2019. And when Trump withdrew, he also slapped the harshest um, sanctions. And I think they go beyond being sanctions. I think they're a form of financial and trade embargo uh, on Iran that we have seen deployed against a country in peacetime. Uh, they're the kind of things that you would do to a, an enemy in war. Uh, and um, even to the extent of going around and twisting the arms of the Koreans and the Japanese and the Indians not to buy Iranian petroleum, you know, by the rules of international trade, I Iran should be able to sell its petroleum uh, freely. But U.S. has tried to stop that and it, it succeeded in cutting Iranian exports from two and a half million barrels a day at some points down to maybe only a couple hundred thousand barrels a day. So the United States has destroyed the Iranian economy, uh, which was, you know, 70% of it depended on oil receipts. Uh, the high oil prices in recent months have helped, certainly the regime, which controls the oil money. But uh, uh, with regard to the, 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 the Trump administration designated the Iranian National Bank, their equivalent of our Fed, as a terrorist organization. And that means, since it issues the rial, the, the Iranian currency, that anytime you deal in Iranian currency, you're, you're a, a, an a, a accomplice of terrorism. You're, uh, uh, you're giving material support to terrorism. So even a charity organization that donated money for food in Iran to poor people from some disaster could be charged. Now, the Treasury Department maintains that it's not prosecuting people on those grounds. But if you designate an entire financial system as a terrorist organization, then you're hurting people. Uh, it goes beyond just the regime. Uh, and, and so the, the middle class in Iran has been reduced to a lower middle class. They've been taken down a good half class. On the, and the lower middle class have been reduced to working class. And a lot of the working class are just poor. Uh, so... In the, in the years since 20, 2018, uh, Trump destroyed the Iranian economy, and, and the Biden administration hasn't lightened up uh, and uh, is using the Trump sanctions as a 
a stick in its negotiations to go go back to have Iran go back to full compliance with the 2015 nuclear deal. Are we going to so, would we see yeah. the the level of poverty in America? Would we see it in Tehran? Would we see it in Iran? Oh yeah, no, there is a lot of homelessness and. I don't know so much homelessness. You know, it's 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 a different kind of society uh, uh, where uh, there's not as much of that kind of anonymity that leads to homelessness. You know, families take care of their own and so forth. But uh, but there's people are hurting. You know, people in Iran who were middle class, they were used to being able to maybe go off for a vacation in Europe in the summer. Nobody's been able to do that for the last four years. And uh, uh, the people are just have been pushed down economically. And some of the discontent we see could be, you know, a reworking of that economic discontent. Uh, but um, uh, and, and so be a, a side effect of the American sanctions. Uh, and um, the other thing to say is that there's a generational component. Uh, it appears that a lot of these people, uh, like Massa herself, are uh, gener- Generation Z. They're, they're Zoomers, some people call them now. Uh, and uh, they're, they're 19, 20, 21, 22. Um, and uh, their values are not the same as their elders. Uh, and, and that's true in general of youth, right? Uh, the, the, the older are always complaining about this. But uh, I think there's a particularly strong disjunction between uh, someone like uh, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, the, the leader of Iran, uh, who's in his 80s, uh, and, and the and 21-year-olds in the street. And, you know, th- th- this is in part a protest uh, against autocracy, just against the dictatorship of everyday life, the degree to which people feel controlled by the state. Uh, they don't feel like they have their own autonomy. And, you know, a boy and a girl can't walk in the street holding hands. That would be an arrest uh, and uh, if they don't have a marriage certificate. Uh, and um, uh, dating rings on the Internet have sprung up uh, that are in the dark web, and uh, they're, they're treated the way that uh, the drug busts are treated in the United States, and there's cyber police who try to track down the dating rings and bust them up. So a lot of these young people are are yearning for more uh, personal autonomy. Uh, and that's been true, I think, of their their elders in the millennial generation, too, to some extent. And that's some of the acting out where they're burning their veils. Um, they're just uh, walking bareheaded in the street uh, and, and uh, uh, slogging off the, uh, the establishment. Um, you know, they're an internet generation, uh, and they, they're they're pretty cosmopolitan. They know about the rest of the world and how things are done. So they have uh, a measure against which to measure their own lives in Iran. One question I have about the consequences of the U.S. sanctions, and I just should tell listeners uh, that uh, they should look forward to an episode on the history of uh, sanctions on Iran with Muhammad Sahimi, who's written an article in the a good collection, Sanctions uh, as War, uh, will be talking with him on guerrilla history about the history of of these sanctions. Um, 
But given the severity of them and the fact that the JCPOA has not been resurrected under Biden, despite his campaign promises, and there's been a real um, tightening, um, you know, uh, on Iran, um, it seems like in some ways it is pushing it to uh, really accelerate its attempt to uh say, join the Shanghai Cooperation Organization to seek other geopolitical alliances, almost uh, a kind of a coalition of the sanctioned, you know, a lot of the countries that uh, like uh, Venezuela or Russia that have been subject to very strict U.S. sanctions are finding that they may need to collaborate and cooperate in a new sort of uh, block, uh, as it were. So I'm wondering what you think are um, some of the consequences, uh, perhaps, of the new geopolitical moment for Iran's uh, policy, and um, you know what uh, you know. Uh, what do you think? Um, you know, is is uh, driving Iran's kind of uh, position these days in in the Middle East and in its relations with the rest of the world? I noticed also, for example, there were a lot of uh, recent meetings with Erdogan, and they're looking to collaborate and cooperate on, you know, uh, security policy and economic trade. Uh, and Turkey is sort of head of one of these other kind of uh, uh, trade cooperatives that involves a lot of the Central Asian, uh, former Soviet Central Asian republics. And so I'm just wondering, how is Iran positioning itself in this in this moment? Well, the sanctions on Iran are third-party sanctions. So if uh, Total SA, the French oil company, were to invest in Iran, the U.S. State Department would fine it billions of dollars. And in fact, it has fined banks who essentially laundered money for Iran in Europe, uh, like HSBC. It has fined them uh, big time. And everybody in Europe is now afraid of those fines. Uh, and uh, so it's chased away. Uh, a direct foreign investment in Iran. Uh, the, the DFI just isn't there. Uh, the Chinese have resisted those U.S. sanctions to some extent. Uh, but the way they do it is the sanctions only affect international companies that deal in dollars and have trade, right. substantial trade with the United States. So the Chinese will spin off uh, a little local oil company for the Shanghai region that doesn't do international trade, mm -hmm. and they'll have it buy Iranian petroleum. So the U.S. could sanction <laughs> that right. that entity, but it wouldn't have any effect. They're not dealing in dollars. They're not. Uh, they don't have investments. The United States could, could be attached. So the Chinese have attempted to create some firewalls uh, in this way uh, to to so that they're. They probably import on the order of 800,000 to a million barrels a day from Iran, and they're keeping, helping to keep Iran afloat despite U.S. Uh, sanctions. Uh, and um, they seem to be inclined to do the same thing with Russia, because now Russia is in the same boat as Iran with regard to U.S. third-party sanctions. Uh, and uh, the U.S. keeps warning China not to go down that road. Uh, so, yes. Iran has um, made formal agreements with, with Russia to engage in bilateral trade in rubles and uh, rials uh, that don't involve dollars, don't involve uh, the, the uh, U.S.-dominated bank exchanges, and which are untouchable by the, by the Treasury Department. 
um, they're they're limiting and and you suffer a discount because if if you're selling Iran Iranian made goods to Russia and accepting rubles, rubles are a relatively soft currency, and so if you wanted to turn around and buy things from Africa with the rubles, you won't get a very good exchange rate, uh, and uh, and and so you're you're basically selling at a discount, uh, but. Um, uh, the same thing, of course, is true for Russia accepting uh, Iranian currency. But they're doing that now. And, right. and Iran and India have done it in the past to get around mm-hmm. the U.S. trade sanctions because India needs Iranian petroleum. Uh, so uh, there's that. Uh, there's Iran's desire. Uh, they put in formally to join the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, as you say, which groups the Central Asian former Soviet republics with China, uh, Russia, and now India and Pakistan, uh, and it will soon Iran will be uh, joining them. Um, the SCO is not a very powerful organization. They do some joint military exercises. They try to do some uh, some multilateral trade, but frankly, a lot of them produce the same kind of things. So they're not very good trade partners. You know, most trade is north south. And they don't uh, trade uh, like the Iranians and the Russians both produce petroleum, so they they, they can't be of that much use to one another. Uh, uh, and so um, it, it's not it's not by any means a substitute for being able to trade with Japan and Korea and France and Germany, uh, as some of the leading economies in the world. But it is, you know, with a with a essentially one party regime like the Iranian regime, it's really only the elite that needs to be happy. Uh, and the elite can be kept happy with these measures. So, uh, and as long as the ordinary people, you know, acquiesce in the rule of the elite, uh, then uh, things can go on as, the, as they have been, even under sanctions. And the sanctions are leaky. Uh, petroleum states are very hard to sanction because petroleum is fungible. You, once you refine it into gasoline, uh, it's a little bit like currency. It can be smuggled. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you, if you put Iranian petroleum on trucks and you truck it over to Turkey and there's a border with Turkey, wouldn't the Turks buy it? I mean, <laughs> you know, gasoline is, is, is in Michigan is over $4 a barrel uh, in U.S. currency. And uh, uh, if, if somebody came along and offered you to, uh, $2, $2, $2, I mean, it's, it's $4 a gallon. If, you, if they offered you $2 a gallon, wouldn't you take it? Uh, so that's, uh, the oil is smuggled. Also, the Iranians have been secretly um, uh, going to Iraq and giving them a deal where the Iraq will export uh, Iraqi and, and Iranian petroleum mixed and then kick back some of the profits to Iran, but the Iraqis get a good cut. Uh, so, you know, the United States is not going to stop those those uh, oil ships coming off of Iraq, and, uh, uh, and there's not very much that they can do about this. So Iran has been being kept afloat uh, right. by, by these sanctions de- sanctions defiance. But in the villages, in the small towns, uh, there's high inflation coming off of COVID everywhere in the world, and that's hitting Iran as well. Uh, there's higher energy costs because of the sanctions, uh, and the sanctions have hurt people's real income. So uh, that's another form of inflation that they're facing. Uh, so there's a lot of free-floating economic anxiety, which is feeding into these protests. And ironically enough, we've seen this before in history, because in 1953, 
the CIA overthrew the Iranian uh, government, but it came at the end of two years of U.S. and British international sanctions on Iran, which destabilized the Iranian economy and created a lot of grief among the common people who then started demonstrating against the nationalist government and it made it much easier to overthrow that government. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. So uh, perhaps uh, history may be a guide to what we may see. Um, well, I'm looking to see if there are any questions uh, in the Q&A or in the chat. Um, uh, while people are, are uh, thinking of their questions and, and entering them in, um, I guess the last sort of thought on this uh, question of sanctions and the Iran nuclear deal is do you find it at all surprising? Maybe it isn't surprising given the importance of their economic connection with the U.S. and they've been frightened by the enforcement of these third-party sanctions. But with the energy crisis looming, do you think that there is much of a chance that there'll be pressure, at least from the Europeans, to um, conclude some kind of a deal? Uh, they've been acting as, as mediators, but... Um, you know, they haven't really been very assertive um, uh, in pushing the United States uh, to come to the table and agree to uh, restoration of the JCPOA. How do you read the situation regarding the nuclear deal and why there's been um, an abeyance, it seems, um, you know, after what appeared to be some productive negotiations taking place in August, it seems everything's been frozen and on hold. Uh, since then? Well, the Biden administration made a big error because when Biden first came in, the president of Iran was Hassan Rouhani. And Rouhani kept signaling that if Biden just announced, if he would just announce that the mm -hmm. U.S. was back in the JCPOA, uh, that Iran would immediately go back to uh, observing its limits on Iranian nuclear enrichment. Iran does not have a nuclear weapons program. This is something that our journalists, uh, somehow, it's not easy to get it through their heads and our politicians are worse. Uh, but it doesn't have a nuclear weapons program. It has a civilian nuclear enrichment program for making fuel for its reactor in, in Boucher. And yes, they make more fuel than is necessary. And, you know, it's, it's a dual use technology so that if they ever wanted to have a weapons program, what they're learning would be useful to them. But they don't have a weapons program. The CIA keeps saying this, and nobody will listen to them. And yeah, well, they don't have a weapons program. They, and, and you see, you, you can read in the papers of record in the Washington Post, New York Times, sometimes journalists will write Iran's nuclear weapons program. There is no such thing. It's it's a unicorn. It's, it's a, a phantasm. It doesn't exist. Uh, A lot of countries uh, enrich uranium uh, for energy purposes without having nuclear bombs. So South South Korea does it, and I, the, the Netherlands pioneered using centrifuges for enrichment. Uh, it's it's a quite a common technology in the world. Uh, if you wanted to accuse the South Koreans, so you could, but. There isn't one, yeah. I mean, they're, they're doing the same thing the Iranians are doing. Uh, uranium comes in two forms in, in nature. One is more volatile and more rare, and one is 
more inert and 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 more common. Uh, and if you, I'm not a scientist, so don't hold me to these details. But if you if you gasify these uh, uh, the uranium uh, and and swirl it around in a centrifuge, the, the more volatile uh, element is. Uh, uh, of a different weight than than the, the less volatile, and they get separated out a bit. So you can increase by by whirling them around. You can increase the amount of the volatile U two thirty five versus the uh, the more the, the less volatile U two thirty eight. And so if you if you could enrich the the, the uranium to ninety five percent U two thirty five. And then you put it in a hard box and, and put an explosive, and it's it's very complicated. It's not something that even most governments are able to do, uh, but you could theoretically cause an explosion. Uh, but um, the Iranians have never uh, enriched beyond sixty percent, uh, so they don't have uh, bomb-ready uranium, uh, and. Uh, uh, the Iranian state that is under the, the thumb of the Ayatollah, and he says that it's contrary to Islamic ethics to, to blow up people with an atomic bomb, because in Islamic law of war, you're not allowed to injure non-combatants. Well, what, what was what was Hiroshima or Nagasaki, but wiping out hundreds of thousands of non-combatants? Oh, sure, they'd kill Palestinians, but they wouldn't do it. Well, they don't have it. They don't have it to (laughs) fire. Uh, They they just have dumb bombs. uh, And uh, uh, the Israelis are the ones that have a nuclear weapon. Uh, They have a a couple hundred uh, uh, warheads from what anybody can tell. We think that Netanyahu jumps up and down about Iran uh, because he wants to take the uh, the focus off of what the Israelis are doing to the Palestinians. It's a uh, it's one of those like in Star Wars. These are not the droids you're looking for. Well, now, now with the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, um, uh, there's uh, $369 billion of federal money behind uh, renewable energy and uh, tax breaks uh, for companies that make things in the United States. So we're going to see the emergence of uh, a reemergence of a U.S. solar panel industry. Uh, there, there are tax breaks to individuals. I put solar panels on my house in 2013. And I got a $7,500 rebate on them. Uh, and I've got an electric car, which I I, I fuel from the solar panels. So I, I don't do any business with Saudi Arabia myself. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I'm a professor. I'm a middle-class person. I can afford to do this. Not everybody can. But now 
there's going to be even more government goodies for people who do these things. And so you're going to see a vast increase in, in this, uh, uh, in, in renewables, um, it, in and of itself, it won't quite be enough to get us to our goal of reduction of 50% of carbon dioxide by 2030. But it and other things, like there's $2 billion in the IRA for uh, for research and development. So if we can make more efficient solar panels, uh, then every everybody who puts one up will be reducing carbon twice as, as much. And... Um, uh, if we can uh, make more efficient uh, electric cars that are cheaper and uh, and uh, go further on a charge, uh, they'll be more acceptable to the general public. Although, you know, the, the Chevy Bolt uh, uh, gets, I think, 250 miles on a charge, and they and Chevy has dropped price in U.S. dollars to 26,000, and you get a $7,500 rebate from the IRA because it's assembled in the United States. So basically, you can get an electric car made by Chevy, which is essentially a luxury automobile that was selling two years ago for $35,000. You can get it for the equivalent of $19,500. I, people were crazy not to get it. And then and you don't have to pay $4 a gallon for gasoline. Uh, and w- w- the first time I got an electric car, you know, when we were plugging it in at the home, we wondered what, what it would do to our electric bill. Well, it didn't seem to change it much. It doesn't show up. Uh, and, and then we put up the solar panels, so it's free. Excellent. We do have a couple of uh, quick questions um, that did come in. Uh, these may be difficult to answer, however. Uh, Rodrigo asks, um, some leftists worry that the CIA may be behind these protests, but we've seen videos of the police killing women. How can we help here? Um, and then, um, we have from YouTube, a question, uh, how can we promote peace or at least promote harm reduction? Well, you know, with regard to promoting peace and harm reduction, uh, Americans underestimate their power. Uh, they have a power to elect people who believe in those ideals. Uh, they have the power to organize, to canvas, to walk neighborhoods, to knock on doors, to give money, uh, and they have the power to write to their rec- uh, elected representatives. Almost no Americans write. And I've I've consulted with Congress. I've talked to Congress people. They tell me that they they do a multiplier. If they get a letter from a constituent that, who's worried about some issue, they think that well there must be lots of people who are worried who don't write. So they take these things very seriously. We don't put enough pressure on our elected representatives. We just let the corporations go. Uh, you know, if you're in, in the Capitol Hill, these these guys, uh, 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 Ross Perot used to say, they're wearing alligator shoes and, and, and $1,000 suits, walking up and down, going to the congressman's office and lobbying them for this, that, or the other corporation. But we, the people, can do this too, and we don't bother to do it. And we don't, half of us don't bother to vote. Uh, and even in, in presidential elections, and only a third of us vote in, in midterms, uh, which, which means that we're not being represented. Who else is? Other people are being represented who do vote, and they're mostly old, white, rich, and cranky. Uh, so uh, uh, you, you can make a difference. If you're an American, you have a lot of power uh, by organizing and putting pressure on your government and, and electing the right kind of people to Congress. And we're just, we could do it. 
we could, we, if, if more people were mobilized, we could do it. We could have a better government, but we don't do it. Uh, and, and with regard to helping Iran, get the word out. This is not a CIA operation. I know what a CIA operation looks like. We saw that in 1953. They go to the generals and say, guys, make a coup. Yeah. Here's $60 million. That, that's how they make that, that's how the CIA operates. It doesn't doesn't go to Sanandaj in, in Iranian Kurdistan and stir up crowds to protest about veiling. This is coming from the Iranian people. So share, share, share uh in uh uh in social media, share wherever you can, get the word out of what these brave young Iranians and Iranian women are doing uh, on the street. Well, thank you so much, uh, Juan. It's great to have you back, and we learned an awful lot, um, uh, especially about Iran, but also uh, encouragement. Uh, I think this was music for David's ears, encouragement uh, for taking the midterm seriously, getting out there uh, and try and put in uh, people who will uh, act on the will of the people, so express that will. Thanks so much for uh, all of your insights and for your time uh, today. That, that means a lot to me, David. Thank, Thank you. you. It's always a great stop for me. Thank you so day. much. Thank you. Were you able to hear me? Because my microphone was, I thought my microphone was. Yeah, turned. we can hear you. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Loud and clear. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, we're going to find, we have uh, Peter B. Collins here, who is back from the Planetary Defense Center, where they've been moving Oh, and thank you, uh, Professor Adnan Hussein. Uh, great job. Uh, thank you. Uh, thanks. Thanks very much. Just one quick plug. Yes. People, um, since actually I, I'm not going to be here uh, Thursday, unfortunately, so I won't have a chance to plug it. But the Crusading Society, a free, open, online course, a FOOC, if you will, um, <laughs> is... Uh, taking place this uh, Saturday, 9.30 to 11. It's the start of it. If you're interested in the way in which medieval history may contribute to our understanding of Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, um, and other similar phenomena, uh, do drop in. You can register uh, for it and get the Google Meet at uh, my website, www.adnanhussein.org slash courses. If you go there, you can register for the course and uh, it'll go for 10 weeks. And um, I'm really looking forward to it. So Me too. Do, do come by. I, I'm so excited about this. I know very little about the Crusades and you piqued my curiosity. So I've been reading up on the Crusades and it's a, a great 
it, it will give us, I can see that's going to give me a, a much keener understanding of the map and the, the, the conflicts that are going on and, and why. What, what, that's what we're going to start with on yeah. the first day. So we're going to look at maps. We're going to get a sense of the context, and then we'll get into you know other themes. But uh, I think you're absolutely right. You got to first start with where is everything, who's where, what are they doing, uh, before you can uh, see what happens in the chess chess game. You got to see where the pieces are first. So that's what we'll do on the first day. Fantastic. Thank you. I'm sorry you won't be there Thursday. Thank you so much, Professor Adnan Hussein, and thank you for bringing. Professor Cole in. The best way to thank this show is to go to rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A dot org. It is a food pantry for refugees in the Bay Area. It is run by Professor Adnan Hussein's family. There is no better way to thank this show or Professor Hussein, or anybody involved with this show, the best way to thank everybody here is by going to rahima.org, R-A-H-I-M-A.org, and donating to this food pantry for refugees here in the United States. The food is, go look at the food. They don't waste money. It's beans, yogurt, it's all good, healthy food. Well, today, tonight, I believe it was 6 o'clock, Peter B. Collins was at the Interplanetary Defense Center. Where were you? Were they, where DART was, I'm going to bring in Professor Marianne Cummings, if she, because she's a, there we go, uh, besides being the Parks Commissioner in Aurora, Illinois, she's also a particle physicist who actually understands how these things work. Where were you today? Did we move the asteroid to the left, I hope? I know we can't move <laughs> Biden to the left. Well, David, you're presuming that I understand all this stuff. From what I saw, a Dodge Dart was put <laughs> on a path to run into a big rock in outer space. And uh, we think good shit happened, but we're still waiting for the data to be beamed back to Earth. I, I and... Where I was, uh, was at the intersection of, of futurists and retired astronauts who have been activists on this subject for more than 20 years. So let me, let me give a little background. This the event so I went to was a watch party held at a bar that is called <laughs> The Interval. And this bar is different from any other watering hole you've been to. It's located at Fort Mason, David, if you remember that from your mm -hmm. days in San Francisco. And it is part of the extended uh, work of Stuart Brand. Stuart Brand uh, has been acknowledged as a, a future thinker for many decades. He founded the Whole Earth Catalog back in the late 1960s. That begat the Whole Earth Foundation, which one of the offshoots there was called The Well, which was one of the first online communities when the internet uh, became a thing. So uh, one of the uh, byproducts of this is called the B612 Foundation and the Asteroid Society. Two retired astronauts, Rusty Schweikert, 
now some 84 years young and extremely sharp and lucid. He was there Apollo today. Apollo 8, I believe, right? Uh, I think it was 9. I think you're okay. Uh, let me double check Not here. So I actually, no, I, I like to do it in the facts. Uh, yes, he was the lunar module pilot on Apollo 9. And uh, so Rusty was there with Ed Liu, L-U, who is primarily a space shuttle guy. He's younger. And a colleague whose name is Steve Smith, not to be confused with the drummer of Journey. And Steve Smith is yet younger, another generation uh, from NASA. And uh, the three of them are active in this group that was founded over Ed Lou's kitchen table. And he said a number of bottles of wine uh, with Rusty Schweikert in the year 2000. And they recognized the risk to planet Earth of asteroids that could hit and uh, produce quite a bit of damage. And so this, this whole idea was kind of considered far out uh, for a long period of time. And while NASA is getting oodles of credit for it today, Ed Liu made the comment, well, they opposed it forever, but now <laughs> that they have funding for it, it's their idea. But it really came from Schweikert and Lou. And with uh, and my connection to this is my longtime friend, Danica Remy. Danica is the president of the B612 Foundation. They put on Asteroid Day uh, every year, which was, is a public education event. And they were careful not to take excessive personal credit for this. But uh, both Schweikert and Lou acknowledged that had they not been working on this for the last 20 years, uh, this wouldn't have happened today. And part of it, they will explain, is that NASA's mission has been space exploration, not any form of planetary defense. And so Lou and Schweikert lobbied members of Congress and in 2017, they got these several hundred million dollars in funding that was partially for today's uh, demolition derby mm -hmm. <laughs> in, in, uh, at an orbit level of about 70 miles uh, above the Earth. And the uh, test that they did today had multiple purposes. So well, the funding sorry, the was not exclusively for this. Go ahead. How far away was the asteroid? Uh, 70 miles from Earth. 70? No, not 70 miles, was it? Yeah. That, that's no. what they told me. That close? Is that wrong? I, that can't be right. If it were 70 miles from Earth, we'd be like having a freak out. Well, I but think these, it was millions of miles from Earth. Okay, I, I wrote down 70 because that's what was, was said at this watch party. But what they also said was that these two asteroids, uh, Dimorphos and uh, its companion, are not a threat to the Earth. So this was not <clears throat> a test of uh, protecting the Earth from an asteroid that was inbound. It was a demonstration of the ability to uh, 
alter the orbit of an asteroid in space. So somebody just put up 70,000 miles. Um, that could be true. And yes, I did have a drink at the watch party because <laughs> it's a bar. <laughs> so uh, you can take that into account. Right. Uh, but what, what was fascinating, and by the way, David, you asked me to invite Rusty Schweikert on the Feldman podcast, and he has accepted in principle. Uh, oh. I had to do a little bit of a sales job. He said, you know, I've been on with some comedians, and it doesn't always go really well. Did you tell him I'm not funny? <laughs> There's nothing to worry about? Uh, well, I told him you're from Jersey and that you knew about Neptune, the town oh. of his birth. Oh, good. Uh, but he he is remarkable at explaining these concepts to uh, a very undereducated layperson like me. <laughs> and so it was really great to be in the presence of the people who fostered um, this whole movement and who persuaded members of Congress to pony up the money. And once NASA had the money, um, they were able to complete this mission because before that, it wasn't part of their designated, uh, 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 you know, uh, purview. So uh, I found it a great experience. They told us that the Hubble and the Webb telescopes, along with what I call the sidecar, there was a, uh, a little mini, uh, uh, what do we call it? <laughs> uh, satellite, a mini satellite that essentially was spun off from DART, and DART stands for uh, Double Asteroid Redirection Test. The DART uh, satellite, described as the size of a refrigerator, it spun off this little guy who took pictures of the impact. So, uh, we're watching the countdown, right? And every other countdown I've seen was a countdown to liftoff. <laughs> and you watch it go into the sky until right. it gets so small it disappears. Well, this was a countdown to impact. Like 14,000 miles an hour, right? Uh, 60,000 miles an hour. Uh, fact checkers can work on that, but I wrote that down too. <laughs> okay. And that was before I had a drink. Uh, <laughs> This bar is incredible. Uh, I have to say, they, they make infused cocktails, uh, you know, custom with great ingredients. So uh, the, this whole episode, the data is already being uh, beamed back to Earth. Uh, and Schweikert and Lou explained that there are two possibilities from this intentional impact, which apparently was a bullseye. Uh, from everything I could tell, they were on the perfect trajectory, and right up until the point where the cameras went uh, went off, you know, went blank, uh, we were seeing uh, an increasing close-up of the surface of the asteroid, and they said that the impact. Uh, is intended to change the orbit of uh, Dimorphos uh, to, and it, it, it shares an orbit with Didymus. And so 
the impact is intended to prove that a human space missile of some sort can change the trajectory of an asteroid before it becomes a, a threat to planet Earth. Now, I've noticed since the impact, I've been dizzy, and I think they've disrupted the order of the universe. Never in the history of this universe has somebody tried to alter God's will. I don't uh, Let me bring in a physicist here, a particle <laughs> physicist. I'm going to assume Dimorphos, the, the asteroid, weighs a couple of tons. Is that a fair uh, estimate, Professor Marianne Cummings, particle physicist? Megatons? I, I don't really know how um, heavy. It's a Didymos, the, the major asteroid that Dimorphos is, ob is going around is, is like, what, a half mile wide? Dimorphos is about 500 feet in diameter. So, uh, so explain phys the physics of this. Because there's no gravity, if... Oh, there is gravity. Well, it, it has a gravitational pull. Yeah. But... This is a weird little let system. Me, let me, they, hang on for a okay. second. Let me ask my question. If you push into something, uh, it, it, it'll stay in motion? Or, or until it's captured by another gravitational pull, correct? Mm -hmm. So how does that work? How hard do you have to well, hit this thing? You, I would assume you don't have to hit it that hard to make oh, it go there, someplace There's quite else. a bit of momentum with that uh, small dart vehicle crashing into Dimorphos. How they're measuring it, from what I understand, is that this is a... Uh, this is a and I didn't realize this was a thing, but they were studying this. Um, it's kind of like a binary system, binary asteroid system with uh, Dimorphos and, and uh, uh, what was it? Didymus. Didymus, yeah. Yes. Orbiting around each other, but it looks because Dimorphos is so much smaller, it's mostly Dimorphos looking like it's going around uh, uh, Didymus. And so they've been able to they've been tracking this thing for like, what, 30 years or something like that. And they've been a, they've been able to uh, measure the um, uh, the orbit of, of this smaller asteroid along around the bigger one and to the Nats eyelash, presumably. And now, because we made an impact, that's going to change the orbit a little bit because you are, you know, you you basically injected a force into the um mechanics the basic orbital mechanics so they're going to measure that and um and how accurately they 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 can measure it very accurately but they're going to see just how much of an impact from the change in the orbit of the smaller guy around the bigger guy and that's going to tell them a lot about how much we can change the orbits in general of these of of these meteors i mean i don't think this was this was meant to be a demo. This was meant to be, you know, uh, if there was a real planetary ending asteroid coming our way, the thing that we launched would probably be a great deal bigger. But we wanted to make sure that we could actually do a small test. And that thing was launched about, what, 10 months ago? It took about 10 months from, right. to, to get there. And now... And apparently before, like a like about a week or so ago, there were a couple of little what they called cube 
satellites that were launched off of the of the DART uh, of the the major DART vehicle, and they're left to kind of orbit around the system and take pictures of you know what happens in the wake and the dust up. Um, I don't think that it's going to destroy Didymos, but uh, I don't think that was the point. The point is, is that can we predict and can we can we deflect uh, an asteroid in any significant way and can, in a predictable way? And I think that's what made everybody so excited because it looked like it was a direct hit and they're going to get really good data. So, you know, the science kind of begins when we get uh, information back from one of these little, you know, orbiting cube satellites around the binary system. That's and one of the, Marianne, one of the things that Schweikert talked about, which I found really interesting, is uh, the term ejecta. So mm-hmm. we slam the asteroid with this vehicle, this DART um, mm-hmm. refrigerator, if you want. And there were two possibilities. One is that it would create a crater. And the other is that it would throw off uh, fragments. And that's what he referred to as ejecta. I love yeah. that word. So I like it too. Yeah. I said, so I he set was, off when, rejecta. That's the story of my life. Just, <laughs> just. So he said, in his view, uh, deflection is better than fragmentation because the goal is not to break up the asteroid or destroy it but simply to alter its orbit. And to that goal, um, deflection is the desired goal. He also said that um, the ejecta would have a momentum multiplier. So think of of two cars crashing at 60 miles an hour, and they both recoil uh, from the impact. Mm-hmm. And he's saying um, Ed Lu predicted that the multiplier would be around three. And Rusty Schweikert said that he would be satisfied with a 1.5. <laughs> I'm not so, sure what they meant by that. I mean, were they talking about relative elasticity or in, inelasticity of the collision? Um, I, I'm not sure. What does that mean? Well, um, if you in, in basic mechanics, you can um, think of an elastic collision as basically uh, not in changing of a, a couple of balls not changing their fundamental structure. That basically they collide and momentum is exchanged and they get deflected. Whereas an inelastic collision is one is where you a lot of the energy goes and kind of to crunch up and you know significantly alter the internal structure of, uh, you know, what was the two our particles colliding or two objects colliding. So um, if you if, if you don't break apart, you know, <laughs> breaking apart an asteroid would be a massive, like, you know, restructuring of the asteroid. Um, if you don't, uh, if it's, yeah, there's a little bit of, it's probably kick up some dust, which would be interesting because I'm sure that they have, like, all kinds of detectors on these little cubey satellites that are going to do spectral analysis of what gets kicked up. But if you, if the little asteroid stays intact, then you'll have a really good measure because the, the actual um, impact, the, the overall measure of the impact is going to be tracked by uh, systems, you know, on the earth. 
And that's in, in long term, they're going to just be measuring the changed uh, orbit of uh, dimorphous around Did- Didymus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. what. So that's basically going to be the core, you know, sort of of the mission. But, you know, being able to study what gets kicked up, being able to study what kind of impact crater, if any, this thing makes will tell you something about the structure of these asteroids. So it'll be, you know, geologists will be really thrilled with with this data, I'm sure. Well, that is one of the issues is what is the composition of the asteroid? And to what extent can that be evaluated uh, by the impact, by the photos of mm-hmm. the debris uh, field or uh, debris zone? And then the mathematical calculations uh, about whether the orbit's changed. And uh, you mentioned uh, the idea of blowing up um, a threatening asteroid. And a gentleman who was there, who he he said he's not quite as old as Rusty Schweikert, so let's say he's 80. His name is Dave Morrison, and he described being at a meeting at Los Alamos with Edward Teller, uh, the father of the nuclear bomb, or at least one of them. And Teller and wanted that, to redirect the trajectory of the asteroid to land on Russia. Not quite. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> But he, Wrong again. <laughs> he, was, he was an early advocate for planetary defense, and he encouraged uh, testing uh, like the DART test today. And Morrison quipped, but he wanted to nuke it. <laughs> so Teller, uh, you know, was proud of his baby and thought that deploying it in, in space was uh, somehow a good thing uh, as uh, you know, an amateur, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. The The other uh, takeaway from the uh, commentary that we got today was the speculation about where an asteroid would hit, which creates a political discussion about whether the uh, projected spot of impact was worthy of saving. And so this creates political calculations where we say, well, if it's going to hit in Manhattan, uh, certainly, you know, we would do everything to stop it. But if it's going to hit in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, would we care? Would we marshal the forces and spend the money uh, to try to address that? And, and they pointed out that uh, there's now a, a very uh, credible inventory of the asteroids in our solar system. And this is one of the byproducts of this B612 Foundation and the work of Schweikert and Liu, that um, they fostered the efforts mostly done in academic circles to inventory the, the total potential of asteroids that could hit the Earth. And so when they discussed this, they said, we can project the line to Earth of an asteroid that is headed this way. We cannot predict the point of impact. And so essentially, if you draw a circle around the Earth, 
you could say that depending on the actual moment of, of impact and the orbital position of the Earth at that moment, uh, that, you know, we wouldn't really find out until pretty close to impact uh, where the actual uh, target location is going to be. And so this is something that they have elevated to the United Nations, a Committee on Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. And the astronauts have been to the UN and to its various uh, subgroups to raise awareness about this and to try to come up with a more global um, response mechanism as opposed to one that's driven by national governments with big budgets. So it's... That, that, to me, was the uh, most provocative concern that was raised in the context of this uh, uh, event today. Hmm. Hey, was this group or any group they were affiliated, affiliated with the one mentioned in uh, the movie Don't Look Up? Um, I don't think so. They did mention a group, and as an aside, uh, they it was noted that this was a real group. It was like a planetary defense group. Hmm. And I'm, uh, I'm not sure about that. The one thing I can mention for rock fans is that Brian May, the uh, guitarist for Queen, is an ast- he's an astrophysicist, yeah. and he is a co-founder of uh, Asteroid Day. And he's on the board of the uh, B612 Foundation. Oh, okay. When do we know if it was a success? Uh, well, on the, the, in the in the simplest terms, it was a success because the dart. But hit we don't know if it the asteroid. Ag- but we don't know if it moved the asteroid. Correct. Uh, they say that in the next three or four days, there will be enough data to provide a preliminary finding on that. And that's okay. mostly coming from the Webb and, and Hubble uh, telescopes. Yep. Now, more importantly, unless Professor Marianne Cummings has any more questions about no, it. No, no. God, I wish I was there. That sounds like a fun party. It really was. <laughs> more Now, let, let's find out. You've been away for three weeks. You were in Italy. You're there for, I don't know how many, you were also in Ireland. What did you do to Italy that they would move all the way to the right? What did you say? (laughs) They now have a fascist leader. What did you do? Well, we spent two weeks uh, outside of Florence. So that is Tuscany. That is northern Italy, not all the way north. Milan and, and of course, uh, uh, other cities are, are north of Florence. But it's, it's in the north central part of the country. And I was surprised at how little uh, notice the election was drawing. Uh, you didn't see billboards. I didn't watch any television. Well, they have a new so government every year. They do, yeah. So it's but this this is a you know the the first fascist government since Mussolini, and uh, honestly, the Italians I talked to were not discussing politics. So uh, I don't have any particular insight other than to say it was a very low turnout election, and the uh, Fratelli uh, party 
I believe, garnered only 25% of the uh, vote in the parliament, uh, which will obviously force it into a coalition government. And they say, Howie Klein wrote over Down with Tyranny that had the left done a better job, I, I, I think he said something, the left of center actually did better, but they weren't a coalition. I think that's what. He- well, they may have done better than before. Yeah, but um, you know the the three right wing groups are this Fratelli, uh, led by the woman, and uh, uh, the uh, party of Mario Draga, which Draghi, I guess it is, is Forza, and then uh, Berlusconi. Uh, the discredited former uh, prime minister is still a factor. And so those three groups, uh, I think, garnered the 25%. Uh, so uh, it, it remains to be seen if they can form an effective government that is also um, honoring the fascist uh, uh, campaign that uh, led to this change of the guard. Your luggage. (laughs) Well, uh, I'll keep this as brief as possible, but I'm blaming MBAs, people with masters in business administration, because the the travel industry is collapsing and the airlines uh, are not prepared for the level of traffic that they have uh, post-COVID. To save money, they laid off all their senior people, including the people who knew how to get bags to where they're supposed to go. And so uh, we flew into Ireland. We were there for four days. And I was reunited with my suitcase on day four. Uh, I was in possession for about 12 hours when I checked it uh, on a flight from Dublin to Geneva, Switzerland, where we're supposed to connect to a flight to Florence. What airline are we talking about? Uh, Swiss Air, uh, which is now a an offshoot of uh, Lufthansa. And I expected better things. Maybe it's just a bias in favor of the Swiss and their watches. Right. <laughs> uh, at any rate, it was three weeks ago today that I last saw both of our bags <laughs> go down that conveyor belt. <laughs> and... I got an email from somebody today who is offering a sliver of hope. Uh, they represent some group called uh, uh, Give Me My Bags Back or right. something like that. And they don't say that they have the bags, but they know my address and they're willing to deliver them if they can just find them. It, it's called Where's My Suitcase? <laughs> so what? What rights do you have as a passenger when they lose your suitcase? Well, uh, I had to buy some new clothes, and I'd never been into an H&M store before, David. And I I bought a couple of of T-shirts and things that were made in Myanmar. And I I didn't know H&M went that low in the sweatshop uh, chain. And they they give you... uh, it varies, but Swiss Air uh, gives an economy passenger $100 a day for up to five days to buy replacement clothing. And then uh, after that, you have a $1,500 limit 
uh, of total loss. Uh, it's actually more generous in the United States because of the uh, Passenger Bill of Rights from a few years ago. Uh, so, you know, it, the stuff that I'm missing is just some of my favorite T-shirts and, and things like that. But Kathy uh, had put a computer in her checked bag because we had a seven-hour layover in Geneva and we wanted to explore the town without lugging everything with us. So uh, that computer is a Mac that put off a signal for the first two days, which led us to believe that our bags never left Dublin. <laughs> <laughs> then that trail went cold, uh -huh. and uh, our Swiss air flight from Geneva to Florence was canceled, we were put up in a hotel overnight where they gave us card keys to enter rooms that were already occupied. Oh, that? <laughs> I open this one door and I hear these female screams. Hello. <laughs> well, welcome so then in. The, the next day we were rebooked on Air France from Geneva to Paris to Florence. And uh, there is a red herring thread that the bags actually made it from Geneva to Paris before they... They got lost there. So uh, we may never see them again, but uh, I will, you know, my, my son has advised me, Peter, just take what you can carry and carry on. But now the airlines are threatening to charge you for carry on. Wow. Because so many people have shifted from, you know, to avoid the baggage fees and the risk of paying a baggage fee and losing the bag anyway. Uh, and so all the overhead bins are filled and they've decided this is another cash cow that they can squeeze. Uh, and, and my last comment is that every airport now has signs that says, uh, don't flip out or we'll arrest you. But they're creating the conditions. I, I don't condone anybody who smacks a flight attendant or who acts out on an airplane. But the airlines are so... Uh, <laughs> they're in such a bad state. They're not delivering what they sell you. And there are a lot of people who are justifiably angry. And I'm a not a quick-to-anger guy, but I had to really hold back a couple of times. But it's not just America. It's, it's the whole... It's it is worldwide. It's worldwide. Yeah. I took a tour of the baggage uh, warehouses at the Florence airport. There are more than 2,000 pieces of luggage there. Wow. And it's worse at Heathrow and in Amsterdam. So thank you for indulging my rant. Best meal you had in Italy. And then we'll let you go. Uh, in the uh, San Lorenzo market in Florence, the guy who is uh, cooking pasta way back in the corner second floor back in the corner and i had a pasta with porcini mushroom sauce that was just superb it, it lived up to a stanley tucci episode best best day uh, best day on th of the three weeks well um i did get covid and so did kathy which uh, put a damper on the last week while we were there um, you got covid but, on the trip yeah, yeah. Extra virgin style, man, in Italy. <laughs> uh, at any rate, uh, we really enjoyed a little town called Arezzo, which is south of uh, Florence. 
And it's one of those walled cities with a tower and uh, a whole lot of history. And it's off the beaten path. There were no Game of Thrones fans there. What do you do when you get COVID in Italy with all that free health care? That must have been a well, shock to the system. It, it's interesting because we looked into getting... Uh, Actually, the, they didn't the, do too well when it first hit. No. And... Despite the free health care, a course of Pavlovics, the antiviral, would cost me $1,900 as a non-citizen in Italy. Really? Yeah. So I had to pass. I passed on that. Wow. Wow. Yeah. But the, the, the other piece was uh, Ireland was kind of a roots tour for me. I went to the area where my mother's family came from, which is at the very north tip of County Donegal. And we also spent a night in Belfast. And the troubles are over. There's a great exhibit at the Ulster Museum there. But the bitterness remains. And Brexit um, has, has you know brought it into kind of a new life. Uh, and, and I'll just tell you this quick story. Kathy was at a, a, a thrift shop buying something, and it was only four or five euros. But we didn't. We were only in the UK technically for a day, so we didn't buy any pound sterling. And she offered to pay with euros, and the woman just said, "Oh no, no, never euros. I'd rather you just give me your credit card, and I'll lose money on this transaction." Really. <laughs> Wow. Yep. Uh, I hope you feel better. You, I, you do sound a little congested, right? There's crud, yeah. yeah. And a little brain fog. The, the COVID brain fog is a real thing. Yeah. And so is parting with astronaut Rusty Schweiker. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a high point, I have yeah, to I say. Know. I know. They're... they're they're gods. The, for me, they're, 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 they're gods on Earth, the, the Apollo astronauts. Uh, well, I will, I will work to line him up for a, a Feldman visit as soon as he can schedule it. I, and I, you do the interview and I'll lay back. No, not entirely, because you, you can see there are a few holes in my knowledge of space and physics. Uh, pretty good. <laughs> It's great to have you back. We missed you. We really did. Well, I missed you, and I, I hope you managed in my absence. We did. I'm we, sure we, you did. We held, we held it together just barely. Thank you, Peter B. Collins. Go to peterbcollins.com for this man's podcasts, interviews, and radio shows. Thank you, sir. Feel better. Yeah. Thank you. I will. 10-4. Particle physicist Marianne Cummings, Professor Marianne Cummings, lot to talk about. Uh, your thoughts on this uh, moving the moving an asteroid? D does that give you hope? If we're able to move an asteroid? And, and then earlier, Professor Juan Cole was saying that solar power so is moving ahead faster than than we think it is. He also said that Iran does not have a nuclear weapons program that the CIA has said so. You know something about nuclear power. He basically said that we could spin any country 
with a nuclear reactor, we could claim they have a nuclear uh, weapons program if we want to. Is that tr true? That would that would um, rely on the abysmal ignorance of the audience that they were spinning that to. Well, I mean, in America, we, we could we we went yeah. to war in Iraq based on on that. How many countries have nuclear reactors? I would assume quite a few. Quite a few. Yeah. So we could. I mean, uh, there were. I was just in touch the other day with some uh, Argentinian colleagues who are doing stuff for Fermilab. Uh, they're a private company, but they are physicists, and they were building some stuff for uh, detectors for Fermilab. But they also. Uh, did a lot of the engineering for the test reactor that Argentina has just built, which I found very, you know, um, which I found very interesting. So the, you, um, work, you work in that field. You know a lot about nuclear power plants. More if, than I did about three years ago, that's for sure. If, because, if you had a mischievous CIA, if you had a president who, for whatever reason, wanted to go to war with Argentina, it would be easy to claim because they have a nuclear power plant that they are weaponizing, they're enriching the uranium and they have a weapons program, correct? Well, you've had, you know, everybody, you've had a lot of people now, um, commentators talking about the politicization of, this, of the CIA and all of our uh, intelligence agencies. Remember the whole stovepiping issue where mm -hmm. Dick Cheney goes down to CIA headquarters to make sure that, you know, this this uh, this whole nonsense. Seymour WMD Hirsch. Not a, I haven't was, heard that term since Seymour Hirsch wrote about it in The New Yorker. Oh, yes. But there were ago. people who were still independent uh, journalists who were not being completely canceled. At that time, although Seymour Hirsch, they, you know, they were they tried to do a number of it on him. But the point was, is that this wasn't failure of uh, intelligence. This this was completely it was complete manufactured of of uh, intelligence information. Remember, um, at that time, it was um, who was the prime minister, the labor uh, prime minister in, in England, Tony Blair, was talking about fitting the evidence, fitting the facts around the policy rather than the other way around. You know, they had to like sex up the data, as they said. You know, it was just a, it was a travesty, a bunch of people that should have known better and no repercussions to that. I mean, the New York Times was particularly egregious in that whole matter. But they apologized for Judith Miller. Judith Miller, bad, no. uh, bad reporter, ended up on Fox News, but... She was being fed information from Dick Cheney. Dick Cheney and Scooter Libby and that whole cabal. Yeah. So she was suckered by them. I mean. It, yeah. No. No. <laughs> yes and no. She wasn't suckered by these guys. I mean. Do you know who her she father was, is? She was of a very similar mindset to Scooter Libby. She was very much on board with the uh, yeah. peanut crowd. You know, that uh, just a few years earlier had, um, you know, talked about a Pearl Harbor type event necessary to mobilize the nation, um, which they got. Right. Do you know so, who Judith Miller's father is? You're not from 
New York, but he he owned Bill Miller's Riviera, which was this big supper club that Sinatra performed at in uh, New Jersey and then Las Vegas. Oh. Just thought I'd share that worthless piece of information <laughs> to impress you because I don't know anything about physics, but I do know who Bill Miller. But, you know, is. I do. Well, this is a little call like uh, it conversational cul-de-sac, but uh, yeah, there are no more real supper clubs no. anymore like there used to be. No. Um, there was one in Detroit. <laughs> God damn it. I remember because my parents took me there. I was six. I think it was for a good report card or something. But literally as late as like 1970, there was this place where you could, it, it, it was all done up like a Key Largo type theme, and, but it was very high end. And in the middle was an enormous aquarium and women would dive into the aquarium mm. and find oysters mm. and then, you know, fetch the oysters and that that would be served. It was just wild. I, I mean, it's still I actually asked my mother about that. I said, that didn't really happen, did it? Is that just <laughs> fevered imagination of a six year old? And she goes, oh, yeah, that was a great place. And that was just. That was shut down, I think, in 1972. But there were uh, real some really fancy places like that uh, that had these wild. Th I mean, like only in America, right? Women. <laughs> and it's like receding into the past. So these are women who would dive for your meal. Would dive for a meal. Would dive for. I think the um, the the kind. I think <laughs> I remember it just being the oysters, but they would dive for other things too. But uh, that, swordfish. That's <laughs> Take on. <laughs> anyway, catch a mermaid. I have no idea. And of oh. course, I only went there early. You know, it was the early evening when, you know, I I, I have no idea what late night was like. <laughs> over there, but, uh, you know, God, what was the name of that place? I'll think of it. Um, there was Topinka's. There was uh, there was a couple other places that just, you know, the opulence of them now is just, is, you know, it's kind of wild. Let's go back to uh, nuclear power and what Juan Cole, Professor Juan Cole was saying earlier about solar power, that because of the Inflation Reduction Act, which uh, has its flaws, we're going to see a snowball effect of more and more solar power. Uh, can, can we scale up with solar power? We can't right now, and the problem is there. There are there are some limitations to the rare earths and elements in the production of these things. There are very high temperature type uh, processes that go into making these photovoltaics. Photovoltaics, as they call them, but uh, we could certainly increase production. It wouldn't take over. It wouldn't be enough to take over the oil. The other problem is, of course. We really need to modernize. We need to modernize our energy grid, and we need to have more advances in battery, in in, in battery technology, to make this happen. Now, it's not going to happen. My problem with because I kind of looked at summaries of of uh, the act, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act in terms of the climate sector, and like over half of them are tax incentives to do things, tax incentives to like go solar, tax incentives to buy. 
This is not the kind of massive, you know, mobilization that we need. We need to, there, there are a lot of technologies, by the way, that are being developed that are just haven't, are not commercializable yet, but they need to be pushed uh, in order to be able to scale up. We, um, I know one of the things that my company was working on, but we didn't get the grant. This is so haphazard, but the kind of small nuclear reactors, uh, subcritical reactors, which is called a molten salt reactor, um, that kind of molten salt would also be a key to energy storage because you would you generate heat, you try to convert it to something else, and then you you know every time you convert energy, you lose a little bit because conversions are never one hundred percent efficient. But if you just store everything at heat from the get go, which a molten salt, in fact, I think they do that. They've been developing molten salt heat storage for these solar arrays. Now, there's a lot of problems with solar arrays, but I think it's because of the current technology. But again, my my problem isn't that there aren't ideas and technologies. It's just that there's nothing there's nothing of the coherent mobilization that we really need to, um, you know, to to get to the next step to deal even begin to deal with climate change. Um, you know. You showed something last week. You showed, I think it was Rashida or somebody showed Rashida Tlaib was talking, was was querying all these bankers. And she was trying to get them to agree not to invest in fossil fuel. Mm-hmm. And Jamie Diamond was uh, not only said, uh, no, they, they weren't going to like swear off. He said that would be crazy. It would be the road to hell, he said. Well, you know, I thought about that. Um the problem, even with a lot of activists and people, is that they don't understand what the oil does for us. They don't understand everything we have, this laptop, my clothes, the fact that New York has incredibly clean drinking water, that the fact that you could have like um, millions of people in New York and not be an environmental disaster. It's all oil to first order. I mean, before you... Rome couldn't have built like skyscrapers unless Rome discovered oil and discovered ways of refining oil. It was just the most of the energy uh, to erect even these huge aqueducts and forum and and temples and things like that were humans was I mean, they had levers and pulleys. They had raw human strength. They had oxes. They had, you know, animal strength. But they. I think when you realize just how energy dense oil is, and it's its own perfect battery, as I've said, you could like seal up a, a, a barrel of oil, bury it for a million years, and you unseal that sucker and that oil is good to go. Really? That is just how energy dense it is. Replacing that energy density would be a monumental task. The only and the only energy source at the moment that could technically scale up to not only meet the actual needs, but also have what they call load following. You can dial it up and dial it down would be nuclear Mm -hmm. to replace fossil fuel. That has a lot of problems. Our companies in the emergent, you know, uh, nuclear designs are dealing with that. That's mostly the single one biggest issue is spent fuel. And by the way, um, 
not even ours is the best. Ours go, makes the deepest burns. But, you know, as early as the 1970s, the molten salt reactor designs and the more modular reactor designs, people figured out they had enough uranium already out of the ground at that point with those designs to, you know, power up the country for a thousand years. Uh, now, why is that? Because nuclear, as dense as oil is, and oil is incredibly dense, nuclear is literally over a million times more energy dense than oil. So anyway, so that's had my we little not, spiel so about Had that. we not, in, in the 50s, had we gone in, all in on nuclear, what would this world look like? We would, we would. What would climate change be like? Well, you would have have to done more than that. It would have, if you had gone in on nuclear, but not allowed like the six big defense contractors to be effective to monopolize the field. I mean, you know, back in the fifties, Iowa National Labs, Idaho National Labs had like 50 different little test reactors going, all different kinds. They had, I think they even had molten salt reactor going, but they there were all kinds of way more efficient designs of nuclear reactors, you know, for energy de generation. But what prevailed was the variations of the light water reactor on board nuclear submarines. Now those run off of, uh, of highly enriched fuel not as enriched as a bomb would be, but it's we're talking 20% uranium-235 as opposed to like 3%. Um, so but, what is happening after Fukushima, I believe it was Germany that just did a 180 and said no more mm -hmm. nuclear power, but now- yeah, That turned out to be a bad decision on more, more than one level. But they're I going back in, right? With nuclear. Well, if they can't look, if if- they want if it unless they want to break the sanctions against Russia. I mean, you know, they really need they're going to need to do something. I don't know how long it would take for them to bring up their nuclear reactors. But, um, you know, this is yeah, it's it's um, it's a naughty problem. It I think the failure of the sanctions to crush Russia and the blowback on our allies and eventually us. I mean, we're so far, we haven't experienced the worst of this because we produce oil ourselves and we have nuclear and we can scale up nuclear if we wanted to. Uh, but, you know, the people who are making these decisions in the State Department, I don't think they're very well educated. They were thought that Russia's economy was what, like, you know, a gas station with a country attached. It was so ignorant. I mean, it was like they were sort of comparing numbers of GDP as if all everything that goes into GDP is it, all elements going into the GDP is are equal. Well, it turns out real economy is basically producing stuff people actually need, like energy, like food like, you know, tools and, and shelter and things like that. And I mean, and Russia, you know, they have, they're changing the world that uh, Shanghai organizational, um, so Shanghai cooperation organization meeting about a week and a half ago, it just showed you that it's a, it's, it's a different world now. Uh, Russia does not need to sell any of its oil 
to Europe or the allies. I mean, there's a whole big emerging world and they do not care to ally with the ally with the West anymore. They're tired of being exploited. It's not that, you know, Russia or China won't be problems in and of themselves, but they present an alternative. And it's always, you know, the smaller countries always catch a break when there is competition among elites, which there is now. And Russia is about to get, I don't know, Russia is about to get bigger. <laughs> At the end of this week, we'll know. Um, what do you mean they're going to get bigger? Well, if the uh, referendum pass and passes in the four provinces in eastern Ukraine, they'll become part of the Russian Federation. And Russia says when that when and if these this this happens, then the Russian constitution kicks in and they're part they're part of Russia. Um you know, Ukraine lobbying another another bomb in the direction of the Daporozhna nuclear power plant is going to be considered an attack on Russia if that province votes. I don't know. It'd be very interesting if one of the provinces, if if they voted no. I kind of don't think. Is it rigged? Isn't it going to be a rigged election? I don't know. Uh, you know. We have no information because we don't send report. I mean, there are some independent reporters out there. They are being constantly harassed and and vilified in their YouTube videos, you know, yanked or their whole channels canceled. And, you know, it's just we've just decided that, you know, we're not going to allow any reporting from that region. But there are international observers. I've heard like about a thousand international observers are out there. And, um, but, you know, I think at least to, if Donetsk and Luhansk vote to join the Russian Federation, that might actually be somewhat believable because they did have referendum right after the uh, 2014 coup and these uh, draconian laws were passed. Uh, they basically were in an uproar over that and they, they, their local governments, I guess it was the governors, immediately and their, and their local legislatures drafted a referendum to, uh, you know, not to join Russia. That was to be declared autonomous, the kind of status that I believe Crimea had at one point in Ukraine. And they overwhelmingly voted for that. And then, you know, the... Uh, the Ukrainians sent in the army and the, in fact, I think there were several uh, of the oblasts had referenda and there was certainly a lot of counter Maidan protests after the coup. And, uh, but only Luhansk and Donetsk were able to, you know, successfully fight the Ukrainian army and all the <laughs> Nazi militias. Um, yes. The militias, which, Unfortunately, because the Ukrainian army, the only reason why Ukraine, or one of the major reasons why they decided to deputize all these crazies, was that they really didn't have much of an army at that point. So, um, and as of 2020, I had the Reuters article someplace I could put it in the chat. Um, they were not a small part of the Ukrainian army. They, they were about 40% of their active military. 
So that's that. And of course, after eight years of civil war and, you know, Minx Accords that were never really honored, I think that the, I would not be surprised it, if the two regions voted overwhelmingly to join Russia, because it's pretty clear that they've got the, the Kiev government is extremely hostile to the Russian speaking, you know, uh, ethnic Russian part of Ukraine. There was just a stunning statement put out by uh, Zelensky just about a month or so ago. And I, I kind of don't know what he really believes because he's under a lot of pressure internally. As I said, you know, you read articles from the Kiev Post from 2019. I mean, members of parliament, not even the, quote, far right uh, parties, felt very comfortable openly threatening him with death if he made a deal with Russia that they didn't like. You know, so he's he's under a lot of pressure, but he basically uh, made statements about a month ago that, you know, uh, said no one should be speaking the Russian language in Ukraine and blah, even though I believe he might be a native Russian speaker himself. Now, most of the people in Ukraine that speak Russian also speak Ukraine. I hear it as very similar. But that, to me, after all this nonsense, I am not surprised if they said, hey, like, our chances are better with Russia, plus all our relatives are over there. You know, people forget that there's like at least a million and a half before the coup, there's like a million and a half Russian citizens that were living in Ukraine. Because after, you know, the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, they were offered that chance. They were they were offered that chance to get dual citizenship, and a lot of them took it up. So, All right. I don't know. Um, but to me, the other thing that I want to say about that is, who is the um, the? I guess it would be the equivalent of our Joint Chiefs of uh, of Staff uh, came out with the official numbers as according to the Russians uh, to the General Staff of Russia put uh, Ukrainian losses that killed in action at about 61,000, put Russians killed in action just below 6,000. Six or 60? Six. This is according to Russia. This is according to Russia. However, as uh, somebody is, is the BBC, Russia, the BBC still has its Russian, uh, outlet i mean it's reports news from russia and they came out with um they 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 came up with their own estimates of the russian casualties and as of the end of june they put them at about 4000 and and then they showed the other like at that point the russians had only given out the uh numbers at the end of april and that was like 1300 but um you know, most of the Russian casualties came early as they went in, quote unquote, soft uh, at the beginning. And, you know, most of the Ukrainian deaths now, the Ukrainians aren't they're not even contesting those numbers. I mean, uh, the even who was it? The uh, David Arakaya, who is the uh, who is one of Zelensky's chief advisors, he was uh, a couple months ago saying emitting at least 500 a day killed in action at that point. So, all right, 
So there is some corroborating evidence. It certainly isn't the definitive counts, but there is no real pushback from the Ukrainians on those numbers. A 10 to 1 kill ratio. You know, that's... And it's just, you know, they talk about war crimes being civilians killed, but, you know, these are young men being killed. They're young men in tanks. And... Most of the deaths, you know, it was kind of funny because they also said something like 41 something thousand wounded. But, you know, I thought, well, usually people wounded, you know, seriously wounded is at least a factor of two or three more than deaths. But as one of the commentators was pointing out and and Scott Ritter pointed out uh, a couple weeks ago, most of the deaths are not coming from hand to hand combat. They're coming from artillery. They're not even seeing the enemy. Um, So I think, and of course, you know, I I did read, by the way, the Russian statement about nuclear. It's the kind of statement that all these people are making. Liz Truss made a much stronger statement about using nukes to defend her country. But, you know, that nobody should be talking about using nukes. I mean, we should be talking about diplomacy. We should be talking about diplomacy. And we, you know, I'll be sounding like a broken record on that. But, um, you know, I don't know how long Zelensky, of course, you know, wars these days. I I think I I caught a little bit of uh, Dr. Fraud's segment. War, you know, we've lost our last several wars. Well, maybe that's by design. When our military is taken over by money, by it's financialized to an extent. The wars aren't meant to be won quickly. They're meant to be going on for a long time. Exactly. And I think Zelensky is making a, a very calculated decision that as long as they even if I mean he's who is he he was reportedly even in the Kiev post has been having some difficulties, have been having some arguments with his equivalent of his chief of staff, General Zelensky. But, oh, he seems to have won. Well, Zelensky knows that the win in Kharkiv is actually not a strategic win, but it doesn't matter. Zelensky wants to keep the money coming in. Right. And we we know as Americans don't care how many Ukrainians die. We have to wrap it up. Yes, because I see Professor Mike is here. Hi. Exciting. I'm just about finishing your book, Professor Mike. That's oh, great. Oh, oh, wow. Yeah, it's right here on my reading list, you know. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So, I'm so happy. I've got my little stack of books here. That so I nice read. of you to so yeah, nice so, of you to purchase yeah. that. No, it's great. I um I actually have the audiobook. Well, I I email me and uh, and I'll I'll send you a little gift, okay? Okay. Yeah, my it's Mike Steinell at Mike at MikeSteinell.com. Yeah. I've I've okay. I've, okay. Okay. Peace out, everyone. Great Bye. job, Professor Marianne Cummings. Follow her on Twitter at Razorgirl. And I'm I hold in my hand Saving Charlie Parker, a novel written by the Queen of mystery, futuristic mystery novels, <laughs> Professor Mike Steinel. It's a great read. It, this has the Feldman guarantee, 
by oh, David. saving you Charlie Parker. That. If you don't like it, I will pay you. I will reimburse you. What I a guy. I guarantee you this book will blow you away. <laughs> it's all about time travel. So where'd you get the tiara? Well, we you didn't you haven't in, been grave robbing again, have you? We talked about <laughs> this. Uh, that's a theme in uh, uh, the Tale of Two Cities. Is uh, one of the characters is a grave robber. He calls it. He's a, he he goes fishing for bodies, and he sells them as cadavers to. So he, after there's a funeral, he digs up a fresh grave. Uh, what's his name? Oh. And and the the guy who does the uh, the audio book for that catches his voice. It's a Cockney voice that's so hilarious. But Dickens writes such a great his speech pattern for that particular car carrier. And I, oh, I'm I'm somebody in this chat will remember the character and uh, Jerry Jerry. And then there's young Jerry who follows Jerry at night. Jerry says, I'm going fishing. His wife doesn't like it, the fact. But what, he'd seen a funeral, so they go and dig up a body. But anyway, um, we're up here in Kansas. I'm on the deck. And this is the tiara that my mother-in-law, we, we celebrated with, with our family. We had about 30 people on this day. It's a big deck. Wait, wait, did she have her birthday yet? Well, it's, it's, it's the real birthday's coming up. But we celebrated this weekend because everybody's, most of her family's up in this area. And she wore this sash and she wore this tiara in the park. It's a big weekend for us because it's the um, old Settlers Day, which is, so she had this for the people just you're, you're at home. You're scraping your microphone. Hang on. Your microphone is okay. rubbing against your. Scraping on the sash. Yeah. And what does it say okay. on your sash? It says 100 and fabulous. Good for her. And she was fab. And, and and then, of course, later in the afternoon, we went to the uh, the cemetery and we dedicated the memorial for her first husband who was lost at sea. There had never been a, he was a pilot, a B-25 pilot, and is uh, on a bombing mission. He did a lot of bombing missions, but on one, he had to head back there. His, his squadron saw his plane take on some smoke and turn around, and that's the last they saw of him. Uh -huh. And... Uh, so anyway, she was, a. I mean, they'd just gotten married, too. So it was one of those stories, you know. Right. She went out to visit him in when he was about ready to ship out. She said to this weekend, we that, oh, yeah, we got engaged, officially engaged four hours before we got married. <laughs> but uh, anyway, and then we, she wore this tiara, you know. We're up here at the, at the lake house. By the way, if anybody wants to... It's pretty good. Listen to uh, the lake house is on MikeSteinel.com and you go to uh, click on the menu for fiction and you can see the four parts of the lake house, which is all about us fixing up this house and and find just happening to find a dead body under a concrete <laughs> slab. That's where that's where it starts. I have a friend who is an avid crime uh, reader. And I, she, she was our church organist. And I said, I'm, I'm going to write a book about, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she says, if there isn't a dead body on the first page, I'm not reading it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I've learned that lesson. There's got to be a dead body on the first page. And uh, there, there is in, in the book, you know. And it's a pretty good, for my first attempt, that was, that was two years ago, David. That wow. was September, two years ago. 
By the way, I sent you some stuff from the archive. Did you get it? Uh, no, but your 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 microphone is scraping against the. Still bus. scraping? Yeah. Right there. Yeah. Well, I'm wearing. I, I I put on a coat coat and a shirt. Is it now? Is it okay? Yeah, you're gonna have to do. Yeah, keep it there. Yes, right. sir. So you're, you're coming there. in light tonight. No new music. But now, David, I've written over 34 songs. Yes. For your show. Yes. And I've yet to see a check. Well, uh, I can't. But I've seen a couple of Hungarians. Look <laughs> 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 at a fish. <laughs> Um, I can't. I can't send you a check. Would it be funnier if I said Slavs or Hungarians? No, no, Hungarians. I haven't seen a check. The Hungar- I've seen a couple yeah. Polacks. Oh <laughs> that's, my God! Oh, that's not right, is it? No, we've had we've had a couple of uh, things like that tonight. Oh really? Yeah. Uh, racist comments. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, hey, it's been a it's been a great show. It's great. Juan Cole. Oh my you, what God. a what a what a get was that, man! I learned a lot. Yeah, what a what a what a great guest and uh, the royal watcher from uh, Britain. I forget his name. Sir Grebe Striebling. He was very good. He was very good. Sir I like Arthur Grebe Striebling. Yeah. Yes. He grew up <laughs> with Prince Charles and dated Princess Anne, and he lives in Ribbington Hall. I'm a little, I'm in uh, pre-computer hell. Uh, I need a new... How can that be? Well, I'm, I'm, you know, every quarter I obsess on certain things. And I'm, yeah. and I'm pushing my, this computer way too hard. It's an old mm-hmm. iMac and it cannot do what I want to do. And I'm looking at the YouTube feed. It looks horrible. The YouTube feed... Just looks absolutely horrid, and I find. Well, do you use the camera from the computer? No, I'm using a, I'm using a different camera, and I'm using some software. You know what? I the the camera on the actual computer might be better than the, those cameras are pretty good. Well, my computer's old, so I have to. Well, there the, the cameras keep getting better. Like right now, I'm on my MacBook Air, which is the newest Mac that I have, and I noticed. Last week I I, um, I went to that too, and I noticed that, that I thought the picture my pic my image was a little sharper. So yeah. you might try might try just a new computer and use the camera on it. That's, I mean these these yeah. cameras these cameras are pretty dang good. Yeah. There's my finger on the camera. Yeah. Hello, peekaboo, peekaboo. So I brought some stuff from the house, David. To, oh good. I know you liked it. So let me see what that is. Let me see if I can guess. This is the house in Denton or your house in Kansas? This is the lake house where Nadine, who's going to turn 100 in a few weeks, we were up here. Um, we were up here celebrating that and also dedicating the memorial for her first husband. Right. This so, was, it says Nate, Nate has her maiden name. So this was given to her in 1946, prior to, well, prior to 44 when she got married. And it's, it's a little music box. It's really beautiful. Um, I don't want to get dinged by YouTube on a uh, copyright. Man, I don't even know what this tune is. <laughs> it's 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 if it's 
It's public domain. Okay. It's just a ding dong. I'm never well, I, saw, I played the horse vessel song last week and I got dinged. Go ahead. What's the horse vessel song? You don't want to know. What is this? I don't know this song. We can't hear it. Oh. It's a Gotta be near my microphone. I'm sorry. You hear it now? You hear it now? Not really. Okay. Yeah, it's weird. What's it's the weird, but anyway. And who then, gave it then to you? Does she remember now? She's going to be 100. And she she watches Jeopardy with you. Yes. Yeah, we've talked about that. And her memory is fine, right? Well, I mean, she can't remember if she had breakfast 10 minutes ago, but she can remember probably who gave this to her. That's right. the way memory works with a 99-year-old or a 100-year-old. This is something. Oh, I can tell you, David, a horrible thing happened to me today. You want to hear about it? If, as long as it's horrible, yes. Yeah, it is horrible. Well, I've been working on, I, I, I actually cr pounded rocks and, and put in and uh, redid the patio in the back with all the stone. We have a, we had a basically half a garage full of stone taken out of the farm where, she, where uh, Nadine grew up about seven miles um, up that way. And, um, uh, it's been sitting in the garage, so I finally got used, and I put, I've made three patios, two in the front and one in the back, and I'm, Beverly didn't like it, so I redid it. And I was, I'm moving big stones, and ah, man, and I'm, in, I'm in my funky, all my work clothes, you know, and, and then I go through the garage, and I'm standing at the front of the garage just as, this was a big weekend for Marion. There was uh, Old Settlers Day, and I think they gave the kids the day off at school. This is Marion, Kansas. Marion, Kansas, because I drove by the day <clears throat> at nine, and there were no nobody in the parking lot. <clears throat> but evidently, they had some sort of events out here, and three trucks came by pulling hay. They had hay rides for the kids. Oh. You know what a hay ride is? Sure. You know, they put bales of hay and yeah. these cars were going fast. So anyway, so I'm, I'm waving at the kids <laughs> and this one little, he's probably a sixth grader. He goes, hi, grandpa. <laughs> 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 and, and I don't, I am a grandpa. I don't mind being a grandpa. I just don't like looking like one, you yeah, know. Or being called a grandpa. Yeah, yeah. I would, if I'd have been a faster man, I would have run after him and pulled him off there and give him a thrashing. Yeah. Because he, yeah. he was little. He was only sixth grade. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I could have taken him. So you were upset being called a grandpa. Absolutely. I don't blame you. Yeah. You know what's worse it's, than being called a grandpa? Is what? Being called a grandpa uh, and you didn't know you were a grandpa. Oh. That's, at least you knew you were a grandpa. It's when you, when yeah. you find out that you're a grandpa. That's, hey, you remember these? Remember this? From... Remember this? This is one of your favorites. Oh, I love that. Yes. Yeah. For you, if you're not on uh, the YouTube, I've, I'm wearing a, what would you call this? A Mardi Gras, Mardi Gras mask, maybe, or something? Yeah. Yeah. Carnival. Yeah. Something, something for something a Carnival. Something Clay Shaw used to make David Ferry wear at their parties. Very good. 
And, Very good. Uh, and we're, put the tiara on. At the same time? And now we can do business. <laughs> <laughs> now let's negotiate your raise. <laughs> now let's talk about royalties. All right. All right. Now you're saying that I'm ripping you off. <laughs> Yeah, man, I need some checks. I haven't seen any checks. I've seen a couple of Hungarians. Bada boom. Anyway, I can't see anything because I don't have to take my glasses off. No, Nadine was great this week. God, she, what she, what she has lived through, when you think about what the greatest, they really are the greatest generation because they, what they've seen and lived through, and they've changed things that, you know, things they believed, say, in the 40s and what they hopefully what they've come to realize each decade. I, I think that I think that might be the secret to longevity is that physical and intellectual flexibility. Right. Well, she's you know, she's um, she was widowed at 22 and then widowed again in 1967 and just picked up and raised her four, five, five kids and uh, took over the, uh, being the publisher of a newspaper. Her, 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 her husband who passed away in 67, Beverly's father was the, uh, <clears throat> the publisher and editor of the Marion County record. And she just took over. You know, and she ran the paper until she sold it in 2001, then got remarried at 79 to a friend. Who, it was a, a close friend of her husband's. How many husbands? Is oh, this? my God. You hear that? What is that? Hello? Coyote, coyotes or something. Oh, that is not good. Well. If you're wow. going to get to attack, if you're going to get attacked <coughs> by a coyote, keep the camera on, please. Just there's it, I, you can't hear that, but it's horrible. Okay, but I, I will pay if if you do get attacked by coyotes. Then you pay for that. I'll pay for royalties. Sam, <laughs> <laughs> okay. you're screaming. How many, I got nostalgic sending you. I sent you two things. How many husbands and they has have, this woman had? A three. She said she's had three. Three husbands. Buried three husbands, and each time, just picked up and gone on. And you know, you know, um, she. You know what's funny is that you walk into this house, and and it's like she hadn't. She at, at seventy nine. She says, "Here's what I want to take down to Texas. I want this and this. A few pieces of furniture, um, the important knickknacks, like a bunch of china that that we carry down there. That she knows that she arranges in her." in her uh, beautiful cabinet a certain way and uh, and the clothes she wanted. But, you know, like you walk into the house and the, everything's, we, ha we haven't added any furniture. It's, it's everything that's needed to uh, enjoy the house is there. But, um, yeah, she's pretty amazing. She's had a good, this has been a good trip for her because it's perked her up a little bit, good. you know. Her, uh, she's really enjoyed well she had all her children she had um, all her her children 
and her grandchildren, not all her grandchildren. There's a few down in Mexico that weren't able to make it up. But um, and then and then uh, great grandchildren and one. Is that nervous? Wait a second. Let me get this right. Yeah. And then and two great two great grandchildren. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But she has great, great grandchildren down in Mexico. Wow. So, you know, five, a lot of generations. She's pretty remarkable. I'd love to. But have. I got. You'd love to meet her. Yeah. And I'd love to have great, great, great grandkids. And just <laughs> berate them. <laughs> how's, your, well, how's your great? How's your grandson? Oh, he was great. He was up uh, the week before. Yeah, well, last week. He was up last week. And uh, he's really, he's almost three. So he's he's really changing. It's really it's really fun. To, now, you, to you're not interested, I don't believe, in a, in a competition where the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, he's got grandkids. You yeah. have grandkids. Harvey J., Professor Harvey J. K. has grandkids. Where they compete to see who has the cutest grandchild. I don't understand why you, all of you find that offensive. Put up or shut up. You all say <laughs> you have cute grandkids. Prove it in a battle okay. royale. I'm, I, actually, I'm I'm up for it because he's pretty cute. He he'd take the cake. But what's what's going to happen when when one of somebody's got? There's only going to be one left standing. And I'm going to have to break it to two <laughs> that they're they're not that cute. Can they handle it? <laughs> well, you know, it happens to all of us. It happens <laughs> to all of us. You know, we're. <clears throat> hey, I was inducted on Saturday night. I was in absentia. I was inducted as part of a band that I played with into the. South Dakota Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. How about that? Congratulations. You had told yeah. us that was coming up. Yeah. I would have liked to go up there, but because um, actually that band did play it. We, we played up in that area a lot um, for some reason. I think there's just there were a lot of uh, teen dances that were really... I, I think I played 90, 90 gigs summer of... Uh, what was that? 71, no, 69, 72. Summer of, some summer of 71. Summer of 72 I spent in New York, David. The summer of 72? Yeah. What were you that doing? Was, what's that? What were you doing? Well, I, I was physically having uh, problems with my chops. That's what we call our embouchure yeah. of the mouth, you yeah. know, like. And uh, I went to a chop doctor. I saved my money for a ticket and I flew to New York. And a friend of mine, the night before I left, said, bring a tuxedo. I got work for you. So I played up in the um, Catskills. Wow. I played the Navali and uh, the Gilberts. The Nevely. Nevely, is that what they call my, it? Nevely? My friend yeah. worked at the Nevely. Yeah. That was, that, it, it was pretty was... swanky. That, the Nevely was the swankiest. Oh, you know what the coolest part of that was? I was young. I was, what was I, uh, 20? I was, tw I was just 20. But <clears throat> Friday nights, you know what goes on at Friday nights at those, uh, those re resorts at midnight? What? Gentlemen's. Gentlemen's only. Strippers. Oh, I thought it was like a gay, strippers. they had like a, there was... Like, no, uh, no, I played for strippers. But the Borscht Belt uh, had a <laughs> yeah. gay 
it would already have, they would always have a, a well, a couple of times they had the, um, you know, the kind of comedian that all the, all the punchlines were in Yiddish. Oh, right. <laughs> right. You know, you'd set up the joke and then, and everybody would laugh and I'm like, what the heck's going on with this? But anyway, like at midnight, we would play for the, the strippers and, um, but they didn't strip back then. Yeah, they did, David. Really? Well, I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, they did. But with all the pubic hair back then, they weren't really naked. <laughs> Technically. <laughs> That's actually kind of funny. <laughs> I should write that down. Now they're naked. Back then. Uh, I'm sure somebody was. It was it was a that. one time it was a belly dancer. Right. And and that was very, that was very pleasant <laughs> to look at. But we would we would try to the guy, the band looked, let's play something we don't have to read. Right. <laughs> you don't right. want to be looking at the music. So right. we would play ba 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 but we play the stripper, you right. know. And then we play night train. That was the that was the dance uh, my, my third marriage. That was what we danced to. <laughs> what night train? <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? I don't, I don't know. It's like I married a stripper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but anyway, um, yeah, that was fun. And then and then I actually got a gig up in uh, in Catskill. You know, there's the Catskills, and then there's Catskill, which is farther up. And it's called Catskill. Yeah, it's a town. There was a there was a club. It was a low rent club. It was, um, you know, what it wasn't the best club. The the bass player was Alan Arkin's brother. How about that? Really? Yeah, Bob Arkin. Bob yeah, Arkin, good bass player. And um, anyway, so um, oh yeah, yeah, we were we were once play. We in the afternoons we had to play for the uh, the dance instructors that they, they gave dance lessons to the ladies you know it, you know how the deal was the whole family would go up it's like seven year itch the whole family would go up to get out of the heat from manhattan and then the husbands would come up on who had to work they come up friday and saturday night right right with so an anyway that we were playing with go an, ahead with an itch that they got <laughs> i guess so yeah but anyway so we're playing um uh, uh, we're playing for this thing, and the, the dance instructor's saying uh, he didn't like our tempo. He didn't like our tempo or something. It's just he goes, it's something's wrong. Something's wrong with this. And Alan Arkin or Bob Arkin's uh, Alan Arkin's brother, Bob Arkin, from the back of the band goes, maybe it's yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Real deadpan. Wow. So what, wrong. something like, I don't know exactly what it is. Because maybe it's yourself. Anyway, go ahead. So what, what do you want me to play? What do you have for me? Because I have. Well, let's play, you know, let's play the, I sent two. These are from the archive and I, and I'm kind of nostalgic about, um, oh my, my, because I wrote that almost a year ago when I was up here and it was about seeing all the signs for uh, Trump, oh my! Remember my. that we were, yeah. And and oh my my, so many signs. Anyway, I'm 300 miles behind enemy lines. Right. Um, not that Texas is any less red, but anyway, I'm an I'm an 
uh, island of blue and an ocean of red. But anyway, uh, it's not about, you know, there's references to the Trump election, but I sort of feel like this election coming up has sort of the same implications. But you want to hear something, um, something kind of uh, positive or yes. hopeful? Yes. I don't see the signs like I did. Well, he's not running. But but still, like even for the even for the rep, there's no signs for Republicans or Democrats. Oh, but well, you know, you're you're in Kansas and the abortion they did. Yeah, yeah, Kansas. They they were real clever with that. They they made that a um, government intrusion thing. Don't let the government tell you what you know. Almost they they tied it to an anti-vax thing. Almost yeah. I'm having yeah. trouble finding. Oh, there we are. I sent okay. it just a few hours ago. Yeah, I find it. I, I found it. And then I also sent the Mark Breslin theme, which we've only played once, I think. Right. Let me, let's do. How is Mark Breslin? Where has he been? Everybody's asking. Gonna... And, you know, I have been booking the show. And that's a problem. So. Are you going to get Harriet's uh, um, husband? Oh my God! I ch I chickened out. I accidentally. Why did you? Ch because what? because I wasn't. I can't have R Professor Richard Wolf on the show without, you know, Ann Lee asking questions or uh, I can't. You know, I can't. Well, he, he no he he's got his thing. He'll just go. You know, like I know, I've seen him on the Majority Report. He's great. Yeah, he uh, he'll just teach us about. Uh, capitalism and and socialism he's uh, fantastic yes he is let's do Long, oh, oh my okay my. let's go let's do oh my my here we go the volume might be a little low old music from the great professor mike steinel So many signs I'm 300 miles behind enemy lines I'm blending in Not causing a fuss When it comes to politics I never discuss I'm an island of blue In an ocean of red Four more years I might be better off dead Signs. I'm 300 miles behind enemy lines. Gotta get behind Joe, it's the way to go. I'm gonna give the Democrats all my dough. I got my ballot, I'm ready to vote. If the other guy wins, I hope he don't glow. I'm 300 miles behind enemy lines You can fool some of the people all of the time The truth now is a hard hill to climb I got crazy uncles, I got crazy aunts I'm pretty nervous, I got ants in my pants 
I'm 300 miles behind enemy lines. We got a pandemic, it hit us slow. The economy's bad, it's going too slow. Gone are the dreams of a better place. Sanity needs to make its case. That is amazing. That's Professor Mike Steinel. Oh, my, my. That is amazing. When did you, did you write that before Biden was elected? You have to unmute yourself, sir. That's what caught my eye on the date. I thought, oh, that's about two years ago. And and that's pre-vaccine. Remember those days? Oh, my God. So much death, you know. There was a, I mean... We'd gotten over the worst of it, and we'd gotten into the summer, which it, which made it better. And I was coming up here, and I was working with uh, contractors, working on this, this, um, the, and I was writing uh, at the same time. I think I just finished the lake house, just finished writing it, and was working on the audio book for the lake house. It's twenty twenty two. It is September. We started doing this live on YouTube. About two years ago. It's yeah, years. I, I, I think you had me on in the summer there. We talked about uh, Tutti Frutti was the first time. Then we did some right. Dylan stuff. But that wasn't then, on YouTube. That was on Zoom. We recorded. We were recording live to tape for the audio mm. podcast in the Zoom room. But we didn't go on YouTube until September of 2022. Um, and I think I, I, I worked on that song and sent it to you. And then we played it while I was sitting here on the deck. It was one of the first times when we, we broadcast it from the, um, pretend I give you notes, like, uh, you, you send me a song and I give you notes and then you, you go back and re-record it. 
I had a question. So yes, I'm sir. thinking of taking these songs, these Feldman songs, and making a CD. Yes. And but if I do distribution like I did with the last CD, do you it. can't play it. You uh, can't play it. You're going to get dinged. I get. I got dinged. I get dinged. We'll figure. There's a process. There's a process where. Here's the thing. I think. Well, you let's talk. Produce, let's talk on the phone. Let's talk. No, I think phone. it's good to talk about. No, no, right. I, put you your should, tiara. You should wait, are you it. talking money with me? Put the tiara on. You should. You should, <laughs> you should on, produce it. I think you should produce it and put your your money behind it. And then when they ding you, you can say, I paid for this that, music. I, I paid for that <laughs> microphone, Mr. What did Ronald Reagan say? Mr. Brain? I paid for this microphone, yeah. Do you remember that? that he was got a the funny, name that wrong. That was a funny bit. He got the name wrong? It was he I paid for this microphone, Mr. Brain, and the guy's name was Green. Uh, yeah, but nobody remembers that part of it. Yeah. That he was wrong. Yeah. Anyway, okay. That's we need beautiful. to go. I think you got to talk to uh, Grace somebody Jackson. across the pond. Grace, Grace Jackson, Jackson, I'm looking forward to yes. her segment. I love you. You're the best. You are the absolute best. And Say it again. Say it again. The I first love you. part. I love you. I know you do. Okay. I know. Thank you. <laughs> Mike no Steinel, go buy, everybody, go buy right now. Go buy Saving Charlie Parker, a novel. Go to MikeSteinel.com. And this book will blow you away. Mike Steinel. I don't know how he does. Where'd he go? You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Uh, we have Grace Jackson. Show's running a little late tonight. Here is Grace Jackson talking with Professor Sam Weatherall. Come on. Oh, we don't have it? Don't do that to me. Let's try that again. Why wouldn't that be working? All right. David is, is obsessed with calling me Doc. Hi, Sam. Hello. It's good to see you again, Grace. Um, good to see you as well, David. Yeah. Um, it's been a while. Uh, I think since you last came on the show, you Are we have not moved. getting... Is that right? Oh, I see Yeah, I feel like I'm last sorry. time I was on okay, the show, I was recording on, from... An, uh... I'm screwing up here. I see what's going on. Sam specializes in the history of cities, and he has a book out called Foundations, How the Built Environment Made 20th Century Britain, and it's published by Princeton University Press. Hi, Sam. Hello. It's good to see you again, Grace. Um, good to see you as well, David. Yeah. Um, it's been a while. Uh, I think since you last came on the show, you have moved. Is that right? Yeah. I feel like last time I was on the show, I was recording from an, uh, an Airbnb in London during a very transient trip to Britain at, at about one in the morning UK time. Um, but um, but at that time, I was still pretty much permanently based in Washington, D.C. I'm actually, after a few years of living in America, living back in York um, in Northern England, this sort of college, medieval college town in Northern England. Um and yes, moved back here uh, about 10 days ago, well, maybe maybe closer to two weeks ago now, actually. So it's all it's all very fresh, um, feeling particularly ready to talk about Britain. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
do you want to share any of your impressions having having moved back and having been away so long of maybe the difference between the UK that you left originally and the UK that you've come back to? Yeah, I mean, I would say, um, I mean, there's a few trivial things. I think that um, for anybody that's lived between multiple different countries, you find yourself being a kind of uh, lay anthropologist where you're constantly developing these universal theories between Britain and America and what the underlying differences between these two places are, um, and then throwing them in the rubbish bin the next day because they don't make any sense. I'd say that the most immediate things are um, British houses feel small and uh, and, and dark. Um, and cold. And cold. <laughs> Uh, it takes, uh, you know, doing laundry because there's no tumble dryers. It's, it's like a 30-hour-long process. Excuse me, let me close that. Um, and um, uh, everything's slightly damp uh, at all times. Um, but, you know, I think more seriously, you know, <laughs> it's a very, very strange time to come back to Britain. I arrived maybe two or three days after the Queen died Um uh, I've arrived in the midst of an enormous energy crisis uh, in which people across Britain are facing unprecedented bills for their gas and electricity usage, which, which might sound trivial until you consider that, pe- that people are getting um, out of the blue gas and electricity bills that are four, five, six times higher than um, have previously been the case. Some people have been receiving gas and electricity bills that are higher than their entire salary combined we have a, 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 a new prime minister that's been in the role only for about two and a half weeks, um, who is, is widely, widely hated, uh, is, is really so lacking in charisma that, that, she, that she's unable to command even the most basic kinds of projections required from any kind of head of state um, and, and, and has spent her time basically um, uh, tanking the British economy, shorting the pound potentially with with, um, uh, with, with various different um, well-connected donors in the Conservative Party, well-placed to profit of shorting the pound um, and, and giving tax cuts to the, the extremely rich uh, and has, has really done very little else other than that. Um, so, so yes, uh, but, but saying all of this, I would also say that, uh, you know, Britain feels pretty depressing when you are watching it from afar on Twitter, as does everything. Uh, but actually being here, people are nice, people are kind, the pubs are great. Uh, there's, a, there's a, you know, there's an atmosphere, there's a, there's a charm. There are, there are things that are redeemable and healthcare is free. So, you know, um, uh, that's, that's pretty nice as well. Yeah, I agree. I agree on that last point, especially. Uh, that's a game changer. <laughs> um, so you mentioned that you, uh, when the Queen died, you were three days away from your move. Um, Sam, how did you feel when you found out that the Queen was dead? Do you remember? <laughs> um, that is interesting. Uh, that's a, that is a good question. It was an incredibly stressful time in our lives because we were, me and my wife, were just in the process of moving uh, from Washington to Britain, my, my wife is a journalist who uh, w- was immediately recalled to London to cover uh, the Queen, but by her employer. Um, and so really, uh, my, my first response was this was for both me and my wife, really the worst possible day that she could have died for us personally and logistically. But there was a kind of, I will say there was a kind of drama to it. So I think that people in Britain have been expecting this for 
really the entire time that I've been alive, you know, every memory I have of the Queen has been uh, a memory of an old person, right? And 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 so you've you know throughout my life been sort of expecting this is you know someone will before too long die. <clears throat> Excuse me, and um, and so um, uh, there, I, I was aware of it's quite hard not to get sucked into the, the drama of the occasion, and so I was watching while packing up the house for live stream of BBC News, because I expected it as everyone else did, that this had already happened or it was coming down the line. And I wanted to see the the, uh, the moment when it was announced. And, and, and it's actually a very specific media protocol that was called Operation London Bridge, which, which you know, was pretty well known. There's a series of constitutional media political things that immediately automatically grind into gear when the Queen dies. Um, but haven't been, uh, you know, uh, haven't been enacted for uh, for over seventy years. So, so no, you know, it was it was a sort of a thing that's both very old and expected, but um, uh, but but very new and fresh. And and so, you know, I watched um, Hugh Edwards on BBC News uh, read the announcement. He read it five times, I think, back to front. <laughs> The um, BBC News faded to black and white and started playing the national anthem. Uh, I, I, yeah, I think, I, uh, you know, I didn't, I, I, being very honest, I, di- I didn't feel any uh, emotion. You know, I didn't, I did. I, I, I couldn't partake in the grief. And we, I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll get into my own opinions on the monarchy. But I was struck by... I'm glad that I was watching the the drama unfold at that moment. I, I would have felt like I'd be missing out had I, had I missed it. Um, yeah. There's something, as you were speaking, I was thinking, there's something really odd, and I, I saw that moment as well, um, and I, I also watched the funeral, but there's something really strange about seeing these very um, sort of like developments of this very traditional institution, the monarchy, being broadcast using digital technology and this kind of blanket approach to all media, like seeing websites, for example, having banners up now, or even their whole homepage dedicated to uh, Queen Elizabeth, you know, thanking her and with her dates and stuff. There's something just very jarring to me about the the kind of... um, uh, convergence of of tradition and and hyper modernity in that in that technology and yeah I I I found it very eerie as well and also the sort of power of um, this news to like completely shut down Britain's media um, you know my my mother was complaining about how she couldn't listen to anything on the radio you know every radio station even the radio stations like four extra which are for the for the bits that don't make it onto Radio 4, were commandeered to, yeah, play the national anthem, sombre music, um, you know, these very sombre pronouncements from from uh, hosts. Very strange. Um, anyway, I want to move on to... So, so that's how you felt. That's where you were. What about the kind of unfolding spectacle of public grief that we saw? Uh, in the UK in the days after and obviously culminating in the funeral, I suppose, you know, there were people crying, people stood in line for days uh, in the cold to, to see the Queen's funeral for a few, the Queen's coffin, sorry, for a few seconds. How do we account for that given that, you know, this is 
this is an institution that was as remote from people's daily lives as it could possibly be. So why why this public outpouring of grief? And do you think it's even real grief? I mean, I well, so I think the first thing to say is um, that we, we need to be careful not maybe not to overstate the grief, perhaps. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Only, um, uh, a quarter of a million people, I believe, did, did indeed jo- join this spectacular uh, 15, 16 hour queue to visit, uh, to, to see the coffin in state. But this was um, fewer people than uh, lined up to see, uh, if, if I'm correct, Elizabeth's father, which which uh, was estimated to be, you know, about 375,000 people, I think. Now, obviously, oh, really? uh, but there was less to do um, in the early 1950s. Uh, you know, but there was there was a sense that this was, um, uh, you know, one of the, a primary way of engaging with the event uh, in the early 1950s, but, but where other options were, were perhaps less available. Um, right, was also no social media back then. <laughs> exactly. And, and um, um, while obviously uh, I, I forget the viewing figures for, for the funeral, it, it was extremely high, it's still, uh, I think it wasn't as high um, as the number of people who watched Princess Diana's funeral as well. Mm. You know, so, so I, th- I think that there are like... Um, um, there's ways that the um, uh, that, that there's a big undercurrent of feeling that is, you know, not necessarily um, critical or reflective, but is perhaps uh, a little bit bored and maybe even a little bit kind of over it. I think that was the thing that I was actually surprised by arriving in Britain was, uh, you know, I really expected this to be maybe even more of an event than it actually was and actually felt like. And I felt that just overhearing conversations, talking to people, there was a bit more cynicism. And certainly by the funeral came at the crescendo of seven official days of mourning. Um, And I think people were, uh, a lot of people were, a little bit over it, you know, by then. I mean, okay, so so that's not to say that there wasn't a, a, a huge reserve of people that weren't, that are still feeling this extremely deeply. But I think the first thing to say is that um, this grief, I think, is uh, is less intense than, than it was around the Princess Diana moment, the, the death of Princess Diana in 97, and perhaps le- less than... Uh, you know, be, these examples are harder to corroborate because we just live in a very, very different world, but but less than was felt for um, even for, for other monarchs before um, Elizabeth. Um, so, um, uh, you know, I, but, but I think at the same time, a lot, a lot of the, the grief can be accounted for by so much of the, um, uh, the you know, the, the cliches that are repeatedly rolled out. The, mm. the, you know, British people are taught to have extremely strong and warm feelings towards this person who has been, you know, very, very, um, uh, I I don't want to say very, very present because she was never a a, a present person. She was always kind of um, fundamentally unknowable as an individual and and as a person. Um, uh, But I think that unknowability allowed people to project so many different kinds of fantasies onto her. Uh, whether this was the fantasy of a, you know, a divine authoritarian ruler ordained by God, uh, a, a, you know, a, a serious Christian head of church and state, whether this was a, you know, a sort of a, um, 
uh, a kind of girl boss at the center of the international <laughs> order standing up to Donald Trump, you know, whether this was a, a secret liberal hero that was opposing Brexit in Britain, whether this was like a sort of twee apolitical grandmothery figure that was holding <laughs> hands with Paddington the bear, that, you know, there were so many different fantasies that were projected onto her. And the reason that was possible is that she was... We don't really know much about what she was, you know, she was, she was incredibly skilled at cultivating an empty space through which these projections can be projected onto. Mm. So I think the scale of the grief um, uh, is accounted for by the, by fundamentally by her absence, perhaps. Wow, that's brilliant. Yeah, fascinating. I love the idea that she was kind of a blank canvas onto which people could project what they needed her to be for them um and totally on the kind of girl boss liberal uh queen version of her that you know secretly had a real soft spot for the obamas and scorned trump and so on maybe it's true but um kind of doesn't matter if it's true if people invest her with that um so let's see and I, i also want to highlight your first point which i thought was very good and a good corrective to the way i asked the question that it's natural that the people who are going to be most represented in this moment are the ones who are um, grieving publicly and taking to social media to grieve or being photographed crying in the, in the line. I, I'm not going to highlight your first point, which I thought I was very good and a right. good correction to the way I asked the question. Don't care that much, or at least are kind of indifferent to this, or perhaps feel that, you know, given that she was 96 years old, she had had a good life and uh it's not that sad that she's that she has died um I mean, for whatever just, reason yeah I, I would say even just seeing the reporting on this that the people that are being interviewed who are standing in line in queues or you know getting tattoos of her or covering their houses in union jacks they are kind of being presented as normal but but really these are quite extreme people actually i think even even in day to day you know you, you are basically presenting these quite extraordinary quite weird sometimes quite reactionary quite scary people um yeah. as uh, as sort of normal and and i think that, that that was pretty uncomfortable yeah um yeah yeah that's very interesting too um so what if i mean we could probably go very long on this question, but what for you is Queen Elizabeth's legacy? Um, <laughs> I mean, so I, I think that I guess um, a lot of it comes down to what I was saying before about her um, uh, her ability to to be absent, and 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 I think there is a. Uh, a, a sort of a belief that the monarchy in Britain is this totally um, unchanged kind of thing that stretches back for thousands and thousands of years. And obviously, while there's an element of truth of that, uh, the, the monarchy is something that has to be constantly reinvented to perform different kinds of roles, right? So um, uh, Queen Victoria had to be uh, have her role reinvented as um, an imperial empress uh, mm. to 
to make sense of British rule in India, for example. Um, and, um, and a lot of the huge, spectacular traditions associated with the monarchy, um, whether this is, you know, the, the, uh, the Queen's speech to announce legislations, the state opening of parliament, the, um, the various different military processions and birthdays, a lot of these are, are relatively new traditions. Um, uh, and in some senses, they've been reinvented to cover up for the fact that Britain is is not this sort of twee, um, uh, sort of bejeweled, sort of strange uh, pre-modern monarchy. You know, Britain is is and certainly was, particularly for, for the nineteenth and, and a good chunk of the twentieth century, the most precocious modern bureaucratic, rational, disinterested, capitalistic power on earth, right? You know, mm-hmm. this is a this was a, a, a sort of terrifying, extremely modern global superpower. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that um it's a classic kind of point from uh, the sociologist Max Weber that, that at the same time that things are disenchanted, things things become more rational, bureaucratic. They also have to be re-enchanted, invested with these weird new rituals, these new kinds of feeling. And so, so this is the function that the royal family has played really since the, the emergence of Britain as a, as a major capitalist superpower. And I think Queen Elizabeth II's own contribution to this, again, whether this was her or just the fact that she happened to be there while this was happening is is a different kind of question, is that under her, the royal family has become associated with the reimagining of Britain's economy in a period after growth, after industry, after empire, as a sort of export of, um, you know, of of history, of of tourism, of um, Mm, of soft power. Culture, yeah, exactly. So, so, so I think that her main role was kind of overseeing decolonization, deindustrialization, and um, uh, and the monarchy's contribution to that. Not which I, you know, I think could be overstated, but to the extent that the monarchy was playing a role in that, it, it was about providing a. Um, uh, a story for, for Britain. It was about making Britain appear older, tweer, safer than it was before. Hmm. Fascinating. At all, tourists, etc. Yeah. Yeah. So a, a source of continuity at a time of of real real change, and for many people, I suppose, not always change for the better. Given, you know, the complete takeover of neoliberalism in the 1970s and 80s uh i suppose she could bring a certain amount of comfort to people who um especially in the baby boomer generation david uh <laughs> who are kind of watching the gains of the post war period sort of fall away from them um yeah that's that's interesting. It's that, like uh, it's not even like stability. It's more of this um, that you know the monarchy is constantly being reinvented to do different kinds of work, and, and the idea that it's this stable thing at the heart of Britain has always been a myth. That it's constantly in flux. You know, it's yeah. become yeah. So so she you know she was at the heart of various different ways in which it, uh, you know the, the monarchy was reinvented again. It's very unclear to me that she, as a human, as a person, had any particular agency in doing this, but um, mm. perhaps she did. I don't know. Yeah, we'll never well, know. Y- you need to rewatch The Crown in that case. Indeed, yeah. Because she, uh, she slays. Yeah. She really does. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we can, I mean, you know, I think that The Crown 
I mean, the thing about the crown, right, is that um, and maybe this this is the, the next thing uh, you know. I think thing perhaps wanted to talk about is less like the way that the queen is presented. But, but boy, does the new king come off badly in boy. what is the most popular and well-known representation of a royal family currently going. Um, yeah, 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 that's a great segue um, to Charles. So watching, I mean, to, to go off that, um, The Crown, the first time you really meet Charles in The Crown is when he is sent to Gordonston by his father and... I have no idea how accurate any of this is. Probably none of, only the the bare bones of the story are accurate, I imagine. But uh, Elizabeth and Philip argue over where to send him to school. Elizabeth wants him to go to Eton, which is known was known at that point and is still known as a rather progressive, albeit aristocratic, institution um, for boys. You know, one of the best schools in the world. Uh, get a very good education from Eton. But no, Philip wants him to go to Gordonston, this kind of kooky, uh, cultish school that was set up by a man who believes in basically um, self-redemption through hard work, physical labour, and kind of just getting beaten up all the time and uh, being bullied by your classmates. So you sort of, from the crown at least, you you see Charles as a very wounded figure from the beginning. Uh, and at least I think the the narrative that's trying to spin is that he's been dealing with these wounds ever since his childhood and that his kind of eccentricity later in life is a, is a product of that. So pivoting to Charles, what, what do you think, uh, I mean, what do you think of him? And also what sort of a king do you think he will be? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a great question. It's, um, uh, I mean, from from the very very moment, you know, going back to when I was watching the um, uh, the moment of the Queen's death being broadcast on BBC, um, there was an immediate pivot to starting to talk about um, our king and the king of England, and there was something really jarring and shocking about that. And 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 I and I've been thinking a lot about the reason why, and I think that. Um, the idea of a queen uh, is, you know, there's obviously um, through the queen, one of the reasons she was able to be so successful and um, uh, and have such a hold on people is that her office was, you know, feminized. She, she's the queen. Mm. And therefore, because it was feminized, it was kind of made safe, um, allowed to be one step removed from politics but hmm. King has an entirely different emotional resonance. Mm. You know, King is, is um, uh, there's something really hard and jarring and something that speaks to kind of raw political power and, and, and kind of immediate presence about just the term King. You know, I was talking to my um, friend, uh, American friend, the day after um, uh, the Queen died, and he made the point, perhaps rather glibly, that... Um, uh, but, you know, many, many different women would be able to inhabit the role of queen. But in order to be a king, you have to be incredibly charismatic, right? You have to be, <laughs> like, um, you know, you have to be very handsome. And, you know, uh, and, and Charles is, is not those those things at all. Um, so, you know, Charles, 
there is something, uh, and going back to uh, the, the way that he was presented in, in um, The Crown uh, by, I forget the name of the actor, um, uh, a really wonderful, uh, um, you know, really great performance. And the actor mm. himself is, uh, is himself a, a Republican and a socialist and, you know, really handed up and did, did a great job, I think. And, you know, he yeah. portrays Charles as this kind of um, this kind of gloaming, creepy, kind of really um, hideous figure walking around with his hands <laughs> behind his back and his stoop from his weird, incredibly strange voice. Um, you know, I mean, Charles is... Yeah, yeah, I he's a really difficult person to like, right? He um, you know, he has a uh, it's widely reported that he has a valet squeeze uh toothpaste onto his toothbrush every morning, right? He is a 73-year-old man who has never in his life dressed himself, right? Um, which and you know, I'm sure it's not necessarily due to his own fault, but that that is going to produce an incredibly weird subject, um, but that experience. Um, and, and and I think the that while the Queen, you know, as I was saying before, was was so absent that she was able to command all kinds of different projections and fantasies. Charles isn't bad at all. Charles Charles wears his politics, his mm. views, his ideas very clearly on his sleeve. And and these are pretty weird. I mean, you know, he is very, very much associated with um um, agitating against uh, modernist architecture and particularly public housing in Britain. He built his own weird royal community called Poundbury, somewhere in the southwest of England, I think. Um, he, you know, his, his approach to architecture, as the um, fantastic architectural historian Owen Haverley has described it, he sees the world as, uh, you know, through the windows of carriages, through the windows of palaces. To him, the world is this kind of backdrop to be intervened in and thought about, but he's never someone who has to actually live in it or think about it or reflect critically on it. Um, he, his views on homeopathy being available on the National Health Service are very hmm. uh, very well known. He uh, it, was, it was reported about 15 years ago that he... Um, uh, had been authoring multiple different memos to the then Prime Minister Tony Blair called the Spider Memos, in which he'd been agitating for all sorts of different pet political issues to do with um, uh, architecture, to do with, with homeopathy again. So, you know, he he, uh, he will be probably much more active, much more present as a political figure in a way that is a lot more constitutionally troubling Um mm. And and I think you know that there's going to have to be a lot of ideological work going into making him acceptable, uh, even like at the bare minimum of likability. Um, so I think that the future of the monarchy maybe could be quite precarious. He's also 73. You know, we're not going to be looking at um, you know and a man, right? We're not going to be looking at um, uh, at decades and decades and decades of, of rule here. Uh, you know, we might be doing all of this again pretty soon. Um, and so, and and, and the, of course, the other thing about Charles, it was his pretty reprehensible behaviour around Princess Diana. You know, mm-hmm. which is powerful, really hard to underestimate, but the lingering feeling of attachment and love and care towards Princess Diana, not not just on on the right, but also among, um, you know, people on the left as well, particularly the gay community, her uh, Mm. well-documented support of people with AIDS, you know, and he was was monstrous, you know. So, I don't know, I think it's going to be really tough. Yeah, Um, sorry, I've I've waffled too long about Charles. 
Yeah. Um, no, that's that's all really interesting and uh, good that, I mean, in your answer, we can basically dispense with the idea that's been doing the rounds recently that the monarchy has no political power in this country, right? I mean, that's just a, a fallacy. Totally, yeah, absolutely. And I think that... Um, uh, and, and previously, you know, I've had this argument in the past with David Feldman on, on this very show, and I've um, uh, probably uh, insufferably on my behalf multiple times brought up these spider memos as an example of the instance in which the monarchy uh, has, has directly intervened in British politics. Um, and-, and Elizabeth did it as well, right? Because we now know, I think The Guardian has been doing some quite good reporting on this. Um she intervened to shape at something like 150, 160 different pieces of legislation during her tenure. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and uh, and um, uh, you know, and, and she's someone who, whose politics has always been much more secretive and, mm. and ambiguous. Um, but um, but yeah, ex- you know, exactly the, the idea that um, there is no. I mean, I mean, Britain's. Um, uh, has no real worked out uh, written constitution, unlike the United States. So everything is sort of a little bit cobbled together and made up on the spot and, and held together by precedent and by sets of expectation. And it's you know it is possible that Charles might do something. He'll be under a huge amount of pressure not to do this. And I think that uh, you know, whether or not he actually would. Um, uh, be as activist as, as as he has been, or at least be seen to be, or as publicly as activist as he has been, is pretty unclear. Uh, you know, he's also older, but those those sort of that moment is kind of a little bit past him, I think. But mm. um, uh, but it could, you know, it, it presents all of these huge constitutional questions at the heart of British politics, and the problem is that. Um, uh, you know, I support a republic and the abolition of the monarchy, but but it requires unraveling this really thorny, weird problem of, of British constitutional and political order. We can't, you know, I, as far as I'm concerned, we can't abolish the monarchy without also abolishing and reimagining the Commonwealth, uh, you know, without rethinking Britain's history of empire and calling for something like reparations. We can't mm abolished the monarchy without fully separating the church and the state, which which is not the case in Britain. Absolutely, um, yeah. You know, it calls for different kinds of representation. We should get rid of a House of Lords. It's a whole, you know, it's like a thread, but once you pull on mm-hmm. it, it starts unraveling. And like so many things in Britain, it might be the case that we'll just end up with this really unpopular king, but no political will or imagination to do anything about it because it's too difficult and too hard to agree on or think through what needs to be done. So we'll just sort of <laughs> complain about it and then forget about it and then complain about it and forget about it. Um, you could have been describing Boris Johnson and the opposition in that <laughs> sentence as well, by the way. A very unpopular prime minister, but no actual answer to what the alternative is. Um, yeah, I, I personally, I, I think that if the monarchy survives Charles, then it will be in the best hands it's ever been with William and Kate. They are the greatest long-term threat to republicanism in this country, I think, because they are, you know, they're extremely media savvy. They are very likable, very, you know, attractive, I think, to the to the average person. Um, and they do represent the kind of next generation, I think, of royals. Um, before we finish, what what are your thoughts on on those two as, you know, potentially the next figureheads? Yeah, I mean, um, 
uh, quite possibly. I, I feel like that they, they've certainly, I feel like their stock also has fallen over hmm. the last couple of years, um, uh, or, you know, particularly with, with the fallout from the, the Meghan Markle stuff. Again, oh, I'm sort interesting. Of, yeah. slightly unfamiliar territory. I'm not, I'm not a great royal watcher. I tend to try and not get too involved in my stuff. But, but as you know, uh, and at the same time, the, the British, the extremely racist British tabloid media, racist to a degree that I think Americans don't really fully understand the extremity and the, the popularity of newspapers for the really... Right quite extreme politically, have done a lot to denigrate Meghan Markle as, as, as the black outsider. Yeah. And really clear and complete, you know, that the racism is just absolutely obvious. And, Beginning uh, at the top with Philip as well, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and of course, yeah, Philip, <laughs> well known for his litany of um, of racist comments. So, um, so yeah, so I'd say that, um, um, you know, it, potentially their stock has fallen uh, you know, William is uh, like all of us in our mid to late first. He's not aging brilliantly. You know, I don't, I, you know, I don't want to be the person to cast the first stone, but luckily I don't have to be king. Um, uh, and, um, you know, and there's, there's continued rumors about affairs weird sex stuff uh, oh interesting yes people suggest you google uh what, what william might have been up to I, I, uh or is alleged allegedly I mean, I, I, you know again i don't i don't know this stuff i just this is what i'm hearing secondhand um i mean when i say i don't know this stuff i don't um I don't seek out this information. I mean, the, 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 the people that do will. will Is there tell some you. like Tumblr yeah. blog that's you know reporting these rumors about William's sex life? Anyway, let's not let's yeah. not go too far down that alley. No. Um, actually, that wasn't my last question. This is so interesting to me. So, uh, to get your thoughts on the fact that this grief that we talked about at the beginning of the segment, um, not only in the UK and I guess around the world, but especially in America, uh, we were seeing a lot of that coming from the kind of, I suppose, liberal kind of media types. But what what are your thoughts on the, you know, the extent to which this this sentiment has drifted across the pond to the US? Yeah, I find it very surprising. Um, I mean, Americans are extremely bad. Well, I mean, the glib answer is that Americans... Uh, have a long tradition of propping up unelected governments overseas, right? So you can see this <laughs> is to that. Uh, but but I think that American uh, Americans are, are are not honest and uh, or not not all Americans, obviously, but, but but a lot of Americans are not honest about their own republicanism, which should be an animating value behind the Constitution and the American state itself. And it's almost as if the, the principles underlying America's constitutional democracy, um, particularly the, the principles of, of a fully elected head of state, are not seen as universal principles. They're seen as principles that might make sense for America, but, but don't make sense somewhere else. And, and it's sort of like almost being a little bit coy about what should be principles that you know, should, should be seen as, as universal. Um, so there is something quite surprising about um, America's um, sort of fascination and, and grief. Um, uh, you know, I, I would also say that American, I feel like, probably got over it fairly quickly. Um, uh, <laughs> and, 
if, if the grief in Britain felt overplayed, the grief in America might have done as well. But uh, there's a lot of work that was done in, um, uh, in, in Britain to try and portray this as a huge world historical event. And I don't want to downplay it and say it isn't. And, and of course, it's really important to remember that, that, you know, the Queen sat atop of a massive network of former colonial um, states for which she was still the head of states and which which um, was a was an edifice that was really beginning to fall apart even before she died. And I think it, that its future will also be hugely precarious. Hmm. Um, uh, but at the same time, I'm not sure that this was... The, the, the world historical event that everyone expected or anticipated it actually almost feels a little bit anticlimactic. Mm. It might lead, partly be, particularly in Britain, there was so much turmoil, uh, you know, so the last couple of years have been so fraught with extraordinary political events that have been unimaginable a couple of years ago. I feel like if this would have happened in the early 2000s, it would have been so much more dramatic and dominating the news cycle for months. We don't quite have time to reflect on this because we're all heading into a, uh, you know, a winter in which everyone's going to freeze to death or pay energy bills five times more than you know they were. We have a prime minister that is two and a half weeks old. We have the pound is plummeting. You know, Britain's turning Britain into like an emerging market economy. Um, obviously, there's the lingering threat of like nuclear war, but there's just a lot of stuff going on right now. Yes. That, <laughs> uh, that, that is competing for attention with, 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 with this. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, it, it feels like we're living in an, a state of hypernormalization, which is also the name of an Adam Curtis documentary, which I commend to everybody available on YouTube. Um, so let's wrap it up. I think we have to wrap it up, unfortunately. But this has been really, really great. Um, great to have you back on the show, Sam. Thank you for your time. And could you let people know how to find you on Twitter? And also anything else you want to share, maybe about the the book you're writing, your next book? <laughs> yeah, sure. Thanks, Grace. It's such a, always such a pleasure to be here and, and talk to you and, and be on the David Feldman show. So happy to come back anytime. Um, um, people can find me on Twitter um, at Sam Weberall. I'm really bad at pronouncing my own last name because of the sort of speech impediment, I guess, but uh, it's a really weird curse. But, uh, but uh, that is spelt W-E-T-H-E-R-E-L-L uh, for people who are interested. Um, um, yeah, I'm currently writing a, uh, a, a history book that will be, I'm hoping will have some resonances outside of the small community of academics in which, in which we live, which is going to be a history of, of post-war Britain told specifically through the um, uh, the city of Liverpool, uh, which is a sort of big, kind of like Britain's Detroit, this huge post-industrial city in, in Britain's northwest, um, uh, and looking at things like the industrialization, but also uh, decolonization, racial inequality, police violence, environmental harm, um, and, and, and some of these points about the, uh, the regeneration of Britain through um, culture and tourism uh, after industry, things like that, yeah. Great. I'm I don't know what to it already. Yet, and I don't know when it's going to be out, but uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see it in, in 15 years' time. If we're <laughs> Great. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Sam. And, Pleasure. Uh, yeah. Great take care. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, Grace. <clears throat> Thank you, Professor Weatherall. 
What a great show. Very quickly, we have time for Rodrigo. Hello, Rodrigo. Hi, David. I'll try to be fast. Uh, a quick shout out because Inuendo Studios released a new video on YouTube. If you want to educate yourself about the alt-right playbook, they have a video series dedicated to explaining the left to alt-right propaganda pipeline. Speaking of Don't Look Up, uh, we recently saw on British TV a meteorologist talking about deaths during the summer due to their heat wave, and he gets interrupted by a host who literally says that she would pref prefer the show to be, quote, happy about the weather, end quote. Meanwhile, the movie Avatar was released in theaters, in theaters without any extra footage, and it seems to be doing well. It's okay to engage in some escapism, but if you like the movie Avatar, you should be worried about climate change. The millions of people in Pakistan who became refugees due to the flus, and maybe look up articles or videos about the ethnic minorities in Ethiopia undergoing a genocide, the women getting killed by the cops in Iran, and ask yourself, is Putin the only bad guy, or do we live in a world full of bad guys that we're not supposed to think about because it damages the carefully constructed narrative of the United States being the, quote, good cop of the world, end quote. If you want to educate yourself, you can watch YouTube videos of Dubu's origin, or you can read books. I'd like to recommend Michael Parenti's Black Shirts and Reds, Rational Fascism, and the Overthrow of Communism, B.J. Prashad's Washington Bullets, and the more recent book from Chomsky and Prashad, The Withdrawal, all of which document how the United States decides to, quote, liberate, end quote, some countries and not others, and how when it does liberate this or that country, they usually empower local bad guys and help them suppress the democratic opposition because they might be socialists. We heard earlier from Juan Cole and Adnan Hussein a little bit about Iran, but I'd like to remind people that even after the United States got the democratically elected government replaced in 1953, women were still allowed to drive and wear miniskirts in the 70s there, and in other places in the Middle East. Their women don't have human rights now because the United States interfered with their governments not because they are uncultured barbarians. Most times when the United States has to decide between empowering democracies, even if they choose to try to distance themselves from the United States or empowering warlords, they will give weapons and training to the warlords. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Can you send me that reading list again, please? Sure. Thank uh, you. No? Let us go to Ricky in Great Britain. Hello, Ricky. Good morning. Oh, good morning. It's uh, four fifty-eight in uh, the morning here in London, David. Oh. And I just, you know, I I woke up just in time to hear this fantastic talk by our Yorkshireman uh, Sam Weatherall with our Grace. So, and I stand corrected. You know, I yeah, I was just really checking in on your monarchism, David. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know how powerful you and I got into a knockdown, drag out <laughs> brawl over the Queen. Uh, I tried to USA explain to you how things work in 
Great Britain, and I told you the Queen didn't have any power, that their figureheads got a little heated. Uh, oh, it's all in love. Yes, David, I you know. know. I know. There's only, there only brotherly love between us. So I will uh, reconsider. You did make me, but I did say the, the monarchy has to be abolished. I remember that, and I gave you full credit for it. Yes. I gave you like five stars for that. Yeah. That was guaranteed. It's like it's like sheet cake that you can buy at a supermarket. You know it's wrong, but sometimes you just have to, you know. You have to give you have to give that sort of thing. We we call it in uh, the UK the layer cake because there's layers and layers of uh, cream that people are people are skimming. So. Uh, it's it's just I'm really pleased because you you just have a totally different uh, smile and outlook on on the abolition of the monarchy and it just warms my heart even though I'll probably need something else to warm my body over the next uh, six months because uh, you know we're going to freeze a little bit but yeah. you know me I'm I'm a bit northern I quite like the cold so uh, is it you know, how is warming. how is the weather I was telling a friend the other night. There was a time when talking about the weather was considered the end of a conversation. Now it's the start of one. How is the weather tonight well, in London? Or this well, morning? we're in Britain, so it's... Uh, Temperate. It's one of those things where it's called an Indian summer. We're having a long, warm summer that it hasn't really ended. Normally by this time you're putting on your long jackets and, and your scarves and you're getting ready for the for the autumn to cool. Uh, not full, uh, and it's um, it's actually it was chillier today, but it's been really really nice. Twenty three degrees in real money over the weekend, and um, yeah, I, th- I have a strange feeling that when it comes, it's going to be a a great shock to us. Yeah. Uh, the cold, but winter is coming, as as we say in the north. So uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll wait and see, David. But I'm hopeful that uh, our gas problems and our you know mining of coal won't have to happen until at least January. Yeah. So. All right. Good yeah. to hear your voice. I love you. And buddy. lovely to hear your anti-monarchianism. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful, David. Thank you. Thank you. Love you, buddy. That's love our you, show. I want to thank everybody who uh, helped put it together. I want to thank Professor Ann Lee. Great job on the latest in Ukraine. Read her over at The Daily Kos. Her handle is Annie Lee, A-N-N-I-E-L-I. Professor Jonathan Bick, thank you. Great job. Royal Watcher, Sir Arthur Grebe Striebling, thank you for taking time out of your not-so-busy schedule. Thank you to Quizmaster Dan Frankenberger, Howie Klein, read him over at Down With Tyranny, David Cobb, Dr. Harriet Fraud, of course, Professor Juan Cole, Read him over at Informed Comment. Thank you, Professor Adnan Hussein, for bringing him on. Great job, as always. Peter B. Collins, good to have you back, sir. Go to peterbcollins.com to hear more of his radio shows, podcasts, and interviews. Professor Marianne Cummings, thank you, as always. Professor Mike Steinell, author of Saving Charlie Parker, a novel, the brilliant Grace Jackson, the equally brilliant Professor Sam Weatherall. Thank you, 
both for uh, proving Ricky right and, uh, as usual, I'm wrong. Rodrigo in Mexico, Ricky in Great Britain. That is our show. Subscribe to my newsletter. Please come to Office Hours. It's every Friday night at 8 p.m. And go to my website for the link. And I want to thank our producers, the people who put today's show together. They are... Today's show is produced, I should have done this earlier, is produced by Dan Frankenberger, along with Professor Jonathan Bick. We do this alphabetically. Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, Invisible Ninja, Grace Jackson, and Joe in Norway. Thank you. And thank you to our mods, who today were, I believe, the mods in the chat rooms on YouTube and in our Zoom room were Autumn Leaves, Midi Doctors, Bob Carmody, M. Toussaint, Choking on Ashes, Lexi444, S. Scott is Taken, Dent F., Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, and the Invisible Ninja. I think that does it for all of us. I'm David Feldman, reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die Fifteen bucks an hour Five days a week Fifty-two weeks a year And thirty-two thousand years I know it's a long time, honey To thirty-four thousand and twenty But when I get there, babe I'm gonna be in the money I'm on my way To be a billionaire Now you can make fun of me But I don't really care I have a plan To get there By and by As long as I stay healthy And I never die All I really need Is a second job Or a third Lift myself up my boots And join that elite herd of the 600 billionaires in the USA Who make more in a second than I do in a day I'm on my way, yes I am I'm on my way I'm on my way Oh, yes I am To get there, yes, I do, by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. As long as I stay healthy and I never die. As long as I stay healthy and I never die.